David Fetterman's show He's talking politics And comedy too He'll tell a dirty joke If you want him to He's just a lefty From way back He's a union man With an Emmy for writing Someday he's mad And he feels like fighting It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way It's time right now for the David Oh I smell technical problems I do. I smell trouble. I smell trouble. I smell technical problems. Yeah, I do. I These smell things are so hard. It's time right now of the David Feldman show. So get your ears on right. Things are so hard. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Hello. We we have we have a problem. Let me just see. Your way. I've got some technical issues today. Welcome Hello. to the broadcast. We, we have. Uh, I'm David Feldman, and we we're having uh, issues today. Let me try Your it this way. Can you hear me now? Dave Cyrus, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Dave Cyrus, can you hear me? Of course I can. I've heard you this whole time. Good. Okay. I, I think we're having uh, some technical problems. Can you say hello to me, sir? And we'll start the show. How are you doing? I'm doing much better now that you're with me. And we got What's Dan Frankenberger back from his whatever. He went on vacation. And can you hear my uh, Dave Cyrus love theme? Can you hear this? No, you can't. No. Yeah, that's interesting. All right. It's going to be one of those days. It's all welcome. Now, can you hear it? Cyrus. No. no, you can't hear it. All right. One of those no. days. Uh, okay. I was playing with some... <sighs> I was playing with some equipment over the weekend. Over the weekend? What's today? Today's Friday, Thursday. Thursday. Yeah. I was playing with some new way to do this show. And I completely screwed it up. But I think what I'm going to do now is try it this way. Can you hear me now? You can hear this now, right? And I bet you can hear this. Right? Nothing. Nothing. Welcome to my... How about now? This Let's all well hear me now. You can hear this. Right? Cyrus. And I bet you can hear this. We're going to have to do this as a raw right? show with Nothing. very little technology. Nothing. Welcome to my. Yeah, I'm sorry. How about now? Yeah. Hang on. Uh, no. <laughs> this is a nightmare. Okay. 
Hang on. We're going to have to do this Hi, everybody. show with very little technology. Uh, okay. Before we start, can you say hello to me? Hello. And you can hear me, correct? Yeah. Okay, this is how we're going to do the show then. Hi, Dave Cyrus. Hello, Dave Feldman. We're going to have... How have you been? Have I been? I'm trying to learn how to do this show with more visuals and make it look better. But I've been told, why bother? That's not why people listen to the show. This is not why people watch the show. They want great minds like Dave Cyrus. And yet I have to obsess on things. Instead of writing and focusing on my creativity or learning important things, I go down the technological rabbit hole thinking that therein contains the answer to all my financial woes. If I can just figure out this one program, I'll be rich. You don't well, bother you with know, that. You're busy making movies with Judd Apatow. You're working on Saturday Night Live. You, you're paid for your mind. You just put some syllables and sentences together and people just give you lots and lots of money. And I keep thinking there's this magical software program that's going to take me to Valhalla. I don't think you need to gussy it up. People just want to hear your voice and the things in that brain of yours. Yeah, yeah. Well, should we try? Should I try to share a clip with you that I that I was all excited about showing you? But I, I doubt it'll work. Should, should I try to show you something? Or is I it assume it's not going to work. But sure. Okay. I, I assume it's not going to work either. I can't even find it. This is one of those days where. Uh, <laughs> Here, have you seen Bunny the dog? No. The bu Bunny the dog who talks? You haven't seen that? Let's no. talk about the election. Let's get serious here. The American one? The American Revolution. The American mm -hmm. Revolution that's going on right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, people just had enough. They've, you know, they, the, the, the Democrats keep making things up, you know, viruses, sciences, and now we made up this election business. Uh, I mean, you know, what, what, do you, what do you want to talk about? I mean, this is it's exactly what we said was going to happen. It's exactly what we knew Trump would do. No one thought that he would suddenly at the end of his presidency start being, you know, uh, a real person, uh, magnanimous or even slightly fied. Uh, Let me play you Steve Bannon on his serious yeah. radio program and see if sure. See if you can hear this. I won't. Here we go. I can't hear it. All right. Uh, all right. It's this is Pre president is a kind hearted man and a good man. I'd actually like to go back this. to the old uh, times of Tudor England. Right? I'd put the heads on pikes. Right. No. Right. right. I'd put them at so the two it's corners Steve of the Bannon right. basically saying uh, all right. that he wants to put heads on pikes and that we need to go back to the way they you did can't hear it right during no, the Revolutionary sorry. War. No. All right and start hanging people. He lost his lawyer because of that. He is being tried for scamming a charity. Well, yeah, that's part of it. But also you have to understand that the he didn't just say he wants to kill people. He said he wants to kill Dr. Fauci, right? Yeah. Specifically. Yeah. And it's really, really important to pay attention to that because what Steve Bannon there is saying, he is not saying we need to go kill 
the the enemy. He's saying we need to kill the referee because Fauci is not hurting anyone on either side. Fauci is just giving facts and trying to help people. So you have to understand that like that's part of Steve Bannon's thing. It's that it's the same reason that Scientology told people to never, ever go to or trust a psychiatrist because they didn't say don't like the people who hate Scientology. They skipped over that and said, no, no, no. Don't like the people who even have the capacity to help you get to the mental place where you might not believe in this religion anymore. So that's when they have to go and say, and when he says, let's kill Fauci, what he really means is the intellectual class must go because they contradict what we want you to believe. It's the same exact thing Pot did in Cambodia. They just want to get rid of the people who know things they don't because those people can contradict them. And people like Steve Bannon and Donald Trump and everyone who's loyal to him, they live off of one thing. The idea that you can, the idea that science and truth is the enemy. Reality is the enemy. And you have to systematically separate people from reality for your ideology to make sense. Mm-hmm. That's all Steve Bannon is doing. Right. Now, when, he's, when they say to kill Fauci, when Trump hates Fauci, it is a truly bizarre but completely predictable thing that they're doing. They're just telling people, we have no answer to the coronavirus. So we're just going to play to saying that the world itself doesn't exist because that's what Republicans have been doing this whole time. They just are, they're just as hard as they can to expand this alternate reality and they don't see an end to it. They don't see any chance that it's going to ever break. And they're, and they're looking at the election like, well, uh, that's what they believe everything else. Why should this change anything? It's kind of like, do you remember, you know how like oftentimes you'll hear about a, uh, a celebrity's assistant attacking them? Yes. David or Spade's su- assistant. Or suing them more likely. Yeah. Like Lady Gaga's assistant. Rob Lowe's assistant claims he flirted you with know, her. Do you know why there is so much abuse of assistants in the Hollywood system and not just Hollywood, just, you know, general rich people, why they abuse their personal assistants. What happens is, they become so used to this person yesing them and pretending that they're, uh, you know, a God and doing everything they say that they start expanding on that and they start playing with it like the, like the person toy. And then eventually they get to the point where they're like, well, this person is and this is what happened with some of these lawsuits. They'll be like, this person is so under my thumb. I bet I can even stop paying them. Yes. Yes. And then they and then they sue because they're like, no, 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 no. The payment was the only reason I dealt with any of this. Well, the election is the same thing. Right. They got so used to being able to lie to people that they said, you know what? Maybe we don't even need to win elections. We just lie and say we won them. We if we live off the lie, if we never look down, we'll never fall down from the cliff. And so that's what they're doing. Right. right. They're, they're just they're getting too used to the idea that they can get away with literally anything they make up because Steve Bannon knows it's a lie. Steve Bannon knows the the virus is real. Rush Limbaugh knows the virus is real. They just hate their audience and think they're so stupid. You can just tell them anything. Right. And they know they can't win the argument truthfully. Let's look at Mike Pompeo. We can't hear him because of technical difficulties, but you can't see him with Brett Baer, right? 
Yes, yes, I can see. And he's he's claiming it was a quip when he talked about a smooth transition into the second Trump administration. This is Mike Pompeo, the secretary of state. He was the head of the CIA, Harvard and West Point, And he is not conceding the election. Was he joking around when the secretary of state starts talking about a second Trump administration? Is he joking around? He claims no, he's he's not joking. But what he's doing is employing the same very depressingly simplistic ploy that Trump people have been doing for years now, which is they say things they mean in a flippant way and think that counts as joking. Or is he afraid? Is he afraid of Trump? Yes, of course he is. Th- I mean, this you've is said a many man, times I mean, this Trump is a highly educated, decorated West Point graduate, Harvard, a successful congressman from Kansas. This is a guy. What does he care what Donald Trump well, thinks of who him? Knows? Seriously, why would he care what Donald who Trump knows thinks what of makes him? He has to look down on Trump, right? Well, who knows what people like Pompeo and Bill Barr are thinking about why they worship Trump. The truth is authoritarianism, whether it's caused by racism, dementia, alcoholism, whatever it is, it leads people to worship these cartoonish uh, strongmen. And Pompeo seems to be someone just like Bill Barr, who had a true obsession with pleasing daddy. And that is what Trump instills in people like him. And you don't think think they're worried about history? I mean, no one who is backing Trump is worried about history. So they're preventing Biden can't access calls from foreign leaders to congratulate him. Usually after it's obvious that somebody is the president elect, they start receiving calls from foreign leaders. He had to do it outside the State Department. Those calls are supposed to go through the State Department's transition arm and they've shut it down. Granted, it's only been 10 days since Yeah, 10 days, which is a long time for this. But look, in in a holistic way, I think I can explain this. When the Internet started, it gave people the ability to share their worst self with others anonymously. And some people became obsessed with the feeling they got of just being of, of letting go of all cultural norms, all levels of dignity and appropriateness and basic civility. And some people fell in love with that and then took it out of the Internet and made it their real lives. Those are the people who worship Donald Trump, people who want to be literal mental cavemen, who mm-hmm. want to be completely regressed toddlers. And Trump is a toddler. Pompeo is a toddler. There are people with, no matter how smart you are, you can have an emotional problem. You can have a cognitive issue, which is what these people are. They are very emotionally stunted. Okay, there's a big Magapalooza coming up this weekend. All the the Proud Boys and the Trump supporters are going to be gathering outside the the White House to show support for Donald Trump and claim this was stolen from him. The second term was stolen from him. I'm showing a picture right now of a a Trump supporter. And right. And you can see on his face. Out. He's got his tongue out. He's wrenching his face apart. He's he's acting in a way that and what up is his until now say? it's his gaze for Trump. So and don't what don't we, we all want don't we all gay. want the same we not thing? Assume he's gay. He's a troll. 
Don't we all want, want the to, same thing? Our medication? We all want this. <laughs> There's no difference between me and this guy. We want attention well, the, and to be this medicated. Is someone, the problem is Trump has encouraged a lot of people to not seek help for their mental illness. And it's encouraged a lot of people to deny that they have a problem. So look at this guy. This guy is making a face that adults don't make. Like they just don't. This yeah. is something that only small children are comfortable with and trump has encouraged this general idea that you can regress to your infancy and that that's okay because that's what he does and none of us really knew that that this many people wanted to be children wanted to be animals they want to act out we had no idea that they were this childish but they are you know but this guy is calling you know he's gays for trump now maybe he's gay but it's more likely that this is just another liar who is on a, a fake identity because he hates liberals and he wants to, you know, insurrect them. The same reason that that uh, congressional candidate does Twitter blackface and pretends to be black people and tweets as them to create this fake idea that that black people are on Trump's side. Right. So let's talk about the great Dean Browning. Who is Dean Browning? And tell us about his tweet. He made a mistake on Twitter. Yeah, right? he, he did what uh, Wiener does. I did it in text messaging today. I sent a pretty reprehensible <laughs> uh, message intended for somebody else to somebody else. Luckily, they knew I was joking. But this guy accidentally, his name is Dean Browning. He's an ex, some kind of politician. He ran for something, yeah. From he P- pre- Pennsylvania. And he has two accounts on Twitter. One is his fake black gay guy account and then there's his real dean browning official well white guy he has, account he has two accounts minimum yeah he has at least two accounts right. and he's doing what a lot of people do they have sock puppets where they put out they have fake accounts to congratulate themselves on their tweets so he'll he'll tweet something and then he'll say as a gay black man i disagree with all the other gays and black people i think you're great mm-hmm and it is black. Well, wait, read his tweet. It's kind of funny. Dean Browning. Yes, it was. I'm a black gay guy. And I can personally say that Obama did nothing for me. My my life only changed a little bit. And it was for the worse. Everything is so much better under Trump, though. I feel respected, which I never do when Democrats are involved. Right. So I, now here's what I really wonder. Oops. Is wrong account. A, is he just a grammatical idiot or does he write in broken English? because he thinks that's going to make it more believable that he's a black person, which I think is very possible. I just I mean, he's an idiot. I, he's probably just stupid. Yeah. Uh, but that is the kind, but that's, that's the kind of completely off the charts level of shamelessness that only the people who love Trump have. And like, yeah, he's pretending to be a black gay guy because he wants to just muddy the waters of reality and trying to influence other people. Just like that Blacks for Trump website we found out was Russian, was just a flat out propaganda move that they got some people to join because, you know, they're probably not the most stable people. You know, people who would go to a Trump rally and and scream without a mask up and down are not emotionally healthy people. Isn't this Uh, this a breakdown in our education system where 
students are now treated as consumers and they get to learn what they want to learn as opposed to what they need to learn. So that Twitter, which is no great shakes, but they did do a good job shutting down the president this election in terms of his lies. And Facebook is cracking down on his lies. Again, not enough. They don't have enough people doing that. But Twitter and uh, the, the, the right wing QAnon people are saying they're being censored. So they go to Parler, which is this new right wing. Yeah, which I'm sure is going to do great. I'm sure they're going to really enjoy talking to each other and not having liberals to scream at. Right. I'm sure that's going to last forever. Right. Great point. Yeah. Because it's very popular right now since the election, since November 3rd. Everybody who's a whack job has migrated to parlor, but you're absolutely right. The whole we'll purpose see about that. The whole purpose is to troll. All they can. Yeah, they're right. only these are people whose only emotional outlet is to get the giddy thrill of upsetting a stranger. Right. Like I said, it comes from the internet. It comes from right. this place where they were able to anonymously attack people and just act like the infants society won't let them act like and now they want to bring it to the real world that's what a groiper or a proud boy is someone who wants to act like an internet troll in real life and it's it's essentially it's it's more just a complete breakdown of culture we've broken culture we were you know 20 something years ago we talked about the way that culture was accelerating too fast the way that like things used to be like phrases used to exist for long amounts of time the the things did not change as quickly as they did when TV and the internet started existing. And what we ended up doing was finding us in this place where idiots just have giant egos and will believe and tell people anything they want because they're getting further and further from a place where they think reality has any, has any relevance. Yeah. I was reading an interview with these two executives who were taking over Viacom. They all come from MTV where the mission statement was, Every seven years, break the model. Every seven years at MTV, the, the, the credo was we have a new generation, tear everything down and build it back up again. Seven years. Now it's happening, what, every th- three months? Every, every season. Every Basically season, every the season. whole thing yeah. is torn down. And I wonder, well, anyway, there are some good. There were some Republicans who have stepped up. Believe well, it. I think there are Republicans who recognize that the world will still exist in 20 years. And people like Pompeo seem to act like it's not going to. But the one thing that I think they all know is that there is literally no possibility that history will think of these people as anything but the great shame of American history. But they don't they, they don't know, pay they attention to history. You know who reads history is Karl Rove. He's a great historian and he makes more money if there's a Democrat in the White House, he wrote a piece for the Wall Street Journal. There is no evidence of fraud that would overturn election results. And the only reason Karl Rove wrote that is because he doesn't have a candidate. If it were back in 2000, he'd be all over these election well, results. Well, let's be fair. I don't think any of the Republicans backing Trump right now, I don't think anyone except people named Trump 
actually want this to succeed. Mitch McConnell does not want Trump to remain president. Neither does Ted Cruz or any of these other lying lunatics who are who are flirting with overthrowing the government and installing a fascist dictator. They don't want that, just like they don't want abortion to be legal. They want to use that forever right. as they they desperately need Biden to be president now so they can spend four years saying, you're an illegitimate president, you're a horrible person, someone should kill you. Mm-hmm. That's what they want to imply if right. trump actually became president with this then you'd be looking at an actual revolution uh, if trump managed to somehow bribe enough state assemblies to simply ignore the popular vote of their states and install him as president then i honestly think you would see entire cities burning to the ground i think you would see mobs that would start actually tearing limbs off and it would be 100 trump's fault General David Petraeus, General David Petraeus has uh, told Trump to step down. If you care for the country, stop with the suit, the lawsuits you've lost. Petraeus, for some reason, people think of him as a great man. He shared confidential intelligence with his mistress and promoted a surge that didn't look everybody get. Everybody needs to do something to get hard. Some people need a certain kind of outfit. Some people need to share state secrets. Right. I am not going to sit here and say should have just, you know, made out with her and not and not had sex if that's what he needed. Right. Right. But there's an old man. And he's also a Bush and an Obama appointee. I guess that's healthy for the country, for both Democrats and Republicans to bring people from the other side into their administration, because it does lead to bi- bipartisanship. I mean, there is a place for it. Um, I understand why it happens, but that was also, it harkens back to a day when that worked, when Republicans would reciprocate. Yeah. And that doesn't exist anymore yeah. because they have lost their dignity. They have lost their maturity. And now they are playing chicken with our whole country. Right. And they are... And, you know, you, you can really see people like Mitch McConnell really do hate this country. They really hate the Constitution. They hate that they have to play within a set of rules where the majority gets to decide. They do not want to live in a democracy. They don't live in a democracy. Right. They live in a place where they only have to win 45 percent of a vote to become president because right. it's gerrymandered throughout the entire country that the more conservative state you are, the more electoral votes you have. And it, it should not exist. But they're getting used to that, too. And even that's not enough now. They... I mean, look, at the end of the day, the difference between a conservative and a liberal is really a populist or a monarchist. The, no matter how much they call themselves populists, Republicans are monarchists. They, are, they worship authority and they resent the idea that these poor people have a vote. Right. And that's why they're trying to stop them from having it. That's why they work so hard to reduce the number of people who can vote. And they did. And they can't believe that all they did in this election still wasn't to stop the people from Trump out, even as a lot of Americans uh, decided to keep their Republicans in smaller offices for reasons that we could get into. But it didn't carry to Trump himself, because even though Trump had a very lucky for had a very lucky situation and environment for how he was running, his gross incompetence outweighed it. Great. Hey, uh, we have to wrap it up. I just want to make sure. Can you? I'm sorry to do this to you. Can you hear this? No. Yeah, either can I. Can you hear it now? 
Which is one it, is it? I, I have no idea. What about now? Can you hear it now? I hate my life. I really do. Whose quote? Huh? Whose quote is it? Because I probably know it. What are you talking about? I, I can't. I it, spent all this time trying to learn a, a new sound system and it doesn't work. And I'm doing the show live and it won't. It won't. Uh, oh, everyone. Everyone enjoys you. What are you talking being about? Flustered. I, I can't. Okay. I, I can't stand it. I can't. But you can hear me, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I hear you. Let me call Bruce perfectly. Fine. Stay on the line for one second. This is going to be one of those shows where I. Uh, it's all technical problems. There, there wouldn't be technical problems if I would just not try to learn new things. That seems to be the uh, the issue. All right. Hang on for one second. Did you sell our movie yet? There we go. Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. We're calling Bruce Fine. I hope he's there. Bruce, are you there? Oh, okay. Hi. Hang on. I'm having a uh, technical difficulties. Just stick with me for one second. Okay. Here we go. Are you there, sir? Bruce? Yes, I'm here. Uh -huh. Oh, good. Okay. We can do it. So I can say goodbye to Dave Cyrus. I'm going to thank him for coming by, Dave Cyrus. You're and welcome. You're a comedy writer. Follow Dave Cyrus on Twitter at Dave Cyrus. S-I-R-U-S. And everybody should rent King of Staten Island. He wrote the movie starring Bill Burr, Marissa Tomei, and Pete Davidson. Thank you, Dave Cyrus. I had all this stuff prepared, visuals. I did all my homework, and we're having technical problems. But thank you. For oh, it's fine. Okay. Thank you, we Dave. We won! Hey, we did it. We did it. Great job. Thank you. We did it! Thank you. Bye. Let's go to Washington, D.C., where Bruce Fine is standing by. He was a deputy attorney general in the Reagan administration, general counsel for the FCC, and has worked over at the Heritage Foundation and the American Enterprise Institute. And he's a regular on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. The two of them teamed up to draw up articles of impeachment for Donald Trump. Welcome back, Bruce Fine. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Are you on a speakerphone? I'm in a, I'm obsessively, uh, I have a little OCD today because of the uh, technical problems we're having. So you're not. Okay. No, I, no, I, I, I'm, uh, no, I took off the speaker. If that creates a problem for you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, I'm honored that you, you came on the show. You are unabashedly a conservative. I think you're still a Republican. You're a constitutional scholar. You and Ralph did a series of episodes for the Ralph Nader Radio Hour delineating why Donald Trump should be impeached. You're not a fan of Donald Trump. And well, I don't let me if I could interject sure, here. It's not it, it's I'm not a fan of people who flout the Constitution. Uh, I don't have any personal animosity towards Mr. Trump. It's about institutions and following the norms that are required in a Republican form of government. Um, if he followed the Constitution, even if I didn't like how he played golf or a lot of other things, well, 
he's he's playing by the rules of the game. That's what's most important in the public sphere. Uh, so it isn't a, a personal thing. It's the fact that anybody who flouts the Constitution, and I'm notorious for having complained against both Republicans and Democrats and sought their impeachments as presidents or vice presidents for flouting the Constitution. Simple as that. There are no That's the one unity, unifying force we have in our country. We have a loyalty oath to one star, the United States Constitution. Anyway, go Did our founding, I, I, I felt compelled I, I, to make that interjection. Yeah, please. Oh, no, thank you. Did our founding fathers see impeachment as good or bad for the country? And did they anticipate the executive branch being this powerful? Uh, I don't know whether, you know, they anticipated how frequent impeachment would be used. Um, it was used the very first time there was impeachment uh, in the second or third Congress when there was a senator, uh, Blount, uh, from Tennessee who uh, allegedly was engaged in corruption in a Indian expeditions out in the West. He was expelled from the Senate, and then they decided they wouldn't go forward with impeachment since he'd already been expelled. Uh, after the House impeached him, the Senate said, we're not going to do a trial. He's already expelled. So it's not like it's it's it laying uh, uh, dormant you know, for hundreds of years and then cropped up with Richard Nixon. Right. Uh, it's, it's obviously not something that was expected to be reused routinely because the idea is that once it's used and has given teeth, the people don't flout the Constitution. They don't commit impeachable offenses. Right. Uh, and we've had, uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, more recently, I think, uh, egregious abuses of power uh, in the executive branch, uh, which was the branch most feared by the framers, even when uh, the size of the government was literally a, a little tiny acorn compared to the giant oak it is today. Mm-hmm. and exercise tiny powers compared with a military power, the trillions of dollars of budgets, millions of employees and federal contractors. So the, the potential for abuses of executive power are exponentially greater today than then, and they would have expected that the exactitude which they would demand of the executive in complying with the Constitution would be commensurately greater. Unfortunately, the Congress has basically abdicated their role as a check on the executive. They don't even enforce subpoenas anymore against the executive or demand information. Surrendered the war power, the surveillance power, the power of the person, a whole host of other things, limitless delegations of legislative authority, so that uh, the executive now, in my judgment, routinely engages in what the framers would have thought to be impeachable offenses, but Congress basically does nothing because they're complicit in them. They encourage the impeachable offenses because they give away their power, and then the president abuses the power uh, that they've given away, and Congress, it's like the the parent complaining about the teenager who uh, drives the car after he's given the keys and told, you know, the gas of gasoline is full. Right. And what do you think is going to happen? Right. Um, so that's where we are. That's why the impeachment power is seldom used, although, in my judgment, but the uh, the frequency of impeachable offenses has has risen dramatically and almost in a frightening vertical climb over the last uh, many decades. Let me ask you how you see this playing out. I'll first tell you what I've been through this week. I never thought Trump would leave. I never thought I, I I'd still believe. Well, initially I was surprised by how confident my Democratic friends 
were that Biden was going to be the next president because Trump has thrown out every norm since he ran for president. Uh, I was on the Ralph Nader radio hour on Wednesday and I asked Ralph, why do you seem so confident that Trump is going to go? And Ralph was the first person when, when Trump came down the escalator, Ralph said, do not discount, do not dismiss this man. He's very wily. Don't underestimate him. But he said, no, there's nothing to worry about. Trump is going. I thought, really, really? Because they've got me spooked. And I reached out to you and you agree with Ralph that that Trump is going to go. You are absolutely convinced that. And I'm beginning to see that today. I didn't see it yesterday, but I'm beginning to see cracks in his wall. From from election night or when they declared him Biden the winner on Saturday, did you have any doubt that Biden was going to be the next president? Well, I was just waiting for the votes to be counted and for the lawsuits to conclude. And my confidence that the the Trump administration will leave quietly is because no matter what the president himself thinks, uh, overwhelmingly the the uh, the elections and the counting and the balloting uh, has gone remarkably smoothly. There was relatively tiny you know, incidents isolated of violence, uh, contrary to my belief that it, there could be something far more um, tremulous. Uh, and th- the votes are clearly in favor of Biden, uh, not only nationally, but in the battleground states. Uh, even if you uh, assume all of the allegedly contested votes uh, go for Trump, he's still far short of changing the outcome. So, and, and also, there's just no movement. You know, there's nothing in, other than just being a child and, and, and juvenile and saying we're not going to cooperate with the transition. Nothing's going on, you know, and, and, and really you're going to think you're going to get the Defense Department on your side by firing the DOD chief, right, and putting somebody acting and all these people who are juniors. If you're really thinking about a military coup, there's nothing that he's done. And even even with regard to the the uh, the Republican Party, you got Republicans in, in uh, Pennsylvania, the state legislature saying, you know what, we are not going to try to displace the popularly elected state electors through some state legislative coup d'etat. We're not going to do it. A Republican law firm out in Arizona withdrew from challenging the vote count there because it was so frivolous. Um, so it's not that all the Republicans have abandoned Trump, but a very, very large number have. And it's clear to the people who have actually um, uh, participated and followed the news that, yeah, the vote was fair. And when it comes to actually providing evidence, uh, this Trump administration has nothing. Now, they do make claims, well, there weren't vote counters or poll watchers in sufficient places, but they haven't been able to say that the result of, uh, of that shortage of poll watchers resulted in a single illegal vote. And in the cases that they've come up with, like the postal worker in Pennsylvania, he said he just made up this idea that the post-dating of, uh, of ballots was at the instruction of some supervisor. Well, I didn't really hear it. There were just fragments, and maybe I just invented the other things because they wanted Trump to win. 
So that's the kind of shady evidence there is. And it certainly doesn't even come close to amounting to massive fraud, systematic fraud. Insofar as there's confusion and you're going to have errors, and of course you are. These are largely volunteers who do the vote counting, who do the, the, uh, the processing here. Uh, uh, but there's no indication that confusion is pro-Biden or pro-Trump. You know, it probably hurts both candidates equally. It doesn't kind of doesn't nullify the outcome of the election. Uh, and I'm Washington, D.C., near the White House, near Congress, walk by the Capitol Police every day. No, there's no sense of, of, of fear or tension that somehow uh, Trump's going to walk away and, and refuse to leave. And if he did, I'm sure the Secret Service would escort him out in three seconds, and he'd have zero support. You know, certainly from the, the, the government, maybe some of the supporters, you know, in, in, in Alaska would, would clap, but, uh, he would be ousted very quickly. The other thing that he has to be concerned about is that if he is obstreperous, the likelihood that he'll be pursued criminally is going to be far greater. There'll be very little sympathy for him. Um, and, uh, certainly even the prospect of a pardon, you know, uh, by a Mike Pence at the 11th hour goes down the drain. Uh, because Pence wouldn't risk his entire political career, aside from the fact that he can't pardon himself or punts from state crimes, which are under investigation in New York and perhaps other states later on. So all those things, you know, when you put them all together, it, for me, creates a calmness. I have no doubt, and I've gone on and stated repeatedly, no, on January 20th, Mr. Biden is going to be next president of the United States. With the Reverend Barry W. Lynn from Americans United for Separation Church and State is on the show. And he wanted me to say hello to you. The two of oh. you have, have debated in the past. <laughs> yes. And uh, he's a great, great man. And may, who knows, maybe I can talk you into debating him and we can actually have a, a, a rational conversation debate yeah well the, yeah the supreme court does have there they've taken a lot of uh, cases on the docket concerning uh separation of church and state and freedom of religion and whether they they want to get rid of this 1990 decision out of their uh from justice scalia about uh not having a, a suspect classification because it has an undue impact on a religious exercise but that would right. be wonderful yeah. there is just a wonderful person i i, I highly respect him and I think it would be very enlightening for the for the public, yeah. uh, especially since the Supreme Court has taken many of these cases just in the last couple terms and have them on the docket this term. That would be great. I, I would I would love that. He, he said to me, you are one of the rare, rare conservatives who actually <laughs> believe in the Constitution. And I started <laughs> laughing. I thought, OK, this could be uh, Ralph says I have to Ralph says I have to get rid of my yuck factor that, that uh -huh. if somebody doesn't agree with me i have to stop saying yuck so he had a question the reverend barry w lynn he's going to be on okay. later and you kind of touched on it he wanted to know what the pardon powers were for the president can the president here here were here were the questions can the president pardon himself is he able to pardon himself from letitia james and cyrus vance in new york and can you give a blanket pardon to your family for crimes that haven't you haven't yet been charged for? Okay, uh, let's go through them. One, right. uh, the issue first became crystallized uh, during the Nixon ordeal in Watergate. And I was there in the Office of Legal Counsel. Uh, my supervisor, I was a special assistant to Assistant Attorney General. Mary Lawton was then acting Assistant Attorney General, and she wrote an opinion. 1975 saying president cannot pardon himself because it violates the fundamental axiom 
going back thousands of years that no man can be a judge in his own case. And the pardon of yourself is precisely being a judge in your own case. Uh, so that, and that's the opinion of office legal counsel. It's never been retracted. Uh, but as I say, the office legal counsel is not a court of law. Doesn't mean that the president isn't bound to follow the office legal counsel. So that's, but that's the only, uh, official opinion, uh, given, uh, but it's an official opinion of the executive branch, not a judicial officer. Uh, if you ask, uh, so he, he could try it, but it would be risky, is all I'm saying. The, the safer constitutional alternative, if they're not political, uh, barriers would be for him just before, uh, his term expires to resign, uh, and let, uh, Michael Pence, uh, issue him a pardon. Uh, now, as you indicated, the, the pardon, however, could not extend to state crimes. Uh, the pardon power only extends to offenses against the United States of America. Can you give a blanket? And, Can you say, I pardon you for any crime you may have committed? Yes. If you look at President Ford's pardon proclamation for Nixon, he pardoned him for any crimes during the period he held office in the presidency. Uh, he didn't you know, go through the United States Code and try to identify them. So that's been customary. Now, remember, it, it cannot, however, a pardon cannot pardon future crimes. <laughs> Again, say you, know, you can be an outlaw forever and everyone can punish you. Uh, so that's not possible. It's not possible to pardon from state crimes. But can, you be pardoned, can you be pardoned for crimes that you committed in the past but have yet to be uncovered? Yes, that's correct. And that happened in the Nixon case right. where he wasn't charged. Because the, the pardon was a hey, any any crime committed during this period, whether it's known or not, if it fell within the time period of his tenure in the White House, uh, was uh, was pardoned. Uh, and you can read the the text that Gerald Ford prepared in issuing that pardon. I see. You know, if you're if you're white and you're a man and you're not in a cage or you're not behind bars or you don't have COVID nineteen and you're not lacking health insurance, you can easily be, easily be lulled back to sleep the way many were when Nixon resigned and say, the system works, the system works. I don't believe the system works. Do you believe that the system worked, that, that, that we played it out and the Constitution has some loopholes, but... It still holds up. Do you think the the system, if if Biden takes the oath of office when he takes? No, the no, oath? no. The system is broken. We're off of my my view is we're off of constitutional life support. It, it's dead. Um, is and the Constitution it have anything dead? The, yeah, is the, the Constitution is dead. Do we need a new Constitution? No, we need to enforce it. It's simply it's totally ignored. There's so many impeachable offenses that go you know unredressed and unacknowledged. Say. The power of the purse, the legislation that that uh, is you know, the legis right now the legislation is thirty times more uh, prominent coming out of the executive branch through legislative rulemaking by delegations than it is in the in the in the Congress uh, in, in the Affordable Care Act. Congress said, well, when it comes to preventive care, preventive care must cover everything that HHS decides should cover. No 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 standards. They just give away the whole bill, and then when it comes to the really serious stuff. 
going to war. The president does it on his own. There's no congressional involvement at all, even though 100% of the framers believed only Congress could take us from peace to war. 100%, whether it's Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, Jefferson, George Washington, name them all. 100% understood that. And indeed, it was so understood in the time of 1920 that the Versailles Treaty was voted down because it said the president could take us to war on his own under that treaty, you know, defend any border anywhere in the world that was subject to aggression. Uh, but that's, that's why we're in seven, eight, nine unconstitutional wars. They're endless. And, and people were worried, well, maybe uh, Trump can start a war in Iran. Really? He doesn't have it. He hasn't had power in 230 years. But the conventional wisdom in Congress operates on that wisdom is no. The president can go to war on his own. So they introduced bills to say the president can't initiate nuclear war on his own. I said, why do you need that? It's been prohibited for 230 years because the Constitution's war power. Uh, it belongs only to Congress. And the surveillance system, the executive orders authorizing us to, you know, the president, to, the executive branch to spy on us all. We don't even know exactly what the spying is. There's no oversight. The, the president flouts the congressional subpoenas with impunity. So we have secret government. We don't really know what's going on. It gets so absurd that when there was a secret, so-called a secret peace deal with Taliban in Afghanistan, even the Congress did, was told, you, we're not going to tell you what the plan is, you know. You know, only only Taliban knows what it is, right. and Congress does. Congress does nothing. You know, if you don't have any oversight, you don't have any information. You're you're totally powerless. You don't know what's going on. So and then the president, you know, he 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 spends money. You know, takes robs money from the Federal Emergency Management Agency and spends it on unemployment insurance. He takes military construction money and decides to build a wall. You know, with Mexico. All this stuff is flouted every single day. He flouts his obligation to faithfully execute the laws. He must have violated the Hatch Act, you know, 20 times in the 2020 campaign, commandeering federal employees and federal property to advance his 2020 campaign. It's endless. It's totally endless. And Congress sits there and, and does nothing. So we're already broken. Uh, we, are, we, have a, we have a monarchical government. Both whether you have a Republican or Democrat in the White House. Already you have, you know, Biden saying, okay, well, I'll just buy, do by executive order if, if McConnell's gonna, gonna control the Senate and we can't get bills through that I want through both houses, I'll just do by executive order. You know? right. Well, wait a minute. Yeah, that's, you, you don't change the rules of the game and go home as a sore loser. You gotta get the votes to go out there. That's how the process works. Otherwise, you're setting the stage for your successor to undo everything you did. And that's the problem we've had. The presidents, whether Democrat or Republican, they just keep building up precedents of their predecessors. And the executive branch grows bigger and bigger, stronger and stronger, more and more powerful. And Congress becomes an inkblot, which is really what they are these days. Madeleine Albright, the former Secretary of State, has a new book out called Fascism. And she says that authoritarians succeed when everybody in a culture has lost faith in the institutions. You have lost faith in some of the institutions. What if we are ripe for some kind of military coup? What role? Well, I, I, no, I think we already are. Yeah, I, there's no doubt in my mind that if a president stood up, any president, Trump, Biden, Obama, W, said, listen, we have to suspend the Congress and the judiciary. We are going to be subject to another attack. You know, and this, I'm, I want this to return to normalcy very fast. You know, the National Emergencies Act gives me 
limitless power to decide whether there's a national emergency, uh, and we just can't afford any of these these protections. You know, we'll be dead tomorrow. There'll be thousands of people, you know, killed by terrorist attacks. And I can't tell you why, but that's what my secret intelligence tells me. That's what's going to happen. I think that the American people and the government would go along with it, and Congress wouldn't do anything. The National Emergency Emergency Mm -hmm. Act, as I understand it, is only used to quell labor strikes, for the most part, or the (laughs) wall. You can use it for whatever you want. But traditionally, it's been to quell labor strikes, right? Well, I mean, there's, there were, the National Emergency Act of 1976 is open-ended. It doesn't have any standards. You know, you could say a national emergency is COVID-19, it's illegal immigration, it's climate change, it's unemployment, whatever you want. So he basically hands over national emergency powers to the president to do whatever the heck he wants. So what there's is no, the stop? There's no limit. Okay, so let's say you're not an honorable man. Let's say mm-hmm. your you're money grubbing and you have all this knowledge and you believe everybody in this country deserves legal representation, even a fascist, and you're brought in to advise Donald Trump. What could you find right now to legally aid him in in a takeover that would not legally be called a coup d'etat? Or, or is that just out of your you no, I just think these are these are illegal. You you cannot. It's ill, it's unconstitutional to give away your power to another branch. You know that was the line item veto case where the U.S. Supreme Court said Congress can't give the line item veto to the president because it flouts the uh, the. Uh, uh, resentment clause. It's uh, there's certain there's certain powers that it's unconstitutional to give away, and that's what happened here. The National Emergency Act, all these un- limitless delegations, in my view, every one of them is unconstitutional. Wait, but the president these, doesn't have a line item veto yet. He has a, a signing statement, but he doesn't. No, have no, well, he does. No, but 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 the Congress tried to give him a line item veto, but the Congress has given them. Well, okay, you can go to war whenever you feel like it's inappropriate. You can spy when you feel like it's inappropriate. You can go ahead and and issue. Rules and regulations in order to you know help the economy, help the environment, whatever, with virtually no standards whatsoever. As I told you, as an example, in the Affordable Care Act, when it came to prescribing coverage for preventive care, the Congress just said, "Whatever the president wants is what it is. It can be broad or narrow. Whoever happens to be president, no guidelines at all." That's giving away all of the legislative power to the executive, which is exactly what the framers did not want. The executive is engaged in extreme. They don't have any checks there. They don't have a broad spectrum represented. The executive is, is it represents the, the winner of the election. It doesn't have the openness and, and sunshine that you have in Congress or the spectrum of opinion. So it doesn't have compromise and a moderating influence that a congressional process has. And it's horrible. You know, combining the executive and the legislative power. What separation of powers uh, James Madison and Mont- Montesquieu called uh, the definition of tyranny. And Congress continues to give away the, the, all this limitless power. The COVID-19 legislation, limitless power to the president to hand out the, the money to whatever industries he wanted to favor at the time and making up rules on the, on the, on the, on the spot. Okay. Bill Barr. Uh... You know, it's too easy for my side to hate Bill Barr. Does does he think he's winding down the Trump presidency? Did he come in and say, look, I'm going to protect the executive branch. But I'm uh, and I'm but I'm going to wind I'm going to 
be kind of like his personal attorney, but I'm going to wind down this nightmare with the with the executive branch still intact. Is that what he's thinking? No, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I knew Bill Barr way back in Reagan administration. He wasn't at Justice then. He was over in the executive offices. Um, Bill Barr generally, he he really does believe that all power in the government belongs in the executive branch. You know, limitless power. He's telling Bush he didn't need to get any authorization to go to war in Iraq. Um, This is the the first Persian Gulf War. And he's always believed that Congress, you know, should just stay out of the executive branch's business. Um, it, It never changed. Uh, and I think that, to be candid, we're talking about people who are uh, afflicted with uh, a high sense of narcissism. And you remember he kind of campaigned to be attorney general by writing this unsolicited memo saying, hey, really, you know, Mueller shouldn't be investigating you for obstruction of justice or this and that, right. with his rather cockeyed interpretation of the obstruction of justice statutes. So he's there so he can get the limelight. You know, he didn't have anything to do in his life. He got wealthy working for big corporations, uh, and so he, he felt, and, and I think, to be candid, Trump basically says, I'd like to be president because everybody looks at me, you know? It's far more less boring than real estate transactions. So you're dealing with people who have a very, very juvenile sense of psychology and maturity, mm-hmm. uh, and you're, you're searching for far more profound reasons as to why they would come to office than the ones that immediately come to mind. Oh. You get in the newspapers. You get to be famous. People pay attention to you. Who, when Bill Barr, before he was attorney general, you know, he was a zero. Whoever asked Bill Barr about anything, you know, other than once a year. Didn't yeah. he pardon? Wasn't he responsible for a lot of the pardons that came out of the, out of Contragate? And didn't you? When George Herbert Walker Bush? Well, he was there. Yeah, that was the, the last. The, yeah, he, he pardoned all the, the contragate uh, defendants. H.W. Bush did, even though he probably because he was complicit in, in some of these meetings uh, determining you know, the Iran-Contra affair. Uh, but he was the he, yeah, he was the attorney general uh, when those pardons were issued by uh, by H.W. So Bush. Knows. But I think H.W. Bush wanted them more than more than Barr did. Among other things, Barley's wasn't implicated in the Iran Contra, but H.W. Bush, the vice president, was. But but Barr covered it up by issuing, helping issue those parts. Well, I mean, he, right? Well, well, well I, I suppose you could say he helped cover up. But I would, I, to my mind, more blame belongs to the president for issuing the pardons right. than than uh, because you can't force the president to issue a pardon if he doesn't want to. <laughs> so he is an expert on pardons, Bill Barr. We will see. We will see lots of pardons before you go. Thank you so much for doing this. Let me throw you uh, a a question that has nothing to do with anything other than the the revolving door in Washington, D.C., which we all know is is a serious problem. We can't get rid of lobbyists and influence peddlers. I had somebody from the revolving door project on the show Tuesday And while I was talking to him, I came up with an idea. But because I'm not a lawyer, I'm an idiot. I'm a child. uh, It's so crazy that I he he just wouldn't acknowledge it. And I wanted to run it by Ralph because Ralph says that when you go to law school now, they teach you lawlessness. They don't teach you how to uphold the law. They teach you how to circumvent the law. And then you have people like Mary Jo White, who works 
for a while as a prosecutor and then starts, you know, she learns the tricks of the trade so she can go defend people who violate security laws. And you have Rudy Giuliani, who used to supposedly brought down the mafia and now he's defending the mafia. And I asked, and this seems like a great idea to me, but I'm a child, I'm an idiot. Wouldn't you get rid of the revolving door if there were two separate bar exams, one for prosecutors and one for defense attorneys, so that in order for Rudy Giuliani to now become a defense attorney, he'd have to go study for a bar that he couldn't pass. It's a miracle he passed the bar in the first place. Wouldn't that solve the problem of lawyers working for the Justice Department learning their trade secrets and then using those trade secrets against our Justice Department defending corporations? Shouldn't there be two separate bar exams? Well, first of all, there's nothing that uh, it's not unusual for people who have been defense lawyers who come into the government and become prosecutors. It's not just a one way street. Uh, so they can still use their prosecute their their experience in government to go back and even be better defense lawyers. So you're assuming that the only people who come into government are prosecutors. That isn't true. Okay. Um, secondly, secondly, you know the bar exam is not all that difficult. You know, for you. They could, yeah. Well, <laughs> no, you're not very difficult for me. That's true. But I don't think it. it you don't have to be you know SAT 800 and 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 graduate at the top of your class at Harvard Law School in order to pass the bar. You know, we have a huge number of lawyers. It isn't. It simply isn't demanding enough. You know, to prevent lawyers who are reasonably skilled to sit down and for a couple months and, and memorize whatever you need to memorize. You remember the bars have an incentive to get larger rather than smaller because they like the fees mm-hmm. that they the annual bar dues. You know, they right. they, they they benefit from that. Um, moreover, there's another problem, and that is, you know, most of the the way that Giuliani now. It defends. He doesn't. He doesn't defend by by making an appearance in a court of law. It's all behind the scenes. It's it's lobbying at the highest level, meeting right. with the attorney general, the president, and in your approach doesn't have anything to do with that. Um, def- a licensing would mean when you actually make notice your appearance in a court of law, um, and he, you can you can hugely you know, help uh, defendants, health right. bank, you know, uh, Erdogan or whatever without ever sticking your name on a notice of appearance. Uh, so I, I think, although it's a, it's a nice idea, it, it, it misses the mark in terms of what is the source of, of the evil here and how it's executed. So I'm a child. <laughs> no, I don't say it's a child. Listen, is there are there never any bad questions. There are only bad answers, right? Oh, you always really? ask questions. Yeah, yeah. I always tell so, my kids. I always told my kids there are no bad questions, just bad students. But I guess I. <laughs> no, no, no. Questions are always useful. You know, it refines refines thinking. I never ask. Tell somebody not to ask a question. I want. You don't understand. There's nothing nothing to be embarrassed about. That's how we learn. Trial I, and error. I want to introduce you to our next guest because I think the two of you should meet and do a show together. Bruce Fine is a former deputy attorney general for the Reagan White House, former general counsel of the FCC. He is a constitutional scholar who has worked with the American Heritage uh, 
uh, uh, the, I can't even say their names, <laughs> the American Enterprise and American Heritage. And this is Ben Burgess. He's a philosophy professor. He's written several books, including Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. He's a columnist for Jacobin. And Ben, Professor Ben, debates everybody. I mean, he goes into the he goes with he takes on gutter snipes. And uh -huh. the two of you should know each other. I met he was on Ralph's show and uh -huh. Bruce Fine is I, I'm not going to say Ralph's. I know that Ralph is always quoting you. Uh, so I'd like to. Is it okay if I give uh, exchange emails with? Yeah, of course. Yeah, give, yeah. you can give him my contact information. That'd yeah. be wonderful. Great, thank you. Uh, you know what? I would love you to come back next week. Thank you. Uh, you calmed me down because I was genuinely uh, nervous about what Trump was going to get away with. So uh, thank you, yeah. Bruce. Fine. Why don't we plug your Twitter and your? You're on Parlor, right? I'm a parlor. I, I have I have a Twitter account. It's at Bruce Fine Esquire. But I, they can also just put my name in and find parlor posts as well. And before you go, there's been a great migration to parlor since the election. Has it changed in yeah. the past week? Well, I can sure know. I, I can tell on the number of views I get on my my submissions that it's grown. Yeah. I don't want to sound boast. I mean, one of my submissions got 4.8 million views. It said, wow, <laughs> I must have done something wrong. <laughs> I attracted that number. <laughs> and you, and as, as a, I, I, well, you know, I think you know me well enough, and yeah. I have very little respect for your side. I have respect for you, uh, but I find your side to be, I don't find any honest interlocutors on your side. Can you name any who are gen, I, I know that you're genuinely concerned about the constitution, but to me, there just seems to be people playing the margins to move the Koch brothers agenda ahead. Mm -hmm. Are there honest People on parlor. So I, 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 I I resist the idea of, of giving other people report cards. You know, I say you know, right. no one's no one's a saint, uh, including myself. That Ralph you go is. around and tell other people. Ralph hey, is a saint. Ralph, Ralph, Ralph is a saint. I agree with that he Ralph really is. is. Yeah. I mean, but I'm not. Yeah, but Ralph is a saint. Yes. Uh, uh, so I, I gen so I, I, I'll plead. I, I just resist that. I just, I believe. Uh, that uh, it's better to speak, uh, even if uh, I think it's, it's not as well thought out as it might be, uh, that because speech can be therapeutic, you can always learn something, uh, even if you disagree with it. So I never want to discourage people. They encourage people to criticize anything that I say. Uh, sometimes I learn from it. Sometimes I say, well, it's not very right. well thought out. But listen, that's how we have civilization. Let's engage in in, in, in discourse, and even if the can be sometimes uh, feisty, uh, it's better than AK-47s and guns and, and, and using physical violence. Well, so. uh, and that's that's really, really critical. So I never, never, never tell anybody, hey, don't, even if they want to use epithets, obscenities, okay, that's all right. Uh, just make sure that you keep it on the verbal plane. Uh, that's uh, uh, part of civilization. People disagree, but uh, violence and physical force is a whole different category. I read somewhere your brother's a socialist. Well, I had an older brother, a Trotskyite. In fact, Trotsky, I think, would be too too conservative for him. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> that must have been some kitchen table growing up. Yeah, well, yeah. Thank you. Uh, ships passing in the night. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Bruce. Have a Fine. wonderful day. I hope you come okay. back. Thank you so much. It's an honor. Okay. Thank you. Joining Bye-bye. us in Georgia, where the vote continues. No, you're in Michigan. Where are you? Uh, yeah, I'm in Michigan. I was in Georgia. Like that's any better. <laughs> Actually, Michigan is better than Georgia. These yeah, days. Uh, Biden won Michigan by 150,000 votes, um, which is actually kind of funny because, uh, you know, my wife and I moved back to Michigan recently because uh, we are both teaching online for the rest of the year. So uh, it was cheaper to do this. And I, I thought at the time, it's like, oh, this is great because um, I'm sure the election, you know, be like much tighter in Michigan than Georgia, so it's it's better that we'll be here anyway. The vote will go further, and right. then it, it turned out not to be the case. Right. Well, they say that if there's any state that's ripe for tampering, it's Michigan. I guess there is some kind of Republican-controlled election board over there that can, if they want to, reverse the will of the people. But that's for another conversation. Very quickly, let me introduce Ben Burgess. He is the author of Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. That's also the name of his podcast, which you can watch on YouTube. You had a great interview with Glenn Greenwald. That was fascinating. It's up there right now. You're a philosophy professor and you're a columnist for Jacobin. You have two pieces in Jacobin that are fantastic. And I want to talk to you about that in a second. But I need to calm down. Because I've had technical difficulties today. Remember I was showing you this amazing piece of software that can make your YouTube stream look like it's CNN? Remember Mm -hmm. I was showing you that? Mm -hmm. Well, it completely screwed up everything I'm trying to do. (laughs) And I I almost had it working and... Now I got nothing. I have I, like I can barely get the sound out today. So, do you get frustrated with tools? Are you good with? Oh technology? yeah, all the time. And but you're bright. You're smart. I mean, you can point. You can I mean, prove to people that you're stuff smart. Like that. What? Oh no, I'm, I'm a complete idiot about stuff like that. Like last night, my wife and I were um, assembling like a fan. You know, like like that they uh, that we'd ordered in the mail, and. You know, and there was a point where we we're like trying to put it together, and she was like, "What? What does this mean?" I was like, "Why are you asking me? You know that I, you know that I'm beyond clueless uh, about stuff like this." And so often the tech support stuff, I'm the same way. And does your mood change? Because I've noticed <laughs> I'm being I, I, I'm ashamed to say this, and then we'll start. I, I just need to unwind because it was a very stressful first hour of this show. Uh, there can, as I understand it, we're going to be close to half a million dead Americans because of COVID. We're, we're, we were facing a potential coup d'etat. But if you asked David Feldman what made him upset was he couldn't get his ecam technology to work. And I, 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 I'm ashamed to admit this, but I, I, I feel no, I, mean, that's, I need you know, full disclosure. I'm in this bubble and I'm reading about all this stuff that's going on in the world that I find upsetting. But if somebody <laughs> could come in and fix my computer needs, I'd be a happy guy. What does that say about it? I'm a detestable human being, right? Yeah. No, I hate you. Uh, yeah, I don't know. 
when you say we're facing a potential coup d'etat, like, do you mean that, like, uh, in the sense that you could call, like, Bush v. Gore, like, a sort of soft coup or a lawfare coup, do you mean that we're facing that kind of coup d'etat or we're facing, like, a real, literal, like, Bolivia kind of coup d'etat? Well, Bolivia, well, how wouldn't, uh, would they say, or what's going on in Peru right now, where they, the speaker of the, or the Senate leader has taken over? Those are what, hard coups or soft coups? It's all how you frame well, these I things. mean, I'm less familiar with the Peru example, but like Bolivia, that's like a classic, like, you know, the military says the president has to leave, uh, you know, and and I, I have to say that kind of coup, again, if you want to call Bush v. Gore a coup, uh, I, I mean, I'm not going to fight you on that. I think that it's I think that it's certainly, you know, certainly if the courts are overturning the will of the people, that's a terrible thing. Uh, but uh, I think that the the real like tanks in the street kind of coup, um, I mean, I know that there were some people who, who really think that, that they I saw a lot of that on, on like my Twitter timeline after uh, Esper, you know, Trump dis ditched Esper and there were people were saying, you know, that he was feeling the Pentagon was Trump loyalists. And there seemed to be some alarmism about the idea of like literal cuckoo. And I have to say, I don't see it. Uh, I think retired four star uh, general Barry McCaffrey warned we are watching uh -huh. a slow moving Trump coup. Yeah, uh, I mean, I don't know if you buy that. Like, I, I don't I, I really don't. I think that I think that if Trump. You know, I no look, longer buy I mean, it. I no longer buy it. But I was very here's what I was nervous about. And that's why we had Bruce Fine on. Yeah. I never thought that Trump would concede. I knew he would. I don't think he's going to show up for the inauguration. And right. I genuinely believe that not only is he fighting for his life because the only way he can stay out of prison and or not get whacked by the oligarchs he owes money to is to stay in office. I think that's changing. I think he's beginning to see business opportunities as an ex-president. I think he might be able to pay off his debts, but I don't know if he can stay out of prison. I, I mean, I mean, we don't generally, I mean, not generally, like we don't uh, prosecute ex-presidents in this country. Um, you know, Nixon, Bush, you know, like, like the, you know, Ford parted Nixon, Obama said that even, you know, they're like CIA torturers, never mind Bush himself for, for lying about the pretext for the Iraq war. We're like, actually even, rooting for Gina Haspel right now. The head of the CIA, who who hid the evidence for waterboarding. This is how we all get complicit in the venality. We're now rooting for Gina Haspel because Donald Trump is threatening to fire her because she won't out some Russian agents to prove that Putin had nothing to do with 2016. So I'm, come on, don't fire G poor Gina Haspel. She's a patriot. This is how we all become complicit in all this. Yeah, well, yeah, the point is just that, I mean, I think, there, I think recent history suggests that Trump doesn't have a lot to worry about. I mean, I guess it's possible that he could be, um, that like, if like the New York state prosecutors want to go after him for stuff that he did before he was president, that might happen. 
I think that like the Justice Department going after him for anything he did as president. I think that, you know, the precedent's been set and set and set that we just don't do that in the United States. Uh, whereas uh, if he actually did attempt a real, like literal military coup, then best case scenario for him would be going to jail. Uh, and so it's it's not that I think that Trump would like have scruples about it. I mean, I don't think he would, um, you know, Matt Taibbi has a great line about this, about how, you know, Trump wouldn't morally object uh, to doing a coup, but two minutes into discussing it with his generals, he would get bored and leave and go watch TV. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that the truth behind that is that, uh, you know, I, I think I think that Trump, you know, I don't think he'd morally object to it, but I think that he is way too self-serving and cowardly uh, to do something that would have extreme risk to him personally and be very unlikely to pay off, which, which a military coup would. Um, and honestly, I don't know. I mean, like, maybe this is going too far in the direction of, like, I mean, I'm sure that he wouldn't, like, if somebody just found some way of dumping it on his lap that he still got to be president, I'm sure he would take it. But, I mean, I don't know. Don't you think there's part of him that's relieved about not having to do this anymore? It, 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 it always seemed in 2016 like he didn't, he didn't really want it, you know, that it was, it was like, I mean, I always thought, you know, that, uh, that he, was, he was doing this to raise his profile, maybe get a better TV show, Prove something, you know. Because well, it, to the people you have a cat, correct? You have a cat. Yeah. What is your cat's yeah. name? Shabazz. I'm sorry. What's the cat's name? Shabazz. Shabazz. Did, was that what? What? Oh, I'm thinking. What was? Is that Malcolm X's? Why? Yeah. Is that what the cat's named after? Uh, not, cat? not immediately. No, the, the cat is named after a basketball player, but it doesn't matter. Okay. So trying to figure out what Trump is thinking is equivalent to looking at Shabazz's cat box that hasn't been emptied and trying to figure out what the 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 butt the gut biome in her stools are thinking. I can't I don't know what Trump is thinking. I've given up. Well, that's that's extremely fair. Uh, but I'm less concerned about a coup. I, I think there have been enough cracks in the past 24 hours. And I've heard from uh, enough people to assure me that the yeah, center, I mean, I mean, plus, the center like, will hold. I mean, who's going to stick their neck out for this guy? Like, like, like what, a, like, like the generals and stuff, like what's in it for them? And, and even like, I'm not even sure. Uh, yeah, that's the one, Shabazz Napier. Uh, they, I'm not even, um, you know, like like I didn't even really see like the um, like even even if one of his frivolous lawsuits you know made it all the way up to the you know his six three Supreme Court, um, they already got what they wanted from this guy, right? They they got their Supreme Court majority for you know a generation. Um, I mean, I don't know why they would piss away you know like their their public credibility. Uh, for, for his sake, I mean, like they're going to need, you know, they're going to need some some goodwill for whenever they rule in, you know, 15 years that Medicare for all is unconstitutional. Right. Well, let's talk about your two pieces over at Jacobin. Yeah. You have two pieces in Jacobin in the past week. And as my mother would say, only two. You only wrote two pieces. You say in and I'll link to this over the, West, uh, the website, no honeymoon for Joe Biden. 
It's good that Donald Trump lost, but the left now needs to pivot immediately to opposition to the Joe Biden administration. No honeymoon, none whatsoever. So what are the warning signs right now? Kasich, is Kasich going to be sitting in the cabinet? Uh yeah, yeah, Kasich. Uh, well, I mean, look, Kasich has been talked about for for a Charlie Dent. You right? Char- who was Charlie Dent? Uh, Charlie Dent. Uh, Charlie Dent is a former congressman uh, who a Republican congressman who retired in 2018, um, and immediately there's a legally mandated one year cooling off period between leaving Congress and uh, becoming a lobbyist. And the day the cooling off period was over, he registered as a lobbyist. The clients that he disclosed when he registered were pharma companies and private insurance providers. Uh, Kasich, of course, as the Republican governor of Ohio before he became a resistance hero for criticizing Trump, uh, was a notorious you know, anti-union guy as governor. Uh, and so all of this makes me think that, you know, if you're... Um, yeah, I wouldn't recommend going on a honeymoon with Biden. Uh, if you um, if you think that oh, somebody's Biden reading, are you is, reading the chat room? I, I did. Yes. OK. Uh, I, I know how you feel about that. But uh, sometimes, you know, the it's, not, it's, it's not it's not a feeling. This is what I know. It's not what I feel. It's okay. what I know. These people are animals. Go ahead. Fair enough. Fair you're, enough. You're uh, very so, myopic uh, to read. Read them. They're trying to throw you off your game. They're not here to help. They're here to undermine you. (laughs) They're the cool kids. These are the Professor Ben Burgess. Let me explain to you what my chat room is. Remember when you were going to high school? You have a you have a doctorate, right? Remember the kids in the parking lot who did drugs and, and smoked and and wanted you to join them, but you were busy in the library. That's who the chat room is. They they want to drag you down. They don't want you to become a PhD. Well, um, we'll have to have a conversation someday about my actual high school experience, I, uh, uh, which uh, which might be a little bit different than what you're imagining. But, uh, okay. uh, but in any case. All right. So Kasich um, was a union busting governor. Yeah, look. I, is, I mean, is, people is, like. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, since I wrote the article, the last couple of days, there have been articles that have come out, uh, like one from the Associated Press, uh, reporting that, you know, since, of course, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have both been angling for, for cabinet positions uh, very openly. You know, Bernie is once uh, secretary, Warren wants to be secretary of the Treasury. And, you know, the leaks that have been coming out are saying that none of that's going to happen. And I heard uh, he was going to be, uh, I heard Bernie was a shoo-in for labor secretary, and Amy Klobuchar is being considered for attorney general and or agricultural secretary. That would be a disgrace, correct? If Amy Klobuchar became attorney general? I mean, I would guess Amy Klobuchar, like my, yeah, Amy Klobuchar might, right? Like that would be, like that's within the realm of political possibility. I tend to think that she won't just because like she seems to um, that would be too much success for Amy Klobuchar. But um, in uh, in any case, who was tougher uh, on black teens, Amy Klobuchar or Kamala Harris? I I would assume Vice President Kamala Harris would be threatened by Amy Klobuchar as attorney general because Kamala Harris holds the record for locking up the most 
number of teen moms, right? Yeah. So look, obviously, um, the f- everything we know about the cabinet positions. By the way, if if Bi- if Biden were smarter, he would make Bernie the labor secretary because that would be the best way to neutralize him. Um, take him out of the Senate where he could actually be an oppositional voice and um, and make him, you know, beholden to uh, to the administration. But uh, I don't think he will. Right. Mm-hmm. Everything we know so far about who is and is not being seriously considered for cabinet positions um, really doesn't make it seem like the Biden administration is gearing up uh, to, um, you know, for any sort of like serious push for the kind of reforms that um, you know came like came out of those Bernie Biden you know task force meetings that are on Biden's website, um, and I also point out in the piece that we should remember that some of the good stuff that Biden says he'll do, right? So he says he'll expand Obamacare to the public option. Uh, he said he'll do card check, which would make it much easier to organize unions. He said he'd make um, uh, community college tuition free. Uh, two out of the three of those were things that Obama said that he was going to do when he ran for president in 2008. Um, By the way, free community college could be trans- yeah. could be transformative for this country. No, free community college would be amazing. No, yeah. no question about it. Um, and look, I mean, even um, certainly, you know, certainly card check would be great. Certainly. Uh, you know, public option, depending on what that meant in practice, you know, there are versions of that that range from just being kind of an expanded Medicaid buy-in to, um, you know, to something more expansive. But obviously I'm all for anything that, you know, gets more people healthcare. My problem with this is not just that I think that those, these things would be insufficient, though I certainly do, right? I mean, like we spent the primary arguing about stuff like this, you know, the difference between a public option and Medicare for all, uh, but that I think given the press, given the president of the Obama Biden administration, given the people that Biden is considering for his cabinet and just given um, given everything we know about Biden from his decades in the Senate and his eight years as vice president. I just don't see any reason to take seriously the idea that he's going to make a big push to make any of these things happen. And to be clear, it's not even necessarily that he's lying about this stuff, although, you know, whatever, that wouldn't be shocking. Um you know, but like whatever, like uh, like Obama, right, might have meant some of that stuff. Uh, but the problem is that even if you come in with a mild but genuine preference for doing some of these things, uh, that's a very different thing from being willing to burn up a whole bunch of political capital uh, and, you know, burn a lot of bridges uh, actually trying to make it happen when you get pushed up against the inevitable institutional resistance uh, that, that you're going to get, you know, if you actually tried to do anything that would mess seriously with the profits of the health insurance industry, uh, if you, um, you know, if you tried to create a major new entitlement with the community college thing, you know, if you really took on corporate America as a whole with the card check. Uh, I mean, look, by Obama, when he when he came to office, remember what else Obama said? This is hard to remember. But in 2008, he said that he was going to restore habeas corpus and protect whistleblowers. Uh, and what actually happened is that uh, he dramatically expanded uh, the drone war that, you know, he 
made a half-hearted attempt to close that one particular detention facility at Guantanamo Bay, but he uh, detained a lot of people in similar ways at other facilities like Bagram Air Force Base in Afghanistan. Uh, he pursued Edward Snowden around the world so aggressively that he actually uh, boarded the plane of a head of state, you know, to, to see if he was hiding there. Uh, so I think it was that, man, uh, I think it's the, uh, 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 what's his name? Uh, Columbia, not Columbia. Evo Morales. Morales. Yeah, we we're just talking about him. Yeah, right? Bolivia. Yeah, yeah, Bolivia. Yep. Uh, yeah, who's who's back, by the way? Right. Uh, which um, which is great, but um, you know, he locked Trump's up Bradley. Chelsea Manning. Chelsea Manning went into Chelsea Manning. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, prosecuted Chelsea Manning. Um, had uh, um, you know did. Um, you know, didn't prosecute Assange, although uh, although they thought about it, and uh, and uh, Vice President Biden referred to Assange as a high tech terrorist. Right. Uh, so, and the point is that okay, what was in Obama's head in two thousand eight when he was saying all these things? Who knows? Right. Um, I mean, I won't quite say, you know, that it's the uh, cat turds. Uh, but, um, you know, he's a, you know, obviously smart and thoughtful guy, but like, whatever, who knows? I'm not going to claim that I can read whatever was in his mind, but the problem is that even if he had had a preference for acting in the opposite way, that would have run up against this kind of institutional resistance from the national security establishment that would be parallel to the issue about all the rest of these things. And, you know, I mean, look, even if Bernie Sanders were becoming president right now, whether or not he would actually, and even if it was Bernie Sanders becoming president and he had uh, 60 Democratic votes in the Senate, uh, it's still an open question uh, whether, um, you know, whether Bernie would be able to accomplish a lot of the things in his campaign platform because the, the resistance to it would have been tremendous. Uh, and overcoming that would have really taken a level of grassroots mobilization uh, a level of new people coming into the process that we really haven't seen before. Uh, right. And maybe Bernie could have done that. You know, I hope so. I thought it was worth a try. Uh, but I think we we know that Biden is not going to play that role at all because that's just not at all who he is. So, you know, I mean, I'd love to be wrong about this. I'd love to spend the next four years arguing about whether, you know, Biden's newly enacted public option is good enough or whether we need to go all the way to Medicare for all. But I just don't think so. I, I think that I think that um, I think that even if the special elections go the way we want, uh, and so uh, he doesn't have the plausible deniability of a Republican Senate, which he probably will. But even if that's not the case, you know, I, I mean, I don't think we're going to get that from Biden. And I think if people have the impression that Biden is basically this like somewhat flawed but basically progressive guy who more or less wants the things that we want and we should give him a chance and we should give him credit and see what happens. You know, I, I, I just don't see any advantage. Well, let me ask that. you, I'm falling back to my defense of Obama. I've learned to hate Barack Obama, but when he was president, it was a co-presidency when Mitch McConnell became a uh, majority leader. So, Mitch, it is a if the Democrats don't take two seats in Georgia, then yeah. isn't it a co-presidency between McConnell and Biden? 
And, 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 and don't we yeah, have to the, accept or, that? Isn't that the way the system is set up? There's no way around it? Well, uh, I think there are ways around it on some issues and there aren't on others. Uh, so, so just concretely, for example, um, something that's been going around a lot in the last week is that uh, McConnell would stop Biden from uh, appointing anybody who wasn't centrist enough to a cabinet position, which is a perfect example, because, of course, that means that every liberal is going to say, oh, see, you know, you foolish leftists, you don't understand how uh, the process works. Uh, you're blaming Biden for appointing these people when, when really he had no choice because McConnell, uh, even though we know perfectly well that he would have appointed centrists one way or the other. Um, and then but also, you can appoint centrists to your cabinet and then order them to move to the left. Yeah, good luck with that. Um, but also, also, we've seen from Trump that uh, you can just leave uh, cabinet positions vacant uh, and have, you know, directors and, you know, people who don't require Senate approval. Uh, and, and Trump has gotten away with that. Uh, and, uh, you know, the thing is, I don't think Biden, you know, again, I'd love to be proven wrong, but uh, but I don't I don't think he's even going to try uh, any of that. Right. Like like so. So in other words, I think that it's true to a point uh, that, you know, Republican obstructionism. I mean, in Obama's case, that was used uh, as an excuse for things that really didn't work for, uh, you know, especially before uh, McConnell, as you say, became co-president. So, for example, the excuse for not including a public option in Obamacare was they couldn't get the 60 votes for cloture, um, you know, because there were conservative Democrats who wouldn't do that. Uh, but then uh, they ended up passing it through reconciliation. You only need 51 votes. And uh, the count of people who said they would have voted for public option was always over 51. So, you know, but that was just kind of quietly forgotten about. Tom Daschle later said that they uh, they'd actually given up the public option very early in negotiations uh, with the uh, the farm companies. In order, you know, Jim Earl keeps bringing this up. It went into reconciliation after it passed in the Senate. It's a budget reconciliation. In other words, it had to pass in the Senate first before it could go into the House and then go back into the Senate to iron out the kinks. That's the only time you can pass it as a budget reconciliation. It had to pass first, right? So, so I don't the see. I don't see. Is, um, but they did have a. They. I forgot in that, that process. Right? Whether they could have. Um, you know, passed it with the public option in the first place. Again, I don't think they I don't think they had the votes for a public option back then. Well, again, do they not have 60 votes or did they not have 51 votes? Those are very different questions. If you if uh, you only if, have if, 50, if, if you only had 51 votes, it wouldn't have passed. Well, I guess it would have passed in the Senate. No, it would have been it would have been filibustered. Well, Again, that's the question is whether you could have used the reconciliation op, uh, process to to have, you know, the version of it that, that had a public option. Like if the public option, if the House passed a version with the public option, the Senate passed a version, a version without it, whether then in the reconciliation process, you could have you could have defaulted to uh, you could have used those 51 votes to get okay. the House version of it. Right. That's the question. And um, I mean, maybe. Um, you know, look, uh, I think they had the, the votes to do that. Uh, maybe they were worried that some court would have later ruled that would be an abuse of reconciliation or whatever. But the point is, they certainly didn't try. 
Uh, and I don't, I think that's a good precedent, right? For what the kind of thing that we should expect from the Biden administration that I don't think, you know, there are a lot of, there are going to be a lot of issues. Some of them, uh, where, uh, it's actually going to be true that, um, uh, that there, there was nothing that could have done, uh, and some of those cases, it's also going to be true that uh, that if they had uh, if there had been something they would have done, they could have done. They wouldn't have because what they're doing is what they wanted to do anyway. Uh, and then there are going to be other issues where there are things that they could have done or at least tried to do that they're not going to do because they don't want to do them. Right. Uh, so I, I think a, a genre of Jacobin article that, you know, people like me are going to get tired of, of writing and you're going to get tired of reading is uh, Biden says he can't do X. But here are some things that he could do. And I think that not always, man, you know, sometimes his hands are legitimately going to be tied, you know, but uh, I think it is often going to be true because like bottom line, like the big picture thing, zooming out from like the parliamentary uh, shenanigans um, is that uh, Biden is not somebody just like Obama wasn't somebody who like secretly wanted to govern like Bernie Sanders, but just couldn't, right? right? Like, like, like these are people who, who are lifelong centrist Democrats. And so even their, you know, even their first choice before they get into, you know, negotiating with Republicans is not going to be the first choice that we would want. And on for, and it's a really terrible situation for the left because, um, because Obama had that Republican obstruction for so much of the time that he was president, um, you know that gets him. Uh, that gets him a pass uh, with with a lot of people uh, for uh, for who disagreed with a lot of these decisions for almost everything. Uh, and maybe you could argue that it should give him a pass for some things, but like at a certain point, it just gets irrational because this is who he always was. You know, there, there there's no, and Biden in particular hasn't um, hasn't hidden that right. Like I, I'm I'm actually you know like. You know, I, you know, nobody has to give me the the argument that, you know, Biden's better than than Trump. You know, right. I mean, I spent like a month making that argument to anybody who listened before the election. But right. now that the election's over, we can be reminded that, you know, not being as bad as Donald Trump does not actually mean that, you know, you're our friend. Uh, and, you know, Biden, uh, Biden has always had. Uh, these these centrist instincts, and he's always been aligned, you know, with business interests. And I, I just don't like. I think that the clearer we can be on that, the better for everybody. Although it's a depressing situation, right? Because there's going to be lots of room for plausible deniability. Right. We're we're, we're out of time to be continued. Professor Ben Burgess's two pieces this week in Jacobin are no honeymoon for Joe Biden. Everybody should should pick that up. And we didn't have enough time to talk about his other piece in Jacobin that I really wanted to talk about. And that is how the left beat Trump in Michigan. So you'll have to come back. But by then you will have written six more pieces for Jacobin and it's just going to pile up and pile up. Thank you, Professor Ben Burgess. He hosts Give Them an Argument. Who's on your show this week? Very quickly. Oh, uh, it is going to be uh, Adam Proctor, the host of the Dead Pundit Society uh, and uh, the historian and uh, Jacobin contributing editor, Daniel Bessner. 
great. Thank you so much, Professor Ben Burgess. Let's now go to North Carolina, where Thanks. Dr. Jennifer Verdelin is standing by. Sorry to keep you waiting. We're having technical problems today. Hello, Dr. Jennifer Verdelin. Oh, are we losing you? Everybody's having technical problems today. Uh, well, while we're waiting for Dr. Jennifer Verdelin to come back on, I'll ask Dan Frankenberger to, uh, God, the technical problems today were, it's, it's amazing I didn't smash. I, it's a good thing there wasn't a hammer near me because I just would have smashed the soundboard and the computer because I'm trying to do some stuff here and it's just not working. It's, it's tough when you're learning something because you're screwing up your normal settings at work yeah. as you're playing. Yeah. Yeah, especially when you're an idiot. How was your vacation? <laughs> Good. The wife and I got away for a couple nights to a cabin in uh, in the Finger Lakes in upstate New York. Oh, the Finger Lakes. Is that a euphemism for what you did or is that? <laughs> the, the place we stayed at had uh, a lot. That Who's was laughing in the background? I hear somebody laughing. We got my wife and a couple kids here. You got the They're kids? They're up there. Yeah. So we'll keep it clean. The Finger Lakes. That's where Hillary went on her listening tour when she ran for Senate. I remember I kept thinking, is there really a place called the Finger Lakes? Is it pretty up there? Yeah, it's really good. The, uh, we're probably a, a week or two late for the best time because the leaves are kind of all on the ground. Right. But I was talking to Kathleen about it and where the place we stayed was on 70 acres. She says, oh, sounds like a lot of handholding is going to be going on. I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> 70 acres by yourself? Yeah. Yep. A lot of hand-holding. A lot of hand-holding. A lot of fingers. <laughs> so was it romantic? Yeah, it was pretty cool. I think two days isn't enough because you work all day. The day you go, it's only an hour and a half drive. So mm -hmm. you get up there, it's already dark. It's kind of like, ugh. Make right. dinner and go to bed and then pretty much one full day, but you leave the next day. And there was no Wi-Fi? There was no Wi-Fi. And I'm such a moron because... The, the company we went through has like 15 or 20 places. And over the last year, I've been kind of planning on doing something like this. And somehow I managed to pick one with no Wi-Fi. But you brought your wifey. So that's I brought the wifey. There's Dr. Jennifer Verlin. There she is. Okay. I was, I was going to say, send me the brochure. I'll, I'll bring my left hand with me. It's going to be my <laughs> 63rd anniversary with my left hand pretty soon. And what better place to take my left hand than the Finger Lakes to celebrate 63 years of, of devotion? What did I just, Dr. Jennifer Verdelin is Dr. now Jennifer wondering, Verdelin. like, what? I'm sorry. I, I was, hi. Uh, you're muted. I can't hear you. Get a hammer and let's just smash our computers together. I, I can't hear you. She said she'll be right back. Okay. This is the kind of day I'm having. I saw the potential, Dan. You know, I have an IT expert, Joshua, and he yes. was showing me things last night on how to just make everything fantastic. But uh, I can't. And you remembered 40% of it? I can't get it to work. I can't get any of it. No, no. It's, and it's like if you forget one thing, then it's it's a chain reaction of non-functioning yeah like i can't even do this i can't even get my soundboard to... do you hear that no huh no you don't hear that no ah oh, god damn it i have 
I, I have a new soundboard that, hang on. While we're, it's not my fault now. It's Dr. Jen's fault. And by the way, Zoom was down and it wasn't my fault yesterday. And YouTube was down yesterday. So apparently somebody, is, hello, Dr. Jen. Are you there? Can you hear me now? Yes, I can. Let's thank you. Dan, we'll come back to you in the community college. Very so had I been five years younger, five years uh -huh. ago, I would have taken a, 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 a hammer to the entire show today because I've been, I spent <laughs> all week trying to learn this effing technology mm. and to, to make this a better show. And I refigured some wires and instead of it being a better show, I've made it worse. Well, I, I was on with my fancy new microphone and I couldn't hear anything from the show. Well, you're so lucky. So I thought, okay, let me let me switch to a different computer. And because I tried these and I couldn't hear anything. And then I, you guys couldn't hear me on the other one. So I'm just, I would have taken a hammer. I, I'm the kind that deals with electronics by smashing them to make them work. Right, right. So, you know, it usually ends up poorly for the electronics and ultimately for me. Right, right. So thank you for your patience. Are you kidding? I'm, I'm thrilled you're here and, I'm, <laughs> and I'm, I'm maintaining the veneer of stability. Mm. But inside, I, I, I'm so angry because I've invested so much time mm. into learning this new soundboard and this new video equipment. Right. And... And I see the potential and it, I can't get it to work. So somebody said, just ask Mr. Send your buttons. That's yeah. a, well, he, I will tell you this. He's Senor Mr. Buttons. buttons. Senor Buttons has become an honorary Eagle Scout uh, for tra traipsing across country during a pandemic. He did not earn his electrical engineering badge, but he did earn his emergency preparedness badge. Okay. All right, um, I'm so, going to show you a video because I worked on this. Okay, so I sent you some stories that I wanted to talk to you about, like Bunny the dog. Oh, yes, with the buttons. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. So tell me about Bunny the dog. And there's a dog named Chaser who just passed away, who mm -hmm. learned a thousand nouns and verbs. She was trained by a professor down south. You can see Chaser on YouTube. You can even see her on Nova. And he would say, Beavis and Butthead. And mm -hmm. Chaser would go into the other room and pull out the Beavis and Butthead toy. He was okay. able to almost talk to his dog. And now they're having a competition in Hungary as we speak for world's smartest dog. Mm -hmm. Well, so actually my former advisor, uh, Dr. Konslobachikov, uh, we've studied communication in prairie dogs. So to me, the idea that other animals have language is not shocking, um, right? It's really about our inability to communicate the same way and how do we create tools that can allow for mutual understanding mm -hmm. right 
And so I know that that he's been working on a way to decode dark dog barking, dog sounds for owners, right? There are patterns to them. And I actually had a cat vocalization project. Um, I wasn't able to get funding for it, but on the same principle that we, we know there's over 150 different vocalizations that cats make and they only meow to humans. They don't meow to each other. Really? And, mm-hmm. Yeah, really. Uh, the, meowing is a, a human-centered vocalization. So what I love about this is it's very similar to um, what they, the sort of lexicon approach they used with uh, a bonobo. Um, it, it, at, I think it's in Yerkes. Um, I forget his name. Uh, but, but basically lexicon symbols and shapes putting them together in a certain order. So what you find is grammatical structure, syntax, many of the elements that are common to human language. So what's happened with every new discovery of what other animals can do that's so remarkably similar to the things that we think make us special is linguistics just added another layer of complexity to what is actually language that excludes now other animals. And that complexity is to be able to refer back like my uncle's brother's sister, right? Right. So they're, they're, hypothesis is this is not something that animals can do. And that is the hallmark of language, um, <laughs> which uh, perhaps animals don't need to do that, but that doesn't mean that that defines language. So what's interesting, I think with bunny is the question is, is there a l- logic in bunny's mind to the order of the buttons that it, he or she presses to convey some information, right? I think one of the examples was water outside. Right. Now, is that because it's raining outside or wants to go outside in the water, right? So I think that the verbs are missing in, in some of these cases. But we know from dolphins, chimps, orangutans, gorillas, uh, uh, and other species that there is syntax. You can really upset a zebra finch little bird by rearranging its song in the wrong order they like completely lose it all right let me show you bunny this is video let's see if i got my got it to work there's video all over the internet now of this beautiful bunny who i think is part poodle and part i mean just such a cute beautiful dog it's like a large poodle or old english sheep dog like a shoodle or something and she presses these buttons to convey words and mm-hmm. let me see if this works can you see do you see it yeah now? okay I do. so that's working and let's see what what bunny is saying chuck woolery hates the jews so does Elizabeth Hasselbeck. Well, Bunny is really <laughs> smart. This is what I worked on <laughs> to get this. I was so excited to show you that. Uh, oh, was, oh, or, so it sort of worked. The sound didn't work. But uh, <laughs> that's a smart dog. <laughs> oh, gosh. What, what could a dog tell me if, if I would assume 20 years from now, I'm going to be able to 
talk to my dog, right? We'll have some kind of. Okay, so here's the thing. Your dog is already, or your cat, or other animals that live with you, are already telling you things all the time. The reality is that we have a comfort in a familiar, and I'm going to, even me, right, who understands that other animals communicate in very complicated ways, many of which are even outside of my own perceptual ability, and they're talking about all kinds of stuff, I'm sure, I mean, dolphins gossip about dolphins that aren't even there. Mm -hmm. So, (laughs) you know, the idea that we are the only ones that talk uh, about other individuals that aren't present is clearly not true. But when I was visiting my uncle in Brazil, he used to, uh, for the, he had a conservation breeding program for a rare parrot. And I don't know why I expected this parrot to speak English but it spoke Portuguese and I was shocked. It's like, oh, how, did, how is this parrot speak? Of course it's speaking Portuguese. It's in Brazil and my, my uncle speaks Portuguese. So it is going to see, but I somehow thought this is how sort of anthrocentric we are that if this other animal were to utter a word, it must be in English. So I think now, that do, we, they, do the birds know what they're saying? It's still subject to debate, right? Oh, the birds absolutely know what they're saying. It's not up to debate for some people like me. There are scientists who've built their career on this debate that other animals don't have language, that they don't have consciousness, that they don't that they aren't sentient, that they're reduced to a certain level of, of particular kinds of emotions. And the reality is the deeper we look, the better our tools are that we have to look the more we're dismantling a lot of those early beliefs. But I will say this, even Darwin understood that other animals have feelings, they experience grief and suffer. And this was, so this was not new. This, this is, we're returning almost to a perspective because, and I think the idea of having your dog speak to you in words you understand is neat, it's cool, but it is eliminating the responsibility you have of cohabitating with another species, of relating to them as what they are. So, so I, I want to ask you about COVID and mink in a second. Yeah. Dogs and cats have learned to evolve with humans. I was watching a documentary the other night about the difference between wolves Mm -hmm. and domestic dogs. If you put dog food, a treat, in a, a Tupperware container and seal it, a wolf will smell it and spend the rest of its life trying to figure out how to break open the Tupperware container to get to that treat. Whereas a domesticated Labrador will, in front of its, what everyone, you know, uh, you can't say owner, uh, companion, human companion, will smell the treat in the Tupperware container, try to open it, realize that it can't, with the nose, push it over to its human companion, and then sit mm-hmm. 
and say and and communicate, please open this for me. Yes. Or whine, right? Use kind of whimpering and whining. And that frequency of whining is very similar to the whining of a toddler, incidentally. A lot of animals that are young and really dogs are young wolves, if you will, juvenile wolves, will will use frequencies of that kind of whining, right. you know, is, is a begging uh, behavior to get you to do what they want or to pay attention to what they want. I so mean, intelligence. Your- so but, but it's interesting how we define intelligence, because some of us would look at the dog bringing it over to the human and supplicating, being obsequious and giving up and saying, what is that's not intelligence. Right. Whereas the wolf is determined to figure it out. It's but no, the, the the dog is much smarter than the wolf. Correct. Oh, no. Again, I, th- this depends on your perspective. Right. So in one sense, the dog could be considered smarter because it has learned how to manipulate humans to right. achieve the goals. And uh, and the wolf is considered smart in a different way because it's problem solving uh, on its own, right? And and, and so, but isn't that this. why the Neanderthals aren't they discovering that the Neanderthals went away because they they were loners, they were lone wolves, they didn't cooperate, and that Homo sapiens survived because we cooperate. Well, so Homo sapiens cooperate. So if you if you think about some of the arguments that Peter Turchin has put forth, right, cooperation through war is how certain societies succeed and others fall. And so I wouldn't put this. I would be really reluctant, you know, retroactively trying to to describe behavior of, of, of species that are extinct is really hard and i would be careful because it could fit in the cultural narrative that we're comfortable with so i'm not familiar with what evidence they have for that the population densities may have been lower but that doesn't necessarily equate to a reluctance to cooperate and there is andy brown uh is a uh, an expert on this and he says neanderthals we're not loners. And Andy should know because he's half Neanderthal. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I, I was just going to say that we do know that there is also in, in interbreeding between Homo sapiens and Neanderthal. So uh, to a certain extent, they, there was uh, mixing of the two populations or two species for some period of time. Right. And we have Neanderthal in our DNA, right? Some people do. Uh, and in fact, a recent study showed that if you like people that have more sensitive nerves are more likely to have some in introgression, sort of what we call introgression is of um, Neanderthal genes. OK, I'm going to take some questions Some people raise their hands. I am modeling behavior today. I always say when the Hirschenfelds come on, they model the, the proper behavior that that a father and son should have who cares what really goes on in their relationship on this (laughs) show they model perfect behavior and i am in a state of 
complete turmoil because of the technological problems today. But I'm I'm modeling calm, and we're going to take questions because that's what somebody okay. who's hosting a show who isn't in crisis would do. Hello, okay. Sharon. Uh, what is your question for Dr. Jennifer Vertolin? Look how calm I am. Okay, she can't she can't figure out how to unmute. I just realized that my listeners are as stupid as I am. <laughs> oh, no. Hit the unmute button. All right, all right, John, let's go to John. <laughs> can you certainly? Yeah, you can, I can, yes, you yes, I think I could do that. Okay. Um, Hi. Hi, I happen to have one of my cats in my lap, and I actually wanted to ask Jennifer about this for a while. Um, we, I've got a new neighbor who has a cat, two cats, but my previous neighbor had a cat. Well, this cat in my lab didn't have a problem with the previous cat, but he's at a certain time of night, every night he just wails and wow, 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 And I'm sure it's because of these two cats that are next door, or maybe one of them. Do you have any idea why that is? So there's a couple of things. First, I want to ask, and, and again, I'm not a, a but it's behavior, but it's behavior. Right, right. It's behavior, but but one of the comment. How old is the cat that you have in your lap? Uh, Ten. Okay, so there's a couple possibilities. Just to be thorough, the first is that sometimes in older cats, and a ten year old would be considered older, and it depends on when this started. Um, start caterwauling. There's a name for it. Yeah. in the middle of the night uh, for reasons that have nothing to do with say mm-hmm. other cats. Um, if uh, it, you know, again, I, it depends if I don't know the gender of the two cats that are outside. Yeah, I don't either. Um, the, my cat here, he's, he's a male, but he's, he was fixed. And this happened literally like when this person moved in just a couple of months ago. So, okay. So, so my guess is there's a female or there's another male and there's, there's some kind of distress and uh, that's happening um, uh, in terms of disputes of territory or space or, you know, um, unhappiness about, or happiness that you're there, but frustration, I can't get to you. So, so I don't know. I, you know, um, unfortunately whether or not, uh, it, him being fixed, incidentally, isn't relevant to whether or not he might be interested in um, yeah. getting together. I mean, you know, many uh, cats, uh, and I, I will not speak ill of Senor Buttons, um, you know, are still very interested and, and self-pleasure themselves despite being <laughs> fixed. And, and we should let them do that because that makes them happy. So, well, I will say he does seem to be just more curious because he'll just kind of be looking and looking like he wants to hang out with them. Right. It doesn't seem like it's aggressive. I don't know that it would be hanging out. <laughs> uh, so I would be really careful about interpreting that it's about yeah. hanging out. And I, w- I will not. I will happen. not. Be <laughs> okay. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I want to do. I have to keep the show moving and we have other yes. people raising their hands, John. And I'm okay. glad you were able to work at the invitation today, John. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> it was easy. Okay. Uh, Sharon, have you figured out how to unmute yourself? We have to keep this really short. Sharon? Okay, Sharon, are you there? Sharon, what's your question? I'll ask it for you. Yeah. Put it in the chat. Sharon? Um, oh, All done. Okay. We can hear you, Sharon. We hear you, Sharon. Oh, um, actually, it's uh, 
A question I had earlier. Um, apparently, I heard this on Tom Hartman's program today, and um, apparently it was from um, the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Somebody suggested that uh, the new Biden um, Bernie. government, he should have well, yeah, we wish Bernie. Well, we have Je- anyway, we have Doctor Jen get- here very quickly because we have to wrap it up. Ralph said that Bernie was going to be Labor Secretary. Is that it? No, no, no. Uh, this person suggested that Biden appoint two senators from. Um, states that have democratic governors into his cabinet and then those democratic governors could actually appoint democratic senators and in that way we could actually stymie mitch mcconnell and it seems to make a lot of sense and i don't know what you guys think right okay we'll discuss that uh, a little later on on the show because uh, it's complicated yeah. but thank you sharon very quickly before Great, we wrap thanks. it up thank you sharon and very quickly, let's go to Pete in Southern California. We're out of time. Very quickly, what is your question for animal okay, behaviorist, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin? Yes. Okay. Jen, uh, Dr. Jen, I, uh, I heard recently someone uh, made an analogy to that Trump is like a turtle on his back that can't that's flailing around an an overweight turtle on its back. And um, it got me to thinking, can turtles with an abundance of food overeat so they're too fat for their shells? And if so, what happens? Great question, thank you. That that is a great question, though I would say that painting him as a harmless uh, upside down turtle would be a a grave error in people's perception of what the situation really is. But um, having said that, the turtle's shell grows with it. Right. So um, and turtles just they're not necessarily uh, I've never seen a, a, a really obese turtle that can't fit in its shell anymore. So I think that um, it could happen with a pet turtle, potentially. I've still never heard of it, but, um, you know, because we tend to overfeed our pets. Uh, They don't need as much food and we don't give them challenges to find their food that mimics kind of their their daily life, uh, you know, having to work for it. So uh, my answer would probably be metabolically, it'd be pretty hard to get um, fat off lettuce. Well, for a turtle in the wild to overeat to to the point of of obesity, that's really more of a human problem and a captive animal problem. Right, right. Before um, you go, when they when they're on their back, can a turtle turn over? It's pretty tough uh, to do. They they can sometimes get help from something that tries to eat them. Um, or uh, they get lucky, but they can die completely upside down. So it's a pretty, pretty um, unstable position. And I know you wanted to, I don't want to cut into Dr. Um, uh, Phillips' time. Person, I couldn't see the rest of the name. Um, uh, I don't want to cut into your time, but you did mention mink and COVID. And, yes. and from what I understand, and I could be wrong, there was some new strain that started circulating in the mink and they became concerned that it would also spill back over right. into people. Right. Uh, yeah. So again, right. We, we keep being confronted how farmed animals 
uh, and, and high density industrialized farming, whether it's for food or other reasons, not only is a source of novel disease, uh, because you've got just high population density and, and sometimes different species together, but my guess is that the mink caught the coronavirus from person in the first place. And, you know, it, it may not kill mink. So uh, the virus is going to uh, do what it does. And now you get reverse spillover. And so we are seeing that happen over and over and over again. And people really need to wake up that this is not our last go around with a pandemic and biodiversity and conservation of natural areas protects us because uh, not, not because we're not coming in contact, that's an important thing, but because as soon as you start killing off different species, parasites, viruses, and bacteria, they're organisms who are gonna try to survive and you're creating pressure that forces them to go to a new host. Right. So. You, you know, I and I also see this and am, am just kind of disgusted anyway about mink farming. Mink are, are pretty cool. Yeah. And, um, you know, um, I'm amazed. Yeah. I, I, I didn't even know what mink looked like, uh, not wrapped around my great grandmother's neck. And oh. they're actually really cute. And I thought. Who would yeah. who would look at an animal and say that's really cute? Kill it, so I can have it wrapped around my neck. I mean that is from beavers, a, so you could put it on your head. I we, mean, right? So thank God I, for evolution. We we have to evolve past who we once I, were. Doctor Philip Hershen. Before Doctor Hurdleman goes, I've got a parrot story. Oh, oh tell me. So. When my kids were early teens, we bought a parrot, a yellow nape Amazon, which are supposedly the second best talkers after African greys. Mm -hmm. So what do the kids teach the parrot to say first off? Fuck you. Okay. <laughs> so, so the parrot was a great talker. So Ethan, <laughs> Ethan was sitting in the living room one day and we had neglected to clip the parrot's wings, which you have to do so they don't fly around. So the wing feathers grew out. He launches himself off of his perch, flies very clumsily across the room, bangs into a window, falls to the floor, and Ethan says, nice flight. And the bird says, fuck you. <laughs> That is yeah. a great I think, story. I think he knew what it meant. Um, he, I, I, it, he used it in the right context, that's for sure. Well, <laughs> let me do this, because uh, Ethan <laughs> popped in, and he was wearing a tuxedo. I think he's on set. In, he's on set, yes. He's on set. And if Dr. Jennifer Verlin wants to stick around until Ethan comes in and we can talk to Dr. Philip Hershenfeld. He is the father. This is very, I don't want to impress you too much, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin, but Dr. Philip Hershenfeld is the doctor, is the son of a doctor who's a psychiatrist. That's- No, I'm that's, the son of a garage mechanic. You're the father, I'm, hang on, you're the father of a son of a 
psychiatrist. That's how I introduced There you go. Okay. Yeah, okay. Uh, okay. Dr. Hershenfeld is a psychiatrist. Your, oh, nice. Your syntax was too complex for me. Yes, I don't speak human language, apparently, because I did not follow that train. Now, isn't it a for, it has been said, Dr. Hershenfeld, and we can get Dr. Jennifer Verdelin to rule on this, that it is a form of animal abuse to teach parrots to curse because they tend to live. How long can a parrot live? To 70, 80? And, 80, yeah. 90, maybe. Yeah. And that they, you have to put them in, in your will. And so yeah. teaching them to curse makes them undesirable. Not in my home, but. Uh, <laughs> okay. So, do, so well. do they, they don't know what the words mean, but they learn what the words mean through our reactions, right? Yes. Yeah. I, I've, I've seen studies of parrot speech. They are, they have a brain about this big. <laughs> they are enormously intelligent now, does the and they're social they're social so to learn the social context of communication is something that's kind of important for many parents but they have their own ways of communicating which is why we had to donate this bird to the parrot jungle in florida <gasps> i used to work there so you knew our papu guy probably oh my gosh so what when parrots are socializing together and one of them is startled, they peck the other on the feathers to warn, hey, there's something to look at over there. So if this bird was sitting on your shoulder and he got startled by a noise, mm -hmm. he would peck you with a beak that could crack a Brazil nut. Yeah. And he would draw blood. And after a number of such instances, we sent yeah. him to Parrot Jungle. Yeah, so I, I volunteered at Parrot Jungle for the Center for Great Apes, which was the Center for Chimpanzee and Orangutan Conservation at the time. That's how I got bit in the neck by a chimp. Who They got startled, and I don't think it was trying to warn me. It just reacted. Oh, oh, it gave me a slice. I was really lucky. Uh, so I have a small scar, you know, from where I got bit. But Parrot Jungle, yeah, it, it, I mean, that was a, a pretty amazing place. Um, you know. Uh, How do parrots time. talk to, so parrots don't talk to one another. They don't have the, the vocal. They don't, yeah, sure. But they don't say things, do they? They might have a, a parrot fuck you. I don't know, you know, uh, but they definitely communicate. They're super talkative with each other. They just don't use words. We can't right? understand them is the issue. That's right. right. They right. can understand each other. Right. Did you study primates, Dr. Hershenfeld, as a psychiatrist? A little bit in my early training, sure. And what do we learn? Is there... I would assume, well, you've talked about Freud civilizations and its discontents. Primates are civilized, right? And they're, they're social animals and they do tamp down urges. So you would have naturally occurring neuroses in, in, in other primates. Well, they get neurotic if, like, if they're locked in a cage. But out in the wild, because they have to 
be social. They have to. Well, if if you read Jane Goodall, <clears throat> um, you find stuff like a very elderly chimp mother had her last child, and she doted over this kid too too much, and this kid ended up. Very neurotic, and I think mm-hmm. basically unable to function. So they have Jewish primates. <laughs> I didn't. And, know that. and also in baboons, so baboons that get bullied a lot or are targeted socially, um, that kind of don't fit in. There's um, uh, a few examples of, of some baboons that savanna baboons that they're just socially awkward, didn't quite fit in. When they get bullied, they start losing their hair. Their cortisol levels are super. They become, you know, they might pull their hair out, um, you know, over over groom themselves, uh, sort of alopecia, which I, I believe um, is also a human kind of anxiety mm-hmm. um, disorder. Right. People pulling at their hair to the point yeah. where it won't grow back, which I've never understood. But uh, since I've spent so much money, it's like biting your nails, right? There's people that. What is that? Why would you bite? I don't understand. Trichotillomania, it's called. Oh, okay. Where you pull at your hair. You pull at your hair, you pull out your eyebrows, your eyelashes. You get to look very funny. And it's, it's probably related to OCD. Right. Right. And um, it can be quite problematic. Right. Now, are we calmer today with the results of the election? Are you seeing a light at the end of the tunnel? Uh, uh, Today is the first day, but I relied. uh, You're going up and down, Dr. Hirsch. It was a roller coaster. Um, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. People were feeling very relieved. Moving towards the middle of this week, people are getting really worried again. What does he have up his sleeve? Why is he taking over the Pentagon? Um, what's, what's, what are his plans with the FBI? Now, there are interpretations that this is just you know, posturing, setting himself up for the future. But uh, a lot of people think that there's no guarantee of that. And what's he going to do? Is he going to start a war with, with Iran just so he gets real, so he can take over and say this is a national crisis? In the people I speak with who are lawyers and, and the Reverend Barry W. Lynn is here. They have a lot of faith in the system right now. And they say it's childish that there are no mechanisms in place to allow a president to seize power this way. And I say, well, what do you mean? And they, they then they start talking about norms and mm-hmm. public opinion and the streets. But... I, I wonder, uh, we just had Bruce Fine on. He, he is a constitutional scholar. He was deputy attorney general in the Reagan administration. And he 
is a conservative. He works with the Heritage Foundation and American Enterprise, but he's an honest interlocutor. He's thoroughly confident that there's no way Trump could stage a coup d'etat and and get his way. But since the beginning, I've watched this guy survive everything, right, Dr. Hershenfeld? And, and break all norms. So, listen, I'm somewhat um, confident that Mr. Fine is correct, but I still have a degree of anxiety. And the other point is that Trump is not the main problem. The main problem is 71 million people voted for him after watching him for four years. And they think that he is in their corner because they know nobody else was in their corner for a very long time. They've got a real beef. They were considered the flyover people. And maybe if I was a flyover person, I would also say, let's tear the whole structure down because we can't be any worse off. Yeah. I agree with you. And I want to thank you for saying that because that is the problem. There is the sense of entitlement on the left, not even the left, uh, on the Democratic Party, and that's not the left, where they automatically assume that everybody automatically assumes in flyover country that the Democrats are on their side. They're not. The Democrats have not shown themselves to be on the side of the working class. So the, the working class has no choice but to turn to a demagogue. Yeah. Because there's nothing being offered to them by Biden, Kamala and the Clintons, nor the Obamas. And well, I'm, I think- not, I'm not so sure that Biden is not going to offer them anything. I think a big public works program, if the Senate will allow it, that's offering them something real. That's offering jobs. If we dig a tunnel from New Jersey to Manhattan, which we need. Um, that's, that's going to employ a lot of people for a very long time. And our road system has fallen apart. And, you know, there are real ways to help people who are in trouble, who have inadequate health care, inadequate, um, services, um, And I'm not sure Biden is going to ignore these people. But as you just said, McConnell will not allow it. You cannot spend a trillion dollars on infrastructure through an executive order. They the uh, architects of America, some association has been grading our infrastructure since 1985. They gave us a D plus Our infrastructure, D-plus in 1985, and they're still giving us a D-plus. It's almost as though there are forces at work in our country who want a complete breakdown in 
in Washington, D.C. They don't want this to work, that they're that they come to Washington as politicians to gum up the works because they don't believe in Washington, D.C. They believe in states' rights. I, I don't I don't know. I don't know what the solution is, but. And on the other side, there are just as many greedy people who want everything for themselves and therefore they pay all sorts of lobbyists to lower taxes because one billion is not enough. Um, they want five billion. And so other things like bridges don't get attended to. I think something like 80 percent of the bridges in this country are in trouble. They're and they're being held up with, you know, duct tape, chewing gum and spit. And they will start falling down. It's I mean, I guess some are already, but we'll have to pay attention when they start falling down. I have these fantasies of becoming very successful. And on YouTube, sometimes I will do the Sotheby's tours of homes mm. that are just spectacular. Ron White, comedian, you may not know who he is. He is selling his Beverly Hills home and he gave a tour over at Sotheby's and he's selling it for $16 million. And Good for that, him. Yeah, and, and I'm going through the tour and he's showing me how this button will open up the drapes to reveal a view of Los Angeles and then the lights dim automatically. And then you press this button and the TV comes down. And all I kept, and I'm not joking, I'm thinking, all I kept thinking is that won't work. You have to get that button fixed. That screen doesn't come down. I can't even get my effing stove to work. Pro I can't get my new software program to work. So what is, uh, this is a serious question. Yeah. The, uh, the idea of one of these estates seems so glorious. You know, not, you know, when you take out the immorality and the, what it does to the planet, what is the psychology of somebody who can live with all that imperfection to know I just spent $15 million on a home. The sauna isn't working. The sink is bad. I would go crazy. That's why I don't want anything. It's not that I'm uh, oh, that I'm if you have a $16 million home, you're going to have enough money to hire all sorts of people to fix this stuff for you. But but this behavior, I think, is hardwired in us. You see it in monkeys. Oh, that monkey has a banana, even though I've already eaten my fill. I want his banana. Now, it makes a certain sense when you when most of human and, and any other evolution has been in circumstances of privation. You know, um, speaking of animal rights, foie gras. Fagwa, I think you taught your parrot to say that word as well. That's a good Absolutely. curse word. Fagwa. <laughs> so the French take the goose, 
they feed it, and then they stuff grain down its gullet. It's, I'm sure it's a very painful um, operation. And then the goose gets a fatty liver, which is a medical condition, and you kill it and you have foie gras. The Israelis figured out a much easier, I think more humane method to make foie gras that, um, that, that relies on this banana thing with, with the monkeys. They take a flock of geese, they feed it until they don't want to eat anymore. They are full. Right. And then they bring in a hungry flock of geese and mix it with the full flock of geese. And the full geese say, oh, look at this guy. He's stuffing himself. <laughs> I want some of that. So he starts eating until he gets a fatty liver or she gets a fatty liver. So, you know, this is this activity is hardwired in because, you know, you're, you're always when you're in the wild, you're always worried about starvation. Right. Right. So if somebody has a six, if you have a $10 million house and somebody has a $16 million house, you're going to start getting very unhappy. And even if down deep, you know, somewhere that when you buy it, it's going to, everything in it is going to break down. Uh, before you actually experience that breakdown, you don't, think about it you don't take it into consideration you just do whatever you can to get that right 16 million dollar house so you, you, you the people who live in these 16 million dollar homes you're saying they accept the fact they accept the imperfections and that they're going to hire somebody to you know the can lighting doesn't work but i'm going to have somebody who takes care of the can lighting for me when it doesn't work and i'm going to trust this guy not to get a kickback from yeah. the electric some, some will i've also seen people who fly in this is probably you they fly into a rage and take two years off of their lifespan every time one of their gadgets doesn't work there really are people like that and that's uh, that's why I suspect more and more that you, David, are part Neanderthal. <laughs> I just remember living in Los Angeles. This had to have been 30 years ago. And we were supposed to have air conditioning and it didn't work. Mm -hmm. And I brought in the electrician. We, I, I sat at the kitchen table. And this, for me, it was a lot of money. Um, it was some kind of central air conditioning and it never worked. And you need air conditioning. And I accused the person who I was married to, it, but not accused, but I said, I'll take care of this. This is, they don't know who they're dealing with. I'm gonna, I'm gonna watch me take care of this. And I held a, a meeting at our kitchen table <laughs> with the contractor the air conditioning guy and the electrician all so it was the four of us and i sat at the head of the table and i had my receipts and my vanilla and i outlined 
why they were in trouble. Mm -hmm. And they nodded their head. And I realized, no, I'm in trouble. You know what your problem was? You should have had your receipts at your right hand and your gun at your left hand. <laughs> and you would have had a different outcome entirely. I, by the way, there's another kind of person, which I am not, but I wish I were. There's another kind of person who's, when faced with that kind of an issue, says, that's really interesting. Let me figure out what the problem is. Let me take this air conditioner apart into six million little pieces, put it back together, and they'll have the best day of their lives. I uh, never got the, the air conditioning fixed, never no. got my money back. And there's a part of me that understands Trump. He doesn't, he, he doesn't, I mean, he, after dealing with contractors and divorce attorneys, I totally get I'm sorry. He doesn't pay any of them. Don't pay any of them. Don't respect them. And get a gun. That's how Trump, he's right to some degree with attorneys, with all due respect, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, who's an attorney. You, you, you build enough, you build enough in Manhattan and you deal with enough contractors and lawyers, you end up like Donald Trump. He's, it's, He's inevitable. That's how you end up. I feel sorry for the guy. What is what does this phrase mean? I have no idea what it means. With all due respect, it means I'm about to say something that will make you never want to come back. With all due respect, with all due respect, where's I had a joke for your son. He was in a tuxedo. He is on set right now in Atlanta shooting his movie he's very upset that he couldn't be here but you know work comes first he has a very i'll let you go and i'll let dr jennifer vertelin go he he is he is so funny he is so funny yeah. yes he he really is he has a way of looking at things a specificity his comedy is looking at things he drills down and it's uh, it's fantastic. It's like, did you see the movie The Chicago Seven? Yes. Okay, so you remember Abby Hoffman sitting there, who's a very funny guy, and Judge Hoffman says, "Let the record show that I am not related to the defendant Hoffman." <laughs> and Abby Hoffman says, "Father, no." <laughs> I mean, it's that kind of quickness. I know. It gets right to the heart of the matter. Yeah. You know? it, it, the movie was, people should know who the Chicago 7 is. They really should. But not have Aaron Sorkin tell them. Anyway, well, thank you, Dr. Hershey. Thank you. Thank you. Always uh, an honor and a privilege. Good seeing you all. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Phillip. Bye. 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 And Thanks. Dr. Jennifer Vertolin. Thank you so much. And you. Uh, we, we need to talk about doing an evening with Dr. Jen with all this new technology. We, I just wanted to show you something before you go. 
Okay. And then I'm going to let you go, but I have to find it. It's a pig. It's a, I, it, it is, I couldn't believe this. And if you're not a vegetarian, you will be after I show this to you. This is, was shocking, but I have to find it. Let me, uh, where am I? All right, let me bring in Dr. Barry, Dr. <laughs> Bar the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. And I'm going to look for this. There it is. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn, for nearly a quarter of a century, was in charge of Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Besides being an attorney, a member of the Supreme Court Bar, he is also an ordained minister in the United Church of, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Christ? Is, is that how this word is pronounced? Yes, I, it is. I, I got that right. Okay, good. You, you certainly did. Okay, good. You know, the people behind me, the monkeys behind me. Yes, sir. One of them make told me to tell you, they're, they've been listening. Yes. Every one of your guests has talked about monkeys. Yes. Everyone. Nobody asked their opinion. <laughs> well, why, why, why didn't it? Why didn't anybody ask? I don't know. Well, I had, no, I, I'm know. being rude to you. I was looking for, <laughs> for a pig, for a pig, a pot boiled pig. <laughs> there it is. Pot oh, boiled pot belly. pig? No, no pot boiled pig. Oh. Yeah. I'm having a bad day. Okay. Well, well, maybe. We no, I have it here. Okay. All right, here we go. Okay. Now watch. This is a, a, a pot belly, a baby pig. Do you see this little piggy running around like a doggy? Look at this. This is not a dog. Scooter. I, mean, look, I don't. I don't know why you're so surprised. Pigs are a, super smart, and pigs are really social. And so, why wouldn't they be um, as rambunctious and playful as a puppy? And maybe even smarter. And once again, I'm always going to say different smart. That is the cutest all thing. other animals are smart. They just are skilled at different things. And remind me next time to tell you this angry squirrel story. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Dr. Jennifer Verlin. I'm glad you were having technological problems the way I was. I know. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn is joining us, and I welcome you, I have a lot to go over with you, and I don't think we have. All enough. right, I think we have another guest. We have uh, Grace Jackson and Henry Huckamacki interviewing a special guest at eight. So let's talk. Okay. Maybe I can dragoon you into coming back later tonight, too, as well. There's a lot to talk about. All right, I had Bruce Fine on. Yes, constitutional scholar. He gives his best. He answered your questions. Okay. He says that the president can pardon himself, cannot pardon himself. What he can do is resign and President Mike Pence can pardon, can give a blanket pardon to Donald Trump for any and all crimes discovered and not discovered from his past, but he cannot be pardoned for future crimes. He also cannot be pardoned for 
state crimes. In other words, he is not immune from prosecution in the state of New York from Letitia James and Cyrus Vance Jr. He also gave his best to you and said he would debate you on my show, that that we could. He said it would be interesting. And I said, are there any honest interlocutors other than you on your side? And uh, he didn't answer that question. But we should talk about my learning how to moderate a debate between two honest people. Because he is honest, isn't he? Yes, he is. Yes, he definitely is. Uh, I used to debate him all the time. And uh, he's one of, as I said in a note to you today, he's one of the few people that is both honest and occasionally even correct. Yeah. Which is not necessarily the same thing. Uh, Here's what... What he said about the pardon power is certainly true. That is to say, most scholars would say, of course, the president cannot pardon himself. Most scholars say it. But if this push came to shove and this went to the current six to three majority conservatives on the Supreme Court, it's so tainted now that I don't think it's a given that five people on the court wouldn't say, well, come to think of it, since the Constitution is silent on the question, and it's only a matter of analogy, like you can't be the judge in your own criminal case, which, of course, is what a lot of people on the left say now, to assure us that this cannot happen. But um, all it takes is five people to say, well, if it's silent, we will assume that that power, which is so extensive, also applies to a sitting president who wants to pardon himself. Right, right. And it's the same thing about all the non-frivolous arguments that are being made. All of them eventually could get to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court is tainted. And one of the things that we notice about the Supreme Court is that Amy Coney Barrett, who is very likely, everybody on the Democratic side made this big fuss over, she shouldn't be appointed because she'll do away with the Affordable Care Act. I don't think she is going to do away with it, the Affordable Care Act. It looked pretty Act. good this week, right? They, yeah, she she asked really obscure questions that most of us could. Yeah, tell the audience because some of them may not know. Yeah, well, I mean, the issue is with, when you have a complex piece of legislation. And, uh, and we used to do this whenever we'd write any legislation. Um, you put in a severability clause that basically says, now, if something's wrong in one part of the bill, now the law, it doesn't bring down the whole bill. And so once you get rid of the individual mandate, which, of course, doesn't exist in the Affordable Care Act, does that collapse the entire statute? And uh, Brett, you know, rapist would be rapist drunk Kavanaugh even said, well, it. If the Congress had wanted to do away with the whole statute, they had the opportunity to do that, but they didn't. So that speaks volumes. Right. What the Congress did in the original Obamacare, you were fined if you didn't have health insurance. And 
the Republican Congress didn't get rid of the fine. They reduced it to zero. Your fine zero. So that means the individual yep. mandate still exists. It's just you have to pay zero right. in a fine. So it can't be, it's not even subject to severability, as I understand it. They didn't overturn the mandate. They, they did not overturn yeah, the mandate. But, well, they, the I mean, what these states that are arguing about it say is effectively they did because zero means it's no tax at all. So it doesn't. But they're leaving the, right the door open for somebody like Biden. To, and to add it. Yeah, of so, course. So it's yeah. so it looks like uh, the Supreme Court isn't going to overturn Obamacare. And it looks like the Republicans really don't want them to, do they? They were going through the mo I mean, this no, of is course a purely not. political move. Of course it is. Yeah, of course it is. But but it, again, it will it will demonstrate two things to Democrats, particularly those on the Judiciary Committee who within the next couple of years are going to have an opportunity to try to stop yet another appointee who because no matter who Joe Biden picks, the, Mitch McConnell will say, too liberal, neo-socialist, we're not even going to give that person a vote because, after all, we, the Senate, are still conservative. That's what the people wanted. I, I want to believe that the Senate will turn into a 50-50 animal uh, after January 5th, two elections in Georgia. I want to believe that, but I honestly... I wouldn't stake my left arm on it or even my right arm. I wouldn't. So now you'll have Mitch McConnell doing the same things that he always does. And although he and Joe Biden in the old days were pretty friendly, I don't think they're friendly anymore. That is to say, I don't think that Mitch McConnell has an ounce of let's work togetherness in his body. Not one. So it doesn't matter what his past relationship with Biden was. He will stop every single thing. There will be no statehood for the District of Columbia. There will be no expansion of the Supreme Court. There will be nothing like support for a Green New Deal or just an environmentally just program. There will be no expansion of Obamacare, much less something better than Obamacare, right. because this man will control the agenda. It's a co it is a co-presidency between Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden, unless the Democrats win the two Senate races in Georgia. A co-presidency means that Biden can issue a raft of executive orders. He can overturn all of Trump's executive orders, but those will be challenged in court. So I would assume, I would assume the first day that Biden is in office, he's got to overturn something like a hundred executive orders oh. affecting the EPA alone. And Correct. That, and that's going to be in court. Now, do you get to overturn those executive orders? Do you commit? Sure. You can try. But does the court then stop? Can you, how does that work? You, you over, like, for example, the EPA to accommodate coal plants during the pandemic, mm -hmm. 
let the coal plants self-regulate. And right. We've we've lost, they say something like 10,000 Americans have died because of the particulates in their lungs. Sure. Be, created a comorbidity with COVID-19. And uh, supposedly Biden can start an executive order that re- you know, reinforces regulations, but they can go to court immediately. The coal plants can go to and try to overturn that executive order, correct? That is absolutely right. And, 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 who, wanna, tr- and who, who do we have in, in the courts now? We have virtually every circuit in this country is so corrupted by appointments from Republicans, particularly from Trump himself, there's no guarantee that you're going to get a break, even in the so-called still somewhat liberal Ninth Circuit that covers Washington, Oregon, and California. You can't even trust them. You can't, a lot of these cases involving regulations end up in the D.C. Circuit, which is usually referred to as the second most important federal court in the country. But that, too, has been corrupted. That, too, has so many conservative appointees that they can stop the repeal of many of these regulatory matters. They can stop it. Let's just uh, understand something here, because I hate Joe Biden. I hate Kamala. I hate the Democratic Party. I voted for them. I wanted Bernie. Uh, Biden is going to go in there just to repeat. He is going to try to bring us back to Obama when it comes to executive orders. He's going to reverse a lot of things that uh, that Trump reversed. But as we've just pointed out, Every single executive order can be challenged in the courts. So if we don't have the courts, we don't have the executive orders. He could be a pretty weak president. Exactly. Why would Mitch McConnell even want him to even think that he could be a powerful executive? He does. He will make. His policy, McConnell's policy, will be the same one he had with Obama, which is to make sure he doesn't get anything passed. Right. And he will be able to achieve that because, uh, as we know, and you look at what's going on in Georgia now, what are the criticisms of Pastor Warnick and John Offit? They're socialists. Uh, They want to take away your guns. And uh, raise your taxes and raise your taxes. So those are the same themes that are going to be used over and over again in Georgia in in what will be a very, you know, unpleasant couple of uh, months of politicking down there. And so the excuse for Biden that we will make as Democrats will be the same excuse we made for Obama, although Obama at one point had a filibuster proof Senate briefly, but briefly, briefly. But <laughs> are we going to find ourselves in six months saying, look, politics is the art of compromise. So obvi- I mean, I can hear myself saying this. I can hear myself saying 
Of course he had to keep Betsy DeVoe on as the head of (laughs) education because he made a deal with McConnell that if he keeps Betsy DeVoe in education, then McConnell will pass this piece of legislation. It's ugly. It's how the sausage is made. Better you shouldn't see it. But this is it. Politics (laughs) is the art of compromise. But that's what Biden is going to have to do. He's going to have to horse trade with Mitch McConnell. Mm -hmm. Right. Yes, he is. Um, he has no choice. Are, he no, has no choice. The two, that- kind, the two kind. Well, the two kinds of compromises in Washington. I was just talking to my son about this a few hours ago. There are the traditional compromises, which I often refer to as idiots compromises, where everybody gets to say they won, but no actual people benefit. And then there are the occasional creative compromises where you cut a deal everybody gets a little of something and i I can think of only one time that i actually was involved in a what i thought was a very creative compromise after the school prayer amendments all failed in the senate uh there was this effort to to create something which does exist now in law called the equal access act and the Equal Access Act guaranteed that religious students could form clubs in their high schools. And I thought, well, that's unfair because uh, it's a bad idea because it kind of looks like the son of school prayer. And it only helps students who want to talk about religion. So because there were a couple of honest brokers at the time, like Senator Mark Hatfield from Oregon, we could sit down and get a few of the honest brokers from the religious right, but not the nut right. And you could sit down and say, well, what do you want to do? How can we change it? So we said, well, let's guarantee students the right to form any clubs about cultural, political, ideological, or religious matters. A student bill of rights. And Hatfield agreed to that. Lowell Weicker agreed to that. And all of a sudden, now there still exists. And the reason there are so many gay, straight student alliances in America's high schools is because of that bill. And the far right nuts all said, you know, we don't think it's a good compromise because, my God, look what they're going to do. They're going to have the gay people come in and they're going to form clubs and then they're going to Nazi the fascists, the communist club will start and some of that really did happen but that was i thought an example of a genuinely creative compromise everybody gets something the anti-war people have their opportunity to have political clubs and the christians who want to have the uh you know the student athletes for christ club they can have it too well let's talk about many of those Let's talk about uh, politics and religion. And you are not opposed to religion, but you're certainly opposed to it being in our public square, and rightfully so. There was a minister, a preacher, who used to appear on the James Baker show. And he said that COVID has been caused by fornication. I can't play you the sound. His name is Pastor Erwin Baxter. Do you see him? I do. Yeah, this is him on the Jim Baker show, who I thought was disgraced. This is him talking about fornication, and he defines it as sexual intercourse. He had a 
put it up there. So every, <laughs> and he, he went on the Jim Baker show selling the pandemic bundle and saying that the reason we have COVID-19 is because women are fornicating because 5% of women in America are virgins when they get married. And this is, this is the good Reverend Pastor Erwin Baxter saying that COVID is a warning sign to fornicators. He died this week yep. from COVID. Did you know him? I did not know him. Was but he a fornicator? Did, did, was he a fornicator? Well, he might have been. I, I've always, I wondered, you know, no one's polite enough to ask this in an interview, Not certainly not on MSNBC, but uh, somebody should say of someone like Sean Hannity, who, as we now know, is about to move in with his longtime girlfriend. Did you ever have sex with her when you were still married to your first wife? That's an unfair question to ask of a person. It's not, but we know, know it's I not. Know. I know we know it's not, right. but it, it's but also he say a question it's that no one would ask. Yeah, well, we don't care. Right. But for somebody to ask him that, which they won't do, uh, it just shows you how corrupted all of these networks have become. They don't have people willing to ask these very tough questions. Uh, now, I see what's on your sign here, uh, Robert Jeffress, who I do know quite well. And uh, he's one of the few people on the religious right who even has suggested that Biden is already one to be designated as the uh, president-elect. Most of his pals on the religious right have taken quite the opposite position. That is to say, they believe that that Biden may not win, that it, it may all come down through some quirk or some of these goofy lawsuits to having an, an election that results in the re-election of President Trump. So Ralph Reed from the Faith and Freedom Coalition, the original founder of the Christian Coalition, which he built. Jack Abramoff's friend. Jack, Jack Abramoff's yeah, friend. This guy, Ralph <laughs> Reed, should have gone to prison with Jack Abramoff of for ripping off Native American casinos. Yes, yes, he did. And uh, there were a lot of there were a lot of um, a lot of uh, spurious things that went on in regard to casinos and the religious right. But Ralph said um, yeah, he thought it was important to, to play this out and see what happened. Ralph Reed was always credited as being a boy genius. All he did was to take the mailing list of the Pat Robertson for president committee, which Robertson legally turned over to Ralph Reed and then Ralph was able to use it. I mean, if you can't build an organization out of taking the mailing list of a popular in some fronts uh, candidate for the presidency, uh, you really should not even be in the direct mail business. I mean, these monkeys behind me could have used that same list and created the monkey Christian coalition with right. it. So uh, Franklin Graham, as you know, he also refuses to uh, concede that that Trump should just get out of the way. And his wife, um, Lindsey Graham, won't concede either. And his wife, Lindsey Graham, close relative Lindsey yeah. Graham, will not. And uh, now he he, of course, if you watch any of CNN anymore, he advertises on CNN 
there's not even there's no reason for CNN except to take his money for their own use that they run these ridiculous ads by Franklin Graham about praying away problems. Right. They don't have to do it. Why do they do it? Little money. It's not going to be as easy for them to raise vast amounts of money through political ads anymore. And since the only other things they can advertise are, uh, well, let's see, um, medicines for diseases that may not even exist and mm-hmm. cars, but they're going to have to find a way to raise more money. So maybe they'll bring all the people in. And I want to mention one other person because he's so close to you, and that's Kenneth Copeland. Kenneth Copeland, as you may remember, some months ago, you called the prayer line. You wanted some prayers for a medical condition. I'm pretty sure it was anal warts. Yes. He's been in the news because he. Uh, yes, that was. Uh, yes. yes, that we called up and asked him to pray for my anal warts. Yes. Yep. Well, he went. Uh, he had a, a service over the past weekend where he said, I'm quoting him here, the media said, what? The media said Joe Biden is the president. And then he went into fits of goofy laughter, referred to by the religion news service as aggressive performance-based laughter and he and then his whole congregation for about a minute also laughed i mean ridiculously i i won't even do it it might be embarrassing (laughs) that's the kind of laughing he did and the whole congregation was doing the same thing so now he got a little pushback from it so on youtube a couple of days ago he went out and made a statement and he said some people thought that what i was doing a few days ago was showing a hatred of joe biden that's not true i love joe biden and i'm sorry that people thought otherwise well let's see i um i don't believe him I don't believe him one bit, but it's the most, as my mother used to say, cockamamie thing to say and way to discuss what the media was doing correctly in saying Joe Biden should be referred to as president-elect Biden. We have very little time left, okay. and maybe you'll come back later. Maybe you'll come back Monday because there's so much to talk about there's so much you're both a lawyer and a minister and there you know i want to ask you about the crazy christians but i also want to ask you about the crazy republicans and the crazy republican christians on the supreme court it should remind us because we seem to be you know i was on the ledge yesterday in terms of a coup d'etat but i i think i think enough cracks are appearing in Trump's armor and he's going to go away. The inability to debate the other side. It's never been like this before. You brought up the 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 senator from Oregon, Republican, sure. Weicker, the Republican yep. who was a senator from Connecticut, I think also a governor. We used to have yep. honest Republicans. We no longer have honest Republicans because they've been co-opted by crazy evangelical Christians. Eighty percent of evangelicals are are uh, Republican. Twenty percent of Jews are Republicans, which uh, thank God that 
tears down that horrible stereotype of Jews being smart. I always point to the 20% who don't wear masks. I, uh, so you've dedicated much of your life to getting religion out of the town square. When you look at the Republican Party, doesn't that explain the dangers of religion in politics? Of course it does. Absolutely You does. can't have a conversation with people who have blind faith because that blind faith then bleeds into things that are not so innocuous as religion. It's great to have blind faith in religion, but once you have blind faith in power, then, then supply-side economics becomes your religion. Not wearing a mask becomes your religion. That's right. It's a slippery slope. It starts with something crazy like the Bible. And next thing you know, you're, you're going after somebody with a baseball bat because they ask you to wear a mask. That's the danger of religion. Oh, right? sure. Well, it's the danger of religion as we see it with the Republican Party. I don't for a minute, by the way, believe that all these Republican senators, for example, are have bought into the religious right nutism Kool-Aid. It's, it's not true. Most of them just know that that's their core, that they're always going to be able to go into an election, being sure that there are 35 to 40 percent of the people who will vote for them as long as they don't look like they're on the wrong side of God. Right. Right. And so I don't believe for a minute that a lot of these Republicans give a hoot any more than Trump does about the Christian faith or any kind of religious belief. But they know where they're Money is coming from, and they know where their votes are coming from. We have to wrap it up. Before okay. you go, two things. Uh, yes. I'd like you to come back and do Monday's show with me. Secondly, would you debate Bruce? Because he said he would debate you. I, I won't have conservatives on the show mm. because there are no honest ones, but he is an honest Ralph sure. says, Ralph says uh, Grover Norquist is an honest. No, no, I, oh, no. that's a bridge no. too far. But, but uh, uh, I, I, that would be fun to talk to Bruce. Okay, again. I have I to learn. I have to sure. learn how to moderate a debate and do it in a way that uh, holds up to the standards. I, I won't. You know, not, I don't want talking heads. I don't want to. I don't want people screaming at one no. another. I, I'd no. like to host a debate between you and Bruce Fine. Sure. And stay on topic and, and no, have I to think be we, respectful, which is something I mean, you don't see anymore. No, 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 you don't. You don't even see healthy debates. And we can poll uh, the audience. What, what we could do is I have a polling widget. I know. And I, I can know. say, how many of you believe X? Then you start sure. the debate. Sure. And then I poll the audience. And then we bet on the results and I ask you to throw it so I can win. <laughs> well, I shouldn't have said that in front of everybody. No, don't say that. That's, Just that's right. delete that. Right. Um, you know, I, I, to moderate a debate, you have to know exactly what the questions are. Right. In other words, you have to set the questions, make sure that Bruce and I are relatively comfortable with those questions and then get on with it. And then have you Henry Huckamacki and Grace Jackson also ask questions. Nick, they can ask questions, too. Right. Everybody can ask questions. I'm trying to get a morning show going with Henry Huckamacki and Grace Jackson. 
Because I okay. think I think Henry Huckamacki and Grace Jackson mm. Jackson are the next Regis and Kathy Lee or whoever's doing it these days. <laughs> hey, and Henry, speaking of morning shows, what's a great way to start your morning? Yeah, people should uh, start their morning by listening to Gorilla History, new history podcast that's out. We've got two episodes out already. Uh, we're going to have a Patreon exclusive one come out tomorrow. That It's not quite Patreon exclusive. It's Patreon first, and then it'll get released uh, in you know, a week or so to the general public. Uh, and then we'll have another one about the week after that that's released to the public. We do have some Patreon exclusive things. But yeah, that's a good way to start your morning. If you haven't already subscribed to Gorilla History, you should. We've got two really interesting episodes up already. Well, let's try that one again. What's a great way to start your morning? Let's try again. Look to your yes. right. Yes. David, well, while you're listening to Gorilla History, that's, you know, yes. that's one part of a, a healthy, well-rounded breakfast is, is listening to Gorilla History. Yes. The other part of that, yes. that, you see, there's an equation here. You have to really work it, David. Okay. The other part of that equation is a bowl full of Feldos. Uh-huh. Feldos, I'm not sure if you've uh, heard of it or not before, David, but uh, Feldos is the right way to start your breakfast. When you don't believe, um, look at the COVID numbers that we've got in the U.S. right now. They are spiking out of control in most every state. And obviously, because the administration that we have right now pays attention to no one but scientists, mm -hmm. obviously what the scientists have been saying has not been effective because look at where we are. So instead of listening to scientists like me, for example, you should, uh, you know, listen to politicians. That's why they formulated Feldos, which now has 40% more hydroxychloroquine than any of the other leading cereal brands. It's Trump approved. What more could you want? Well, what more do you get? Free Scott Atlas Dakota ring when you buy your box of Feldos right now. So even you can decipher what Scott Atlas is saying. Nobody else, just you. And how much sugar is in uh, average serving of Feldos? Glad you asked, David. There's 40% less sugar in Feldos than the other leading cereals. It was just a one-to-one -one substitution with the hydroxychloroquine. It was quite an easy thing. So it, it's good so, for your teeth. Good for your teeth. And it cures COVID. We have an immunobiologist on the show. We don't have a Federal Trade Commission. We don't have an FDA, really, or an FCC. So like Alex Jones, I can say Feldos cures oh. COVID. But we do have lawyers, so I have to play this. But this is just to make the lawyers happy. Do not use if you are allergic to dichlorodiethyl sulfide or any of the ingredients in Plume X. It may cause serious infections, hepatitis B infection, allergic reactions, including a serious allergic reaction known as anaphylaxis, nervous system problems, this blood is just problems, for heart the failure, immune reactions, including a lupus-like syndrome, liver problems, newer worsening psoriasis, newer worsening Crohn's disease, or ulcerative colitis, diarrhea, stomach pain, Don't listen loss, to injection this. site reactions, upper respiratory infections, nausea, fungal skin infections, progressive multifocal This is just to make the lawyers common happy. Cold, headache, joint pain, nausea, fever, infections of the nose and throat, tiredness, cough, bronchitis, flu, trust back pain, me, rash, trust me, itching, sinus infection, safe. throat pain, and pain in extremities. Does not actually contain dichlorodiethyl sulfide, aka mustard gas. Also not great on hot dogs. Please do not ever put this on hot dogs or anything else intended to be consumed by humans or animals this or on animals directly. Unnecessary. Reported infections include active tuberculosis, which may be We live in such a litigious society. Should be tested for it's disgraceful, the red tape. During use. I'm, try I'm trying to help people to not get COVID-19. And the lawyers and are insisting that I have to play this nonsense. Would I sell this to you if I didn't believe in the product? Okay. 
the Reverend Barry W. Wynn. Hey, excuse me, as as your lawyer. Yes, sir. It didn't say it could cause death. No. You you have to put that in. Ah, here we what go. See, somebody, Henry? What if somebody does it? What if somebody eats it and chokes on it and then they die? And, you, and they'll go and they'll say, you said I might get a fungal infection, but you didn't say I might die. Henry. You have to say that. Do you see, Henry, I know you. I know <sighs> that you believe in big government. As do I, theoretically. But do you see, I'm trying to make money because that's how we get by, trying to sell Feldos, trying to cure COVID. And you see what the lawyers and the regulations do to a man? You're yeah, too- well, you know, they're like they say, the lawyers, if everybody had a role in a giant civil war, for example, the lawyers would be the ones who go around and bayonet the wounded after the battle. At least in the reverence case, <laughs> you can pray for their soul after. Anybody, you know? Exactly. Thank you, Henry. Uh, Reverend, God bless you. The Reverend, you. the Reverend Barry W. Lynn is a, uh, a, a minister in the United Church of Christ, I believe it's called. Is that, is that yes, the it is. Yes. Yes. And BarryWLynn.com. Go there. It's got all these great videos. And people should follow you on Twitter at BarryWLynn. Thank you. If you're Thank around you. later, we're going to go long tonight. So if you want to come back, please. Yeah, I probably can't come back, but I will come on Monday. Okay. I, I, I need you to come back. There's a lot to talk all right. about. There's lots to talk about. God bless you. Thank you. Well, this is exciting. Before I throw it to Henry, I would just like to remind America that Corin Lewandowski, the campaign manager, the first campaign manager, I believe, for Donald Trump has tested positive for the virus. This is a list of everybody in the Trump circle who has the coronavirus, Henry. Look at this. Look, look, look at the, this White House. Donald Trump, Melania Trump, I can't say the son's name. You're not allowed to even mention his name, otherwise you're politically incorrect. Hope Hicks, Stephen Miller, Stephen Miller's wife, Nicholas Luna, Kaylee McEnany, the press secretary, Carolyn Levitt, Chad Gilmartin, Harrison Fields, Jalen Drummond, Ben Carson, Mark Meadows, Brian Jack, Rona McDaniel, the RNC chairman, Bill Stepien, the Trump campaign manager, David Bossi, who runs Citizens United. He runs Trump's legal team right now. He tested positive. Kellyanne Conway, Chris Christie, Mark Short, the vice president's chief of staff. It goes on and on. Marty Ups. None of them are dying, Henry. Not a single one. Yeah, well, this we've described this many times, David, and I'm going to do it very, very shortly um, because I do want to get yeah. to our guests here uh, without taking too much time. But yeah, this is statistically what we would expect. We, we know that it the case fatality rate of COVID is hovering around 1%, perhaps just a bit under that. So unless you have uh, roughly 100 people that are infected, that are a cohort that is representative of the overall population of the country, the odds would be that you're not going to have somebody die. So this is, you know, pretty much in line with what we would expect, not to mention that these people are all going to be getting the best health care of anyone in the world. But like I've said before, we have had high profile Republicans that have died. We had Herman Cain. We had the guy who founded Turning Points USA. Uh, 
there's been a few high profile Republicans that have died. And you have to keep in mind that for everyone that dies, you would expect there to be about a hundred others that would be of a similar uh, stature that get infected and don't die. Okay. Well, thank you. I, I cannot introduce Henry without also asking him a question about COVID because that's his specialty. And we have a COVID town squares coming up, but this is ask Henry where Henry interviews somebody. Why don't you tell us who you're going to be talking with? Sure, David. This week we brought back a a fan favorite. Uh, I've done all the listeners a favor and I've brought back China and Taiwan expert and member of the chat room, Riff Raff, Grace Jackson. And Grace is bringing a guest to ask questions on Henry Asks this week. So, Grace is my guest. Why don't you do the honors of introducing your guest? Right. Thanks, Henry. Um, Well, thank you for uh, bringing me once again out of the darkness of the chat into the light of the panel. I'm really, really grateful. (laughs) Um, So today I've brought on a very special guest. He is a rare book dealer. A rare Um, book dealer. A rare book dealer. David, are you a bibliophile? I don't think that's any of your business. (laughs) Jesus, the question, the personal questions. (laughs) They couldn't prove anything in court. I had a little biblio, I'm guilty of a little bibliophilia, uh, but they couldn't prove anything. Go ahead. Right. Innocent until proven guilty. Um, Hold on. I just need to make sure I can't see the chat because it's going to distract me. You see what I'm talking about? Go ahead. Right. Yeah. Um, So, yes. Out of respect for a a rare books dealer, please don't do any reading, especially in the chat room. Go ahead. Uh. Yes, yeah, so we have a rare book dealer who is based in Brooklyn, New York, and he uh, specializes in materials pertaining to the counterculture and to transformative political and cultural movements of the 20th century. Very exciting. Uh, but before we ask Arthur to uh, introduce himself, and talk about his work. I'm going to ask him to introduce our host. Um, wow. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me, Grace and Henry. Um, I'm delighted to say that today's segment will be presided over by the um, impotent force, which is uh, David Feldman. I, th- I think you mean omnipotent. Um. No, I don't. <laughs> well, uh, okay. On that note, I'm let's get mute. this interview underway. I'm going to seethe. <laughs> yeah. So, Arthur, thanks for thanks for coming on the show. I think let's start with some really baseline questions to to introduce you to the audience. So, um, tell us about you know your background and and how you got into being a, a rare book and ephemera dealer. Yeah, I'm um, I'm still confused about that myself. I mean, my background is pretty straightforward. I'm a nervous person who soothes himself by going to jumble sales and looking for shiny objects. Um, it was either that or 
alcoholism, well, which I've, you know, kind of flirted with, but, um, or heroin addiction. Uh, so I chose, um, I chose jumble sales and I found myself attracted to the cheapest items because I was also very poor and that would either have been used lingerie and socks or, you know, old paper stuff. And, um, the old paper stuff, well, certainly in some ways being less exciting, uh, just was less of a disease vector. So I, I kept up with it. Um, and here I am, you know, years later, I make my living by sorting through dead people's old books and mail and, um, you know, the paper objects and photographs and, uh, posters and things like that, that they leave behind. And I do my best to make sure that, I mean, my, my, my personal motto is, you know, try to find the things that shouldn't get lost and bring them to people who don't lose things. And that's, that's what I do on, on, on the best days of my week is I'll find some part of the paper trail of the 20th century and identify it, uh, you know, its significance and think about where it should be. And, you know, in, in my case, usually that means a university library or university librarian will be part of the equation. And, um, I, you know, try to write, uh, solicitous enough emails, uh, so that someone will, will take pity on me and buy it. Yeah. So I've got just two more quick kind of intro questions before I let Grace ask some more pointed questions since you and Grace know each other already. Um, how much background research do you have to do on these pieces that you're picking up in order to kind of figure out what you're dealing with and then basically figure out what the value of them is? I mean, there's, that's, that's a big part of it. I mean, I'm not necessarily like a commodities trader who identifies valuable commodities in the world. And I just point to it. I'm like, Oh, that thing is worth money. I mean, usually the things that I'm most interested in have no fungible exchange value. Um, it's more about recognizing something as part of, you know, the secret history of the 20th century in some way. Um, it's like, what can this thing reveal if we spend enough time with it, using it as a lens to, or an aperture into a story. And if I see something that has a powerful graphic narrative or a, you know, um, a, a piece of text, uh, that seems to be missing from the larger archive as we currently know it, then I, then I recognize that there's, you know, something important there. And so what I try to do is do enough research so that I can, you know, narrate its importance to someone who's smarter than me, um, who might see it as, you know, what you might call a primary source document um, for a history that is yet to be written. Yeah. And then I guess the last kind of lead in question that I have is, as we mentioned in your introduction, a lot of the things that you deal with are basically countercultural artifacts and, and you end up selling a lot of them to elite universities and, and whatnot. What, how does that make you feel basically having this, uh, you know, these countercultural artifacts that have some really deep meaning to uh, a community, particularly oppressed communities. And then basically those artifacts going off to elite institutions that uh, are bastions of, of neoliberalism. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're, you're putting your finger right on the pulse of, you know, the whole, uh, frisson of, of what I do because there is something perverse to it. But what I would say, and what I always, um, you know, try to point out to myself and to others who worry about questions like this is that, you know, I'm delighted to say I'm not a manuscripts dealer and I'm not a dealer in unique fine art objects. I'm, I'm someone who trades in 
um, printed objects, most of which have been printed in some quantity, whether it's five or 50 or 500 or 50,000 copies. And if I find one of these copies and I believe that it's a missing part of the story that will help us understand the world that we live in and help us identify how it, how exactly it got to be the way that it is. Um, I feel like, you know, there's some, there's some, you know, worthwhile labor in that, that I can contribute by um, taking one of those objects and, and again, moving it to what I would call a forever place. I mean, that's what a, a, a library like, like Yale Beinecke or Harvard Houghton or the Getty or any tier one research institution, you know, that will probably be around as long as there's a Western civilization, you know, I mean, we can talk about whether or not Western civilization should continue to hang around, but as long as there is going to be one, there probably will be these libraries um, and repositories uh, that will stick around with us. And they make these objects, they can take some of the most radical ideas and the, the pieces of paper, which carry those radical ideas and make them discoverable to researchers. Uh, so they can become the sites of production for new knowledge. Um, they can uh, make them accessible to the public through exhibition um, and they can also preserve them um, in perpetuity. So those are the, those are kind of the hallmarks of why I like to be, you know, like this weird matchmaker between, you know, kind of, um, I mean, I've, I've worked, I've worked on documents related to Mujahideen movements in Afghanistan. I've been doing a lot of work recently on fanzines and, you know, kind of underground uh, cultural objects that uh, originated with queer communities of color um, uh, in Chicago and elsewhere. And, you know, the idea to me is that we're not going to understand who we are unless these voices are also part of part of the larger story. And if elite universities and civic institutions like New York Public Library don't contain those voices, then they're only going to have the voices of elite Judeo-Christian white folk and that's a problem. That's a big part of the problem that we're facing because, I mean, I almost want to get a tattoo of this, but there's a, there's a phrase that I repeat over and over and over again that comes from an essay by Jacques Derrida called Archive Fever, which is there is no political power without representation within the archive. And to me, that means that if your story is immersed or lost or overlooked or deemed unimportant to the kind of you know, structuring universe of words um, and particularly important words that are, you know, kept uh, in these repositories, then you are invisible and you can be erased. Um, but if your story is well recorded and, you know, particularly these originary documents, um, then it's harder to erase you. And, and your voice carries beyond your lifespan because paper is durable, more durable than we think it is. Grace, I'll turn it over to you now, and then perhaps we'll wrap up with some some physical things that we can look at at the end. Show and tell is always fun. Yes. Yeah, great questions, Henry. Um, that was a good a good intro. So what I want to follow up with is really a question for Arthur about this idea of the secret history of right now um, and how a lot of the objects and, and books and papers that you're, you're dealing with can inform, uh, you know, our understanding of the present. And when we've spoken in the past, Arthur, you've mentioned two particular um, kind of 
movements that happened in the 1970s that, you know, at, we may not um, think of them as speaking to one another, but they kind of have interesting uh, synergies. And also the fact that those movements that may have begun, um, you know, from a certain origin today have gone on to kind of define our present. So can you, can you speak a bit about that? Yeah, sure. I mean, this is always a prov provocation and it's, and it, it's always intended to be, but I sometimes like to talk about, um, you know, kind of the co-temporality of Islamic Jihad and Islamic revolutionary movements in Iran and Afghanistan uh, with punk rock that was happening in England and the United States, particularly leftist, secular, feminist punk rock. Um, and, you know, and these are, I'm, you know, I'm discussing, you know, communities that would not, it would probably be impossible for individuals from these communities to inhabit the same space in the same room um, and have a dialogue. But but if you talk about the 1970s, who was printing a mountain of paper in the underground and passing it out to anyone who would listen? Um, you know, punk musicians and, you know, kind of under, underground vegan communities and lesbian feminist poets on the one hand, and in other places, uh, Islamic revolutionaries. And, um, you know, we all know how that story moves forward. I mean, we definitely live in a world right now that I would say, you know, in many ways for the, for the better has been transformed by dialogues that originated within the countercultural left in the 1960s. Um, we also live in a world, unfortunately, uh, that bears a lot of the consequences of, you know, kind of ideological struggles um, during Cold War period when the United States government decided to weaponize, you know, in the words of Brzezinski, who was uh, uh, Foreign Secretary under Carter, um, uh, militant jihad against the Soviet Union. So around that same time, we were dumping tons of money into places like Peshawar, Pakistan, uh, you know, to fund arms sales, but also printing presses. And, um, you know, I mean, I can show you, it's always just fun. I mean, to kind of like, yeah, a little bit, you know, here's one of my favorite documents of, you know, maybe the countercultural underground left from England in the 19, late 1970s, early 1980s. This is Poison Girls, um, abort the system uh, era um, fanzine letterpress kind of you know lyric book and poster uh, words written in trust um, I want to just you know pull out the abort the system poster because I mean it's just expression to a certain sensibility at the time you know this is done on, on silk screen uh, with Gestetner and you can see the, um, the, the, you know, kind of the, 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 or actually that's Roniograph, I think at the bottom. Anyways, it's sometimes it's hard to get exactly what the print process is, but here's the poster, you know, for what was happening in a squat in London, um, in 1979. And, you know, here is, let's see, I think I have it within reach. There's a copy of a book that was published in Peshawar, Pakistan, um, by, it's called Al-Shihad, um, that was printed probably using American government money um, to promote Islamic Jihad in Central Asia. Incredible. And, you know, I know it's incredible that I even have this book in my hands, but, but I worked on a project. I worked on a project that, that, that helped bring an archive of that material to the United States, which is now, it's called the Afghan Partisan Serials Library. It's at Stanford University. Wow. Um, but I love, I just love these weird 
I mean, I, I'm not an expert. I'm not, I wasn't a participant in either of those communities. Let me just put it that way. And I'm not, I'm not an expert, but I recognize that these are primary source documents that should be open to scholarship and, and learning and inquiry. And that's what I try to do. Before David, I, before I let you say something, listeners on the podcast, if you're only listening on the podcast, check out the video on YouTube because uh, Arthur's being very gracious and showing us some of these artifacts visually. So if you're only on the podcast, make sure to check out the YouTube video to be able to see this. David, I, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, this is fascinating because we've talked about ephemera on the show with David Bacon, Citizen Bacon, who trades in ephemera. If you could speak to what you've learned about Marxism and valorization and how a piece of paper with a signature on it. Yes. What, what insight you've gleaned about uh, Marxist theory from trading ephemera where the labor, where there's value, but the labor was almost incidental sometimes. Yeah, I mean, if you want to talk about labor value theory, I mean, it's just fascinating, right? And then also commodification of the object and how these things kind of trade and gain speculative value. Uh, that's something I'm always curious about and cautious of because I think that, I mean, I'm not, I mean, maybe I'm, I mean, I definitely have my Marxism, but it's probably an occult Marxism. I'm interested in like Georges Bataille and his theories of money and his theories of value related to what he called the solar anus. You can have me back. I'll tell you all about the solar anus if you want to know. Is that near um, Uranus? Uh, I was going to do a Uranus um, joke, but I'm better than that. Um, but um, no, I'm but, not. I'm not better the, than that. the The idea, the idea being that 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 yeah, where does where does value come from? What is value, and what is speculative value? Look, if these were little pamphlets that said Andy Warhol on them or Jack Kerouac. I could point to them and say they have value because they've been traded in auctions and things that are valued by wealthy white people, you know, have this stable commodity value. Uh, but, you know, there's also conjectural value and it's, I think an act that you can, you can intercede in a market if you have special access to it, like, like a dealer like me, and I can make a claim for the value of a thing um, and say, hey, pay attention to this thing. You know, this is a matchbook made by, you know, um, Marxist revolutionaries in El Salvador, you know, and it tells part of the story. It's got a Susan And then you're, you're pumping up the price. Well, pumping up the price, yeah. I mean, what I'm trying to do is pay myself well enough so that I can continue to do this. And, you know, and I'm trying to be transparent enough about it so that if I'm working with the community, um, directly that has supplied these materials to me. I mean, that's very much part of my ethics is provenance and transparency. Um, you know, the Afghan materials that I have and that are now in Stanford were, you know, purchased in Afghanistan from an Afghan bookseller who was fully aware of what was happening. But, but and, we're finding with the museums in New York City, at least, you have wealthy billionaires sitting on the board. Yeah. They get the inside scoop on who the museum is going to be showcasing soon. Irregular war, the manual of irregular war. Yeah, this is a, this is a, 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 a counter revolutionary uh, warfare manual issued by the Mexican government or probably issued by the CIA to um, uh, for use in Contras uh, in, in the struggles, the military struggles in 
Latin America in the 1970s and 1980s. But yeah, I hear what you're saying. I mean, you know, but the thing is, is like what I really love about what I get to do and how I framed it is that I'm trying to do it in a way that serves, it brings primary source documents into library environments. And I think there's a pretty natural check on, on how far my speculative commodification of these objects can go, which is, you know, any smart librarian is going to look at me and call bullshit if I try to ask for too much money. But I think they're also going to say, Hey, granted, you need to eat, you need to live in an apartment in Brooklyn and you need to pay your rent. So like you, you maybe are contributing valuable labor to the process. You're doing some legwork that we couldn't do. And, and if I, if I earn my keep that way, then that feels, feels pretty fair and honest. But if I were just, you know, buying low, pumping it up by, by, you know, glad handing some dudes at, right. at, in New Haven and then, you know, spraying it out there and, 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 and making, making scads of money, then I'd be a dick. But you know, it would be fun to, we have to wrap it up. This is so fascinating because there's a thin line between hoarding. Let me tell you some really nasty, actually amazing. And I use nasty as a positive word. Um, Pornography or, or erotica. Little Richard. Well, this is a magazine called Thing that was produced by Richard Ford, who was a queer man of color from a wonderful community of, uh, you know, kind of people who are all over the gender spectrum in Chicago and the underground. And this is a fanzine that they made. But anyways, continue what you're saying. I'm just going to show you some dirty pictures. Oh, OK. Uh, OK. Concentrate, David. What year is this from? This particular issue oh is from Grace. Did you just say, "Oh my goodness"? Did that take your breath away? Also, we didn't um, discuss this. <laughs> well, we didn't discuss this, but is this going to get us in trouble? I don't know. I'll, I'll I don't know. That I don't know. My, gla- my glasses are fine. My glasses are fine. is on this show. I don't think there's anything that can get us in any more trouble right. than we already are in. Uh, well, uh, th- what we should Feel free do. To censor that. I'm sorry. Feel free to censor that. Okay. Uh, well, no, the people listening should definitely check out the YouTube channel now to see something that uh, uh, we never uh, have shown on the show before. But uh, uh, I've lost my train of thought. Would you want me to ask one quick question before? Well, what we should do on. is, uh, could we come back uh, in the future where people show their ephemera to Arthur and maybe Citizen Bacon, who also trades in ephemera. What if we have like 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 a radical ephemera antiques roadshow segment? That's what I was going to say. Do, and, and you hold up talk about the, the speculative commodification of your leftist paper from the 1960s radical days. I think everybody's that, got a shoebox under their bed full of gold. You know, that's there's a thin line between hoarding and being a collector, and a lot of people have older parents who survived the depression and won't throw crap out because they think it's worth something, you are going to worsen the hoarding problem. I mean, if that, if that, if that crap contains Lincoln brigade memorabilia from the Spanish civil war, I want to know about it. Interesting. Let's Henry ask a question and let's talk about doing an antique roadshow type of show with David Bacon. Well, Dave, David, you've got their emails. Why don't you just set the two of them up together? I think that that's a great Excuse idea. Me. What, what, one second, Henry. You're getting a, a little head of yourself here. Uh, you're an immunobiologist trying to cure Ebola. Okay. 
Yeah. Okay. You're an immunobiologist who's studying COVID-19, trying to stop a pandemic. Okay. Trying to help the listeners. Yes. I'm a podcaster. My time is much more valuable than curing Ebola and COVID-19. Okay. Okay. I, I suspect that you, I suspect you think that curing a pandemic that your time is more valuable than mine. And quite frankly, I resent that. Uh, I, you're right. I will. Uh, and Grace, I love you and Henry asking questions. I, it's delightful. Or come, you in, invite somebody on the show and you interview them. Henry, what is your last question? Yeah, Arthur, I was looking through your catalog, uh, catalogs and We'll have you tell the listeners how to find those because they're excellent. Um, one of the things that I noticed is that you had a lot of work that you were doing on the Black Panthers and Black Liberation more broadly. And I was just wondering, and so I'm asking a very specific example, but for a more broad answer, if that makes sense. Uh, so you're looking at stuff that people, okay, so listeners on the podcast, Arthur is a white man, I am a white man. Okay, let's get that out of the way. What? Arthur, you, 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 you lied to me. Yes, I know. Right. I know. You, you saw my last name, you thought I was Japanese, I know. Okay. But, uh, yeah, so Arthur, there's a lot of things that you're looking through that you and I as white men would never be exposed to, even if we were looking through books about the Black Panthers. So what kind of things can these artifacts this ephemera from the period of time that these groups were active, Black Panthers or other Black liberation struggles, like in South Africa, for example, uh, what can these artifacts teach us that books alone wouldn't be able to teach us? Well, I think as, as graphic rhetoric, as, um, as objects that are designed to have a visual impact on a public uh, that do not predetermine their public, but simply in a way, um, just, you know, they are available to anyone who has eyes to see. And if I have eyes to see and my eyes stop almost with shock and, and amazement and awe at a document like that, I believe it transforms, transforms me in a way, you know, I really do believe that we are impressionable and that we're most impressionable perhaps when we're young, but, but, but we remain impressionable and that um, that graphic art and political slogans uh, can change us. I mean, it can do the work that it's meant to do in the world. Um, and and I love that. And I also love the fact that 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 you know, in a way, through my exposure to a lot of this material over a decade or more of collecting it and trading in it, um, I believe that I've been transformed. And I also like to think that, in some cases, um, I've helped certain library spaces and museum spaces um, continue to do that work for other publics who would otherwise never encounter these things. That's just the way I feel about it. And again, you know, these things are released into the wild. They're put into a public space by their makers. Some of them are sold cheaply or given away at the time of their production. If it takes me a little bit of labor to come across one copy and to identify it and, and to create provenance records around it, and to try to be, you know, sensitive in how I handle it and then transport it to a place where, again, it can do that work for another audience. Um, that's, you know, that's really what I'm trying to do. And that's, again, I just feel like there are voices, you know, one of the things that I love about 
primary source documents and, and particularly ephemeral things like magazines and posters is that they usually have a time frame built into them. You know, they're addressing you now and now is maybe 19, you know, thirties Spanish civil war, 1960s Oakland, California during the, um, you know, the, the, the really the heavy and hottest days of the, um, you know, the black power movement. Um, and well, let's so continue that, this because we're running behind schedule. Sorry, yeah. You'll come back, Arthur. I'd love to. Yeah. And Henry, you revealed your truth about being a white man. I'm going to reveal my truth. I think it's only fair that I share with you my truth about who I am. Why don't you wrap it up, Henry, and thank everybody for being on the show. And then we'll bring in Bert Ross, if it's OK with you. Yeah. So first of all, thanks to, to Grace and Arthur for coming on. Uh, Grace for introducing me to Arthur via the show. Uh, Arthur, thanks for showing all of the stuff. I, I really think that this kind of ephemera is, you know, magazines and posters at the time uh, of events happening is a way of democratizing the production of information. Uh, and I think that it's critically important. And yeah, we would love to have you come back on, on the I, show. I, I really would uh, like to is have Mitch you McConnell speaking. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Grace. Yeah, thanks, Arthur. And Henry, thanks, and thanks. We, we should do a Zoom call, the three of us, and talk about future stuff. But thank you so much, Grace and Henry, and definitely Arthur in Brooklyn. How do people contact you again, Arthur? Well, they can just look up my name, Arthur Fournier. I'm pretty Googleable. I'm not the guy who's curing AIDS in Haiti. I'm the guy with the books. Oh, okay. <laughs> But there's another Arthur Fournier out there who's doing more important work in the world. Okay. Uh, and there's also something called the Virtual Book Fair. The ABAA Boston Virtual Book Fair is happening this weekend. It opened today. And if you are interested in rare books and you want to stare into a computer screen until your eyes bleed, it's a great place to go. Great. And check out Arthur's uh, uh, promotion. Or what's the word I'm looking it's for? Catalogs. Catalog. Exactly. Yeah. Look yeah. at the catalogs. They're really interesting. This yeah. is my new signal that we have to wrap it up. I make okay. funny faces. I'll shut up now. Thanks, okay. David. Thank you. Great job, Henry Grace. Thank you. Let's now go to Malibu, California, where American hero Bert Ross is standing by. We're running a little late today. I apologize for keeping you waiting there, Bert. Let me give you a proper introduction. Bert is a columnist for the Malibu Times. He is also a sex symbol in... 14 cities in Bergen County, New Jersey. He was once the mayor of Fort Lee, New Jersey. He's a slayer of mobsters. He's the energy czar, former energy czar of New Jersey, who invented the right turn on red. I think I've covered everything, haven't I, Bert? Yeah, that's my entire life. <laughs> Let me ask you. Who is in between your disguises, yes, there was a very attractive woman sitting at the mic. Was that Leslie? Uh, no, that's my sister. You're talking about this woman? Hang on. This woman? No, there was a woman. Oh, hang on for one second. Let me show you. You don't even. Oh, I know who you're talking about. The people who are listening to this don't know what. Uh... This is my twin sister. This yes. woman? Is this who you're talking about? Yeah, that's who I'm talking about. Who yeah. is that? That's uh, I'm, I'm David's twin sister. Hi, Bert. How are you? I, I never get a straight answer. I don't know if, if any do of you the do. Other do you think that did you ever meet me before? 
because I'm a pathological malignant this, narcissist, this a, and I'm very nice for two word, minutes, and then I'll cut you off at the knees. Show. What? Meshuggah. Completely. Do you think I'm attractive? We have an expert on ephemera. We have, for some reason, a, an attractive woman talking in your voice. We have. Oh, you're thinking of lot, Melania. Oh, you're talking we about have, Grace. Are you talking about Grace Jackson? No, it wasn't Grace Jackson. And then Jim Merrill had a, month, a minute ago a uh, a poster uh, or a photo. Yeah. Well, no. Of uh, yes, thank you. All right. Let, um, let's let's Hillary Clinton and Kissinger. Yes. Who gave me when I went to that elite university? Gave me a D. So I hate him. You have other reasons, like you got a D he, from Henry Kissinger. Yeah, it was really horrific. What uh, did you What did you know. study? Genocide. International uh, relations. He was so pompous, so arrogant that you and can't believe alive. Joe Biden isn't meeting with him right now for advice. Oh, please go. Oh, look at this picture. My okay. God. You studied with Henry Kissinger. I wouldn't say I studied. I went to a, I went up to a court. He would call, he would go down when Kennedy was president. He would go down to Washington and then he would come back once a week to give this course. And he was like a little god, very pompous. Um, and I saw him at a dinner for the Hebrew home for the aged, which is a horrific name, but a wonderful place in Riverdale. And his mother had been there. Uh, she was quite elderly. And I saw him at this dinner. And I said, you know, you gave me a D. And my wife, who loves me dearly, said I in front of him, you probably deserved it. You're so, lucky you weren't uh, a North Vietnamese. He would have given yeah. you a lot more. You're lucky you didn't live in Indonesia. Well, you're lucky you, uh, you didn't. No. You're lucky you weren't uh, Laotian or Cambodian. He would have killed you. Yes. That's bad, no, bad guy. Well, I, I am not a fan of his for many reasons other than his. That was not my final grade. I think I got it up to a B, but that's not why I hate him. It's the reasons you're talking about. Yeah. A lot of guy. blood on his hands, including in Chile and on and on. Yes. That's um, why he found a home at Harvard. Anyway, to be continued. Yeah, so I think most of the people, most of the people when, when I was at Harvard wanted to kill uh, Asians and, and South Americans. I was kind of right on. That was actually when you applied. That was one of the questions. Do you do you prefer killing South Americans or Asians? And if you put both, then you got in immediately. I would say that uh, yeah. the, the crimson, I believe that's the, the Harvard crimson, yes. blood, crimson red blood that mm. Harvard has more blood on its hands than any other university. And that's just for giving us the Simpsons. But uh, well, Jim, Jim you want to you want to back me up on this, Jim Earl? I think you have a lot of problems, Dave. I think you're like Jeff Goldblum in The Fly. You need to get some sleep. Okay. You need to stop fooling around with your software and all your little gadgetries and your little facades and be the real Dave Feldman that we all know and love. <laughs> okay. Let's talk to Bert Ross. Bert. Yes. Are, are you happy with the results? Uh, of the paternity test. Yeah, you know, uh, unfortunately, everything I'm going to say has been said by, you know, 
everybody, which is I feel more relief than happiness um, by our losing the Senate uh, or more than likely losing the Senate. Um, he is going to be restricted. Uh, our chances of anything resembling a pro- progressive agenda are almost non-existent. We have a uh, an ultra conservative Supreme Court. I was some I was surprised and pleased that Brett Kavanaugh looks like he will go with four other members so that we may be able to preserve Obamacare. But that's don't don't let anybody be deceived. That's a very ultra conservative court, an ultra conservative uh, Senate. We lost seats in the House. We lost state legislatures. We just had a census uh, and they're going to do redistricting and that's going to make the Republican Party stronger. And so and 72 million people voted for this guy. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to it's hard to be happy. And 40 percent are going to think he won 40. They just did a poll. 40 percent of Trump supporters think he won. Yes. Well, but he's the majority, the of, the he's majority the of them said they voted. Uh, the most important thing, reason for them voting for Trump was the economy, something which uh, the Democrats and Joe Biden never really addressed. All they addressed was we're not Trump. And that's why the election was so close. And okay. that's why we lost four seats in the House and didn't take back the Senate. OK, so but l- let me do this, Jim. Mm-hmm. Come back in a little while. Let me talk to Bert, because I don't I don't want him to have to defend his vote for Biden right now. C- can we do that? Don't argue with Bert. Every time you make a right you. turn on well, red. I, look, I I I felt and I still do that. My number one concern in picking a candidate was to get the monster out of the White House. And I still feel that. Uh, I unfortunately feel that had anybody else of the group of 18 or 22 people who ran, had they run against Trump, uh, I think Trump might very well have gotten reelected. But it's a sad state. I mean, the fact of the matter is that uh, we, we have people who believe in conspiracy the, uh, uh, theories. We have Fox News. More people watch Fox than I think CNN and MSNBC combined. Uh, I turn on, every day I turn on Fox for sometimes as long as two or three minutes. And it's, it's extraordinarily difficult to, to last that long. And that is what tens of millions of people are watching. And that's what they consider the truth. And it is vulgar. And we're also in the midst of a horrific uh, virus uh, where we had 150,000 new cases today. We lost, I think, close to 1,500 people in this country alone yesterday from the virus. And you turn on Fox and either they don't cover the virus or they have somebody like they did today. Paul Rand was on. Um, talking about how the, the great news is that even though there are more cases, not as many people per case die as did. And then they went after uh, uh, Anthony Fauci again. Uh, it, it's it, it's unbelievable. Hang on for one second, Jim. Anthony Fauci is sacred. You can't go out after that. That limp noodle. OK, hang on for one. Jim, Jim, Jim. Yes, Jim. What? Bert is an American hero. 
and well, you. So am I. Look what I did to that house. Okay, that's true. So, uh, what I'm going to ask you to do mm-hmm. is please. That's come painful to- because I lost my house to a fire. Two that's years right. Ago. So, so when I see a house on fire, it's kind of. You know, my dad no, lost not meant for that, that purpose. We my dad, lost, my dad lost his house at age 93 to bankruptcy oh. because he couldn't afford his uh, medical bills under Obamacare. And so did my brother, by the way, from medical bankruptcy. So. OK, that's unfair to Bert because he makes his living foreclosing on medical bankruptcy. Oh, come on. Hang on. Let's I, he's on. I, I, I'm making a joke. I didn't think it was a choice between losing your house to fire and losing your house because you can't pay your medical bills. And I'm I'm not quite sure why you're being combative because I certainly don't. That's why I have him on. Let me explain to you, Bert. I have Jim on the show because he's brilliant and he's a great comedy writer. And I've known him uh, since I started doing comedy. And he's going to be on the show later. And you can you can I know you're angry at Biden and and, but both you and Bert and I can be right. Jim, come back in a little while. Can you do that for me, please? Uh, How long? I I have important. I have to I have puppets. (laughs) Okay, Uh, I love you. And I want to hear from uh, Senator Susan Collins. Let me talk to Bert, please. Do you mind? I'll be back in a half hour or so. Come back in a half hour. Craig Berko and Judy Gold are going to be here. Okay? But we'll have fun. Okay. Bert. Yeah. I, I am going to tell you that uh, I thought of you this week because it's really hard to get rid of Donald Trump. Now, I don't like Biden. And I know you wanted Bernie, but you were one of those people who early on said we have to we have to elect somebody who can defeat Trump. Getting rid of Trump is the most important issue on the table. There were a lot of people like me who said you can't replace Trump with something that's almost equally as bad like Biden. So I voted for Biden kicking and screaming. I will. I thought of you and I was going to call you because up until today, I thought I knew Trump was going to be hard to get rid of. I didn't realize how dangerous, how truly dangerous this guy is. And it makes me angry to admit this. But up until today, I wasn't sure he was going to go, but for Rupert Murdoch, but for Rupert Murdoch, we'd have blood in the streets right now. It all comes down to whether or not Fox News, the Wall Street Journal and the New York Post, all owned by Rupert Murdoch, it all comes down to whether or not they are going to animate that crazy base of Donald Trump's. All it takes is Neil Cavuto and Brett Baer and all those idiots on Fox. Bear, wait a minute. You're taking you're taking two of their best. They're, if you want to talk about 
the the monsters at, at Fox. Well, they had well, hang on, they, reading, it's the Holy Trinity. It's Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram. Brett Baer and Neil Cavuto are not your problem. But their decision they are, desk, they brought in this guy who turned Arizona before anybody. Oh my God, Fox went, the president is still going apeshit about it. But, but, but had, had Rupert Murdoch fired the guy who runs their decision desk and forced him to flip Arizona, which he didn't, there'd be blood on the streets right now. That's, that's the difference. They, for a network to declare that somebody won a state, doesn't mean the person won a state. We've had times where where uh, networks were premature. No, no. The point I'm making it. is uh, the point I'm making is I'm supporting you when you say that yeah, we're very you. close to oh uh, to fascism. That Trump. Oh, this is the close look. There is no question. I'm 77 years old. I can't talk about before then, although I have read extensively. But I don't know. Certainly not in my lifetime, and I can't remember when we had such a threat to our democracy. Uh, but the thing I don't understand, and, I'm, and you may have Alzheimer's, we talked earlier about my not showing up last week. Oh, right. And I had a whole shtick prepared. All right, we'll do oh, the shtick. Oh. I'm sorry, I apologize. <laughs> well, we got the show was well, a, so serious. Okay, all right, serious. we'll do the shtick. Well, no, it's a funny shtick. Let's do it. Um, Can you guys handle a little humor? Well, you, you see, now let me give you a lesson. It's very little. You cannot tell little. people you're about to do something funny. You have to sneak it in. But here, here's the thing. Bert wasn't on the show last week. He is the most punctual man. I think we should save it for next week. We're going to kill the bit. Okay. What the hell? You're right. right. It's well, a great man, bit. Think- the we'll idea is, and let me let me tell people what the bit is, and then we'll do it next week. The idea is that Bert wasn't on the show last week. And I said he was scheduled, so the only excuse, the most punctual man in the world, the only thing that I can ascertain is that he died. So joining us from heaven is Bert Ross. How are you, Bert? How are things in heaven? Not so good. <laughs> What's you know, it like? I hear it's it, for it's um, there. You know, part of the problem is that God put everybody back into our original state of nakedness. Right. And there's some famous people here. I'm sitting across not very far from me. Eleanor Roosevelt. Ah. And, and Mother Teresa. Mm. Now, that would be very good. But not naked. Trust okay. me, right. you you really don't want that. Let's do this you next week. Let's do this next week. Okay. By the way, I, I don't think Mother Teresa makes make it. it to, no viewers next week. I don't what, think she makes what? it to heaven. Mother Teresa Which isn't one? gonna make it to heaven. Do I give a shit? I'm trying to do a shit. Well, why would you? Good reputation. What do I care? Mother Teresa. What the fuck? Why would you say Mother Teresa told the people in Delhi not to use contraception? Why would you think that she would make it to heaven? Do we have pets? Do we see our pets in heaven? That's another thing. Yeah. God, there isn't an animal up here. God, God doesn't like dog shit. (laughs) Okay. 
Grace, if I can get Grace to laugh, I'm home. Let's do it next week when I remember the best. Today, let me tell you. Grace, you got to... You got teeth. Get the hand out of there, Grace. I want to see teeth. Let, let me tell you something, Bert. Okay. She's left. She says enough. This is what I... What? I'm trying to learn some new technology, and mm. I felt my whole world was falling apart. Yeah. I would say I finally gained insight into what you went through when the Gambino family was trying to kill you, and you had to go into hiding for a year. Mm. I, I understand the Not pressure. Huh? It wasn't a year. It wasn't a year. How long was it? It was about 12, 14 weeks. Oh, that's not so bad. No. Walk it off. Yeah. You got a whole sure. book about this? And so you, so the Gambino family tried to kill you for 12 By the weeks. Way, if anybody, if any, I'm, I'm not trying to sell my brother's book because I think he makes 10 cents on it. And Do you know how much done. it sells on uh, Amazon? Well, it depends. I, I guess it depends if you get a, a used copy, a new copy, a hardcover, or... or it's you, can, you, can probably, you can probably get it on Amazon for a few dollars. I mean, no, I think it's like a couple dollars. hundred bucks, actually. No, those are signed books that, that, that collectors are trying to peddle. If you go to Amazon.com, you can get it very cheap. Um, and it's called The Bribe by Philip Ross, not Philip Roth. Right. And, um, you know, it tells my life story, basically. So it's right. Kind of and, and let me just he turned down half a million dollars from the Gambino family. Long story short, he wore a wire and brought down the Gambino family and they try to kill him for him for, for it. Yada, 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 yada. I'm yeah, a yeah. hero. <laughs> yada, yada, yada. I'm so brave. Yeah. My sister used to. <laughs> <laughs> my sister had down. pictures yeah. of this man. Gambino family. What? <laughs> Down, I didn't bring them down. Well, you brought somebody down. My I sister, couple of them to jail. My sister, every Jewish girl in Bergen County had pictures of this man on their wall in the seventies. David Cassidy, Bobby Sherman, Burt Ross. This man was a sex symbol. I love the way he says everybody, meaning his sister and her girl. Do you know that when I ran into you ten years ago? 40 years after this, my sister was on the phone with all her girlfriends. He's married? Oh, that's too bad. He's married. They were, they, they, these Yentas were gossiping. They still have cr a crush on you, Bert. Well, what can I say? You're a sex I symbol. Had, I have to tell you, I had an amazing conversation with an old friend of mine. Uh, and she told me that six or seven people, at least, had during her youth proposed marriage to her, including a professor, including um, uh, a uh, a friend of her husband's. I mean, it's, it was weird. But this was a time. This was a time where you could only have sex if you proposed to the woman. Would you believe that when one of the people, she told me that her husband died, I'm sorry, he, he when his wife died, he called this woman up to see if, if she, and she's been happily married for a zillion years, if she, if she would marry him. And what and did then, she say? 
She's married. And then she said, he then said, believe it or not, well, when your husband dies, would you be interested in marrying me? (laughs) This sounds like something you'd hear at the Hebrew home for the aged. Yeah, exactly. It's exactly correct. I, as I said, I, in six months, in six months. All right, Bert, today has been absolute chaos. It's been it's been a chaotic show. That uh, that do you have anything to do with that? Yes, yes. You accept full responsibility. I take full responsibility for this show. It it it, it has been one technical disaster after. My God, I can understand that because above Jim Merle is Melania. Above right. uh, somebody whose name I, I'm sorry I forget says Professor Marianne, which I don't think you are, but it's very yes. You got you know what I I I try to model good behavior and I try to keep calm That's funny. and carry on no matter what. Kind of like you. So must go on. Yeah, you got it. So uh, before we'll, we'll do five more minutes and then we'll bring in Emil Guillermo and we'll get the. And so are you optimistic? Do you think? No, that you're not. No, I'm. uh, uh I think that the odds are good that Joe Biden will become president. Amazing to be able to say that an individual who won by five million votes might be president. Uh Uh, That's frightening that that, that there should be any question about that. I'm not optimistic because I think I think our Constitution is outdated. Yep. uh, And it is almost impossible to change it. We've had 27 amendments in 230 something years. 10 of them were the Bill of Rights. So that was at the beginning. So since. And then there was a prohibition that was a prohibition was two. The right uh, to give women the vote was one. Uh, Which you were for, I believe. (laughs) I think they should take away the right to vote from men. Yes. We'd be we'd be infinitely better off. Yes. Um, the the last amendment, which was the 27th, was back in the 1990s when uh, Congress voted. Uh, the, it was a prohibition for Congress to give themselves a raise until the next election. In order to get a, a, a constitutional amendment, I think you need two, at least two thirds of each House, the, the, the House of Representatives and the Senate. And then I think you need three quarters of the states. We couldn't even get the Equal Rights Amendment passed. Uh, and we have a system, there are two things that, that, that are killing us. One is um, the every state having two senators is brutal. So you have California with 38 million people and you have, and they have two senators and South Dakota has two, North Dakota has two, Wyoming has two. Um, that's, so you have a Senate today that represents uh, I think about 50 million fewer people than the Democratic senators. And that's not going to change because you can't, ch- it's impossible to change the Constitution. The, sec- um, the second thing is that we have a federal system. And so take this, this pandemic as a perfect example where you have 50 generals. Every governor is doing his or her own thing. That's crazy. You couldn't fight a war with 50 generals. And that's the way we're fighting the virus. Um, so I'm not optimistic, unfortunately. 
Uh, and I think the, the countries that have a, a more national system uh, are going to be able to move forward, progress much quicker than we're going to be able to. Uh, I'm also pessimistic about the debt. I, I saw a clip once, uh, Dwight Eisenhower in the late 1950s, in his second term, apologized profusely because he had created a $1 billion deficit. The If the interest rates go from historic lows and rise 1%, which isn't great, they're way several percent below their normal average, that will cost us a quarter of a trillion dollars and growing. And the more money we spend on servicing the debt, which does absolutely nothing for anybody, and the more money we spend on an inflated defense budget, uh, we're going to crumble. And we're going to crumble not because of the communists and because of, of enemies abroad. It's because of our own stupidity. And we have election after election uh, where the public doesn't understand. They often don't understand their own interests. Um, the campaigns are run pretty much as a, as a string of, slog- of slogans. We have no, no ability uh, to, to critically analyze news or to even understand what's news and what's propaganda. For people to listen to Fox News and, and think they're coming away with news is, is, is no, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm unfortunately not hopeful. And it's sad to be at the, uh, the twilight, to use a corny expression of one's life, but I'm 77, and to realize um, that our country has serious problems and we're really uh, far, far from addressing them. So yes, Joe Biden, is a humongous improvement over, over a monster who's, who's, who's basically wants to be a dictator. Um, he's not, he's not going to be mean like that. Um, he's not going to be self-centered like that. But, and he will not be an America first where the rest... See, there's nothing wrong with America first so long as everybody else is in second, third, and tenth. And that there's some respect that there are other people who live in other countries. So, yes, I think Joe Biden understands that. And that will be a remarkable improvement. But in terms of the ha- of having the power to change, he'll change certain things. We'll get back in the in the uh, Paris uh, Climate Treaty, et cetera. But we have fundamental problems that aren't aren't going to be addressed. Yes, to be continued. Yes, very good. You want to know, want to know what God sounds like? Yes, because I'm in heaven. Yes. Buddy Hacker. It's very, very. <laughs> I can't tell you. I can't begin to tell you how. And by the way, you don't see the figure. God, God up here is just a voice. Uh huh. You want to know what they eat up here? What do they eat up there? It's thank you. You know, if you are not, if I'm Mel Brooks, which I'm not, you are not my Carl Reiner. Thank you. This 2001 year old man. You're that's I have to give you I have to do both sides. Okay. Right. A lot of gefilte fish. That's what we eat up here. A lot of gefilte fish. Every day he thinks it's Passover. Mm-hmm. That's it. Mm-hmm. Well, I have to. We're not right. doing this. We're not doing this stick again. We're gonna do it next week. No, but- I did it already. That's my shot. What do you want from us? Okay. I, I. First of all, I spoke to you on the phone. The the joke is that you're not supposed to want to do the bit. That's the joke, but we'll talk about it. Well, no, we're, we're not doing that again. That's, yes, we are. We have to. We're going to do it. 
Believe me, it'll be brand new. Nobody's going to come back and watch this show again after today. <laughs> so we're going to have a brand new audience. So trust me. Well, I hope by the time Jim Merrill comes back, he's not as angry. He's angry. Not at you. I, he's just angry. I, I, when I when I said um, that it just when I see a house on fire, even though it's a, a photo of um, a drawing, whatever, it, it kind of reminds me of losing our house. Uh, I didn't expect him to talk about how if you think that's bad, how do you think my father and brother and uncle did when they lost their house because they couldn't pay their medical bills? He writes comedy. This is why I have him on the show. Thank you. I, it's it's I like confrontation, I, but, you know, I, we don't want to have a show where everybody agrees with one another. That's not entertaining. You want to mix it up a little. Storm off the show and say you're never coming back. That way we'll have some. Uh, I, 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 this has been so, so horrible. <laughs> that, that I don't have, I'm a fairly articulate person. Uh-huh. And I don't have words. If my wife were to ask me, how was today? I couldn't begin to describe how awful, horrific. Doing this show is horrendous yes in, in every in every way it was embarrassing humiliating demeaning so i so i did my job exactly thank you i love thank you, you. So long, David. we'll talk to you next week i hope thank you let's Bye. go let's go to northern california we were just in southern california where emil guillermo was standing by he's a columnist for aldef as well as the host of the PETA podcast sorry to keep you waiting that's all right. But we're Dude, running. We're good. We're, we're going to go long tonight. We'll have plenty of time for everybody. I, I love talk. I love listening to Bert. You know, I had a conversation with God myself. Yes. And here's what she said. Yes. She said that Kaylee McEnany should be should be tied up and sent to uh, purgatory. Something like that. She did. She did. I mean, I was responding to a tweet Someone retweeted that Katie, Kaylee McEnany said it's 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 up it's in God's hands now, and I said, well, I I spoke to God and she said that uh, you know now it's interesting how times have changed. You say yeah. God is a woman. There was a time when I did stand up comedy on television a lot, and yeah. I could not only get away with but was encouraged to do the following joke: I think God is a woman. Oh, they asked you to do it. Yeah, th this was one of, and I would do this on television. I think God is a woman. How else do you explain all the pain and suffering on this planet? That was a joke that I used to do on television. And it would get a laugh and the women would boo me and then I'd play. But you could never do that on television now. Or a and podcast. I, now you can only do it on the internet. You could have do it with David Chappelle. Dave Chappelle, uh, yeah, you can do that easily. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I think yeah. Anyway, I used to do that a lot, and uh, what's a what's a producer a woman? Yeah, oh, they loved it. No, the producer was a woman, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 I remember yeah. I did a show, and Fran Lebowitz. I remember doing that on Comedy Central, and Fran Lebowitz was on the panel, and yeah. she <laughs> didn't think it was funny. Well, but, you and know, friendly, I, I, and I wanted to impress Fran Lebowitz. I love Fran Lebowitz. Yeah. But, 
Uh, well, I see. Yeah. But, but, you know, there are jokes that I did in the past that would get a rise out of people, but I would engage. They would, the women would boo me. Right. And then I would, you know, I would talk to them. I wouldn't be in a bubble. I, I let the chips fall where they may. I would say something that was purposely anta- not antagonistic, but playful. It was your pickup line. It was my pickup line. But the comics who complain, I'm not allowed to say you're you're allowed to say anything you want. You have to live with the consequences. I used to go on these shows and get booed. I would invite the audience to boo me. Yeah, it's okay. Now, look, I, I mentioned now that God is a woman, and I don't get a laugh. I get a lecture. Right. From David about the past. I think God, uh, go ahead. I'm not going to do I, I have all these bits about well, God. I'm, have, I'm going to have dinner. Be well. Give my give my love to your better half. I will. So long. Bye. Thanks. Hey, hey Bert. You know, seriously, David, uh, listening to you guys at the end there, it got me depressed. I mean, I was already pretty depressed. Are you really? I, I, yeah, after the exuberance of last weekend, you know, we were, oh, we were so happy. Oh, here in another day to extend the week. And we're still counting, right? Right. And then Saturday happens, the, the announcement comes up, CNN declares. And, you know, people are out in the streets. Okay, watch out 14 days from now. What's going to happen? Who knows? Another super spreader event. But uh, are you depressed or are you being funny? No, I'm not being funny. It's Why are you me. depressed? Well, because, like I said, I don't understand why. Don't you go ahead? Well, what you were saying about where we are, I mean, uh, I guess uh, I should take some uh, uh, I should I should be hopeful that, you know, some, you know, the the headline, you know, it's cracks in the Republican, you know, in the Republican Party. There's some are talking about transition and they're, you know, but we are in this kind of limbo until Trump says something a little more positive about what what direction he's going to go i think he's going to play it all to the hilt you know i think he's got until he's not going to go into january some people say november 20th maybe you know he'll sort of like begin to let you know uh let on that yeah he recognizes he's lost but I, I I just don't like the way things are going. I'd like to see something a little more definitive right now. I and- agreed with you yesterday. I was on the phone all day yesterday and today, and I got talked out of the way you feel right now. I, wow. I, I agreed with you 100%, thinking, boy, people sure have faith in a system that doesn't deserve it. Like, why would, yeah. you, th- why would you think, well... People on television tell us Biden's going to be president. It must be true. And, you know, Trump is playing to history and he doesn't want to be remembered. And I, but I, there were a couple of people who I really trust. Yeah. And they uh, said, and they said, you know, Andy Brown last week, who lives uh, in Minneapolis. I like to piss him off and say Minneapolis. He's from yeah. Minnesota. And he was saying, why would you? say because last show i was saying i don't think it's going to be that easy to get rid of trump he said on the show last week well what mechanisms are at his disposal to take over the government and change the way we do things and i thought andy was being a little naive because i think if you just smash every norm 
You don't have to obey any laws. The norms at this point seem to be holding to some degree. So what you're saying is in the end, big money will trump Trump. And the, the, the corporate interests that control him will ultimately uh, push him out or have a way to convince him that, look, it's better that you run your streaming service, go after Fox and take your, your revenge on Fox and let the right sort of kill each other and, uh, you know, do his self-immolation thing on, on the right while the left and the middle try to figure out how to govern you know, uh, we're in, in the uh, in the adult table. Yeah, they can play in their sandbox. I, I mean, I see it. I mean, as you were saying that, I was thinking, yeah, you know, Trump. People have begun to say things like a dictator. You know, they they've they've sort of crept away from authoritarian. They started to say dictator. Dictator was a word that I I use because you know I'm Filipino American, and Filipinos know about Marcos and dictatorship and authoritarianism. Well, Duterte. Was he elected? Oh, yeah, he's elected. He's not. How popular he's not, is he? He's very popular. That's a scary thing. He's part of that authoritarian trend. But the thing about Duterte is he is he is only martial law only exists in one province to not, fight you know, the Islamic extremists. Yeah, That's what they, right? Mindanao. Yeah, it's a sort of partial martial, as they say, but it's it's not the entire country. But he is still Mr. Extrajudicial. He's with to kill know, the he, drug dealers, they say, to get the drug dealers, the police. And and, and like I said, uh, he's tremendously popular. The people love him. So let's uh, talk about if you don't mind, let me get my yeah, arms around right. this, because this is really important. Yeah. Authoritarian impulses lie underneath all democracies. And I'm not going to flatter this country and say it's even a republic. But for all intents and purposes, let's say this is a democracy. They are saying that this is the most honest election we've had I in, saw that headline, in, yeah. in decades. But, you know, that's all part of the propaganda to get rid of Trump. Right. You know, uh, but they are saying this is the yeah. There's no fraud. There's, there's no, no fraud whatsoever. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. he lost. Yeah. yeah. But let's just say that for purposes of this discussion, that America is something like a democracy and that mm -hmm. we don't have a military dictatorship, even though half our budget goes to the military and we don't get to vote on a war and the cops have been militarized. But we have a, a patina of democracy. Oh, who am I kidding? We've been a since Johnson, this, this has been a military dictatorship. But just no, for the sake for this, this generals look pretty impotent, you know, despite, you know, with with Trump acting the way he is as as the commander in chief, they're not looking very strong. I mean, OK, but what happens? Let's just pretend okay. that America is a democracy. Okay. And Fantasy Island. Okay, how do we, what happens in the Philippines? What happens in Hungary or Poland or Brazil? The people and the judges enable a, a fascist dictator, correct? What happened no. in the, what happened in the Philippines? You know, it's, uh, it's you got that weird economic structure, right? Uh, where there's there was no middle class, no middle class. It was it was the one percent in the ninety nine, and you know what I was thinking. What we when people say that 
the United States is creeping toward a kind of, you know, when they call it a banana republic and some of the commentators say that, what they really mean is you got to think about this. When, when I was last in the Philippines, you know, everything was slow. There was bureaucracy. The only way to get things going is you had to grease a few palms. Right. You pass. And that's the corruption. And it, that's where in the, it's at the people level, at the constant, you know, uh, the, and the, corruption the, facilitates fascism, because once you have once everybody's corrupt. Right. You have like, no just, faith in any of the institutions. So you need a strong man. This is what Madeleine Albright writes in fascism, that once you lose faith in the institutions, once you say they're all corrupt, you right. need a strong man to come in and cut through all the BS. It's bottom up. It's bottom up autocracy, right? It's a what? It's it bottom up autocracy. It's where you know everyone at the bottom knows it. That the only way they're going to get anything is they got to you know shove a few pesos underneath under the table, right? Under the, and and to to some degree that happens here. Not Manhattan, New York, New York City. Zoe Baird, Trump. Zoe knows what that's about, you know, doing things under the table. She was going to be, I believe, the attorney general for Clinton, but then she wasn't paying her nanny Social Security. So, you know, the whole the whole thing is, uh, you know, and people, Democrats, uh, they all like to talk about rule of law, but it begins there at the, the very bottom level, you know, passing a buck on to the guy who's going in. It starts when you visit a place like the Philippines, it starts at the airport, you know, to get bags through, you know, here's a couple bucks to get, you know, to get by in the lines. Here's a couple bucks. And then uh, and soon you realize, well, that, that's what the society's built on. And that's and that, what New York City was built on. I mean, you cannot. Yeah. That's what Trump understood. You just buy the judges. You threaten the lawyers. See, and, and that was that's really the scary thing about Trump. And you realize that, uh, you know, this is how he saw business. And people say, oh, we want people voted him in under the, the this premise or this idea that, oh, we want a businessman. We want a businessman to run the country. Well, I don't know why, because government is not business. Government is uh, more like a well, you know, it's about the people. It's not about profits. And, and so they get. We sort of got what we wanted or what the what the base of the people who were fed up with government. They were so fed up. They really tossed government out the window when they elected Trump. And now I think only because of the coronavirus, I think people are saying that that really exposed Trump as being like, hey, look, all the people dying record numbers now. And Trump barely comes out and says anything. He's tweeting against all the, you know, the GOP and, and whatnot. He's not talking anything about the virus. It's uh. I don't know. I'm I'm also depressed about Thanksgiving coming up. Right? Yeah, hang on for one second. Talk about the corruption, because you you lived in. Did you ever live in New York? You lived in Massachusetts. I, 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 I played in New York. I had girlfriends in New York. I guess I kind of lived there a little bit, but right. Not, yeah, I didn't really live there, but I I knew it. I experienced it. You know, and I I but I knew it when it was. I was there mostly in the 70s and 80s. That, those were kind of like not great times right. for New York, right? Right. So the, the CEO of Pfizer yeah. last week, no, this week, they announced a vaccine that's 90% effective in combating coronavirus. 
Turns out on the day he announced that Pfizer had a cure, the CEO of Pfizer sold $5.6 million worth of stock options. Now, Pfizer has been sitting at the same price for like 20 years. It wasn't moving. And as I understand it, it jumped on Monday because they cured COVID. And he authorized an early sale of his stock. Uh, Is it insider trading? It's probably on the margins. Yeah. But... Someone's got to get paid, David. Come on. It's the system. And, you know, it, make, it could be a bad vaccine. We don't we don't know how effective it will be. It's sort of effective now, but we've got this mutating virus. And, uh, you know, we talked on the PETA podcast this week about the mink. The mink. We'll get to that in a second. But the, yeah. the corruption that's so rampant yeah. in America. I love this. Uh, their Kodak has been pretty much going out of business for the past 20 years. I I think they barely make anything. I still have my Instamatic. Yes. And at the beginning of COVID, one of the filmmakers in Japan, their stock soared because somehow they had the inside track on a cure for COVID. And then suddenly all this money started going to Kodak. Operation Warp Speed somehow was funneling money to Kodak and suddenly Kodak was in play. And this is a story that says Kodak has revealed that an ex-executive, several ex-executives sold stock options this year that they didn't own. Company says weak weak controls failed to prevent former staff from exercising forfeited options back in July and they collected $5.1 million in stock options that they didn't own. That's what it's come down to, where you're selling stock that yeah. you don't even own based on inside information on a stock that's getting money from the government to a, a camera company, Kodak, is getting in on the virus. I mean, the corruption runs so deep. Why would Kodak, which can't even make a camera anymore, be yeah. be a in somehow considered to be uh, offering a cure for covid the, you know, i mean uh, we're there when you talk about the philippines and greasing yeah. hands and we're the there. corruption i mean we're well, there yeah. well well with trump especially look cuz uh, you know as i've written in my in my column you know what trump did is he he has uh, set this new kind of standard you know everything goes uh, unless you're you know just don't get caught right it's like your 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 actions can be criminal but only if you're caught and so that's if that's the new american standard that's a sad standard and maybe it's something that has been going on i mean i i just think it's exposed it a little bit because the man who believes in it most you know got to the highest office in the land that's what's really depressing about our government. And then I, I did he reason. get there or was he put there? Oh, I think he I don't know. Look who he beat. I don't think he was put there. I, I think he really was just trying to do a stunt kind of campaign where he wanted to be the most famous man. 
because he doesn't want the job. He doesn't want the work. He doesn't want the responsibility. And he doesn't want to be uh, uh, taken to task by the historians, right? He doesn't read history. He doesn't want to be a part of history, but he would like to be famous. And that's his thing. He's a talk show host and he would like to be, um, you know, he goes to the rallies and he riffs because he wants to be a funny guy, right? The funny guys, all, the serious guys all want to be funny. The funny guys all want to be serious, right? That's uh, that's the way it goes. And, and now Trump's got, you know, he's now at the end of his rope and he hasn't figured out his exit plan. He just thought that he could just stay on. And I guess maybe he was just harboring the fantasy that, oh, well, I can kind of call my own shots because like, and then today the story comes out that maybe he would consider a self pardon. That yes. Would, you know, the ejaculative justice all over. <laughs> self justice, <laughs> <laughs> self pardon. And uh, you know, he'd have Congress, you know, that's why this congressional race in Georgia is important because you know, con- who would be, you know, who'd, who'd be in control of Congress? And then, and then the, the third option that people have mentioned is the Pence option. What do you quit. think this million MAGA march in D.C. is going to look like? A million MAGA march? They're going to have that? On Washington, really? D.C. What date? I believe it's this weekend. Oh, my God. This is, well, you know, imagine when those uh, Christian guys from Kentucky and the Indian... When they got together in that thing with, uh, you know, the Native American protester in Washington, I guess that was a couple of years ago. Right. You know, multiply that by, I don't know, it's going to be sort of like that. And you'll have protesters and counter protesters. And then there'll be, you know how this story is going to play out because all these stories have happened before. Every time there's been a big march, how many people are there? What kind of aerial shot? Who's going to say that? The million people. The groups that are sponsoring this are Stop the Steal, D.C., our friends, the Proud Boys, and the Oath Keepers. You know, the Proud Boys were terrorizing Portland, but there weren't so many of them. Yeah, I I just think that's it's it's a kind of hype, but it'll it'll expose them unless a lot of people just come together because they they have such an outpouring of... uh, I know love for Trump. I mean, I, it's hard to say that, but I know some very smart people and some of them are, live outside this country. They, they have moved out. They've retired outside. One close friend of my, my, my family in Israel. I have actually two in Israel. They, they left there. They won't even talk to us anymore. They won't talk because they are so mad that, that, that the election has been stolen. From Trump, even though Netanyahu, the prime minister yeah. of Israel, called Biden to congratulate him. Exactly. I, yeah. but th- th- these are very intelligent, in- highly intelligent, but very no, they're not. Sure. No, well, they're not. Well, I, I try to just sort of keep the friendship together. How could you how could you be intelligent and and not believe that Trump lost this? Yeah, because you have such a belief well, either you're just uh, so ensconced in your little silo that you cannot believe that, you know, that maybe there's a different kind of truth out there that you should pay attention to. You know, it's I mean, interesting on this show, I've always said, and Professor Harvey J.K. and I have gotten into arguments about this. I always say, I don't want to hear color. I don't want to hear anecdotes. To me, anecdotal evidence is garbage. And it's one of the reasons I 
skip ahead when I read certain stories where, you know, Emil Guillermo was host of the Peter, you know, if it's a story about coronavirus and the story starts, Emil Guillermo was hosting the PETA podcast. I don't want to hear the color. What are the facts? Well, it turns out there have been studies about different minds. The conservative mind, they say, goes off anecdotal evidence. Democrats tend to go with stats and figures so that when you talk to Republicans, and I've noticed this, They'll say, well, my sister had COVID and she survived. I know, but but 225,000 Americans died from it. And, well, my sister had it. If you argue with a Republican, they will offer up anecdotal evidence. Well, that's weak anecdotal evidence. I know, but talk to a Republican evidence. and that's what we're up against. It's yeah. and, well, it, and it's a function of narcissism and myopia. You don't see the big picture if you're a Republican. You think of anecdotes. You think of how you're being affected. And that becomes your sole evidence. Well, I lost the job. They gave it to an African-American. So obviously I'm a victim of affirmative action. Right. They they filter everything through the prism of their own experience, their own personal anecdote, as opposed to what's in front of them. They are really Republicans, conservatives are self-centered and only care about themselves. And all their knowledge comes from what they experienced as opposed to what they've read, what they've learned. They are not fact based. How do you deal with? with these neanderthals well it's just that when they spit out the anecdote they should be prepared to enter into a discussion i mean they they, the the problem with their with their anecdotes is they live and die by their anecdotes they don't say the anecdote is the beginning the opening and now let's go on to further this conversation and see other evidence facts data anecdotes and move along they just hang in there and it's still my mother said and my my father-in-law said this and so clearly that's right and you know that's a form of their self-preservation the other problem that we're up against is in nature the the journal nature they did a study of twelve thousand school districts and they discovered that You don't learn well when there's heat. Now, the purpose of this article in Nature was to prove that as climate change gets worse, America will be heating up and the hotter it gets, the harder it will be to educate our kids because people don't learn well in heated rooms. So in heated climates is that why they're not as smart in florida is that well that's what i extrapolated that's not what nature did but the problem with our country is the old confederacy which tends to be uh in the south the old sun belt you know our troubles are the old confederacy and the sun belt they get their votes are worth more than ours and well, yeah, not, look, you don't learn well when yeah. it's hot. 
Yeah, you know, uh, Obama is his book's coming out, his memoir uh, yeah. next week, and he talks about how um, you know he was bothered by birtherism, right? By by Trump's accusation, and he, he, he says he was. Yeah, he said, he, yeah. and and he he was questioning how how could he he. I mean, that that whole thing, uh, it goes back to the kind of racist, you know, uh, notions that split up our country, 19th century. It, you know, the idea of post-racial Obama, there was a lot of people out to get him. And I, 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 I just heard an excerpt they read in the news and I, I'd like to see. But I mean, but he's right. I mean, that because that's what Trump's thing was. I mean, when, when Trump began his whole campaign or, you know when birtherism was, uh, you know, his, his entree into politics. Right. Never, never back down. Right. Anyway. Uh, so David, I, well, I don't know. I don't know if you made me feel better or worse, but I think, I think I feel, I, I just was feeling very, uh, very uncertain, especially with the Thanksgiving holiday coming up and the coronavirus and this idea that are we going to get together with people or is this the only way we're going to experience our, you know, our holidays through, you know, this thing here, right? Through Zoom, Zooming in with friends and relatives. I mean. Isn't it better? Isn't it better? I think it's better. I like the, the prophylactic approach. I did uh-huh. not bad, you know, in, given the virus, but. Uh, and, you know, after Thanksgiving, I always like to undo my belt buckle. Yeah. Jeffrey, Jeffrey Tubin can <laughs> do it on Skype. Oh. And, and on Zoom, and just say he's hey, I overate. <laughs> what do What do you think about Je- poor Jeffrey Tubin? Well, you know, I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for him. I mean, why? I because think, he's successful. Well, no, I I think he should. Well, I think he should have known better. I think, I think also, um, you know, what what could the New Yorker have done? I mean, the question now is, does he keep his job at CNN? Well, he's taking time off now, right? So let to, people to, forget. Apparently, he was having phone sex. Okay, yeah. I'm going to defend Jeffrey Tubin. Oh, okay, go ahead. He didn't know that the camera was rolling. They took a break. Yeah, and he was so, having phone sex with someone in the meeting, or just some other person. He he was with the New Yorker staff, and uh-huh. they were having a Zoom call with WNYC, right. the uh, NPR affiliate and they were planning their election coverage right and they they took a break and he started having phone sex on his other computer with with someone else with i mean with a person at the meeting no No, yeah okay all right all right so they well it would have been juicier if it was someone at the meeting but if it was just some other person then and he should have known but he should have he made it i mean it was wrong. It's not wrong for him to have phone sex. He made a mistake. He probably wanted to get caught. But is it? Well, I guess I should ask people. Is it that traumatizing to to see Jeffrey Tubin having phones? I guess it is. Jeffrey Tubin, the Louis C.K. of journalism, I guess. I mean, if he's not doing it on purpose, if if it's a mistake. Where's your, where's your compassion? Where's your compassion? Do you have to look? Nobody's forcing you. It's not like he's doing it in like, oh my God, he's masturbating. 
What he does in semi-private is his business, David. Is that what you're saying? I'm just saying that. <laughs> he should have known. He should have he known. He should have known. He made a mistake. All right. So, you know, in the old days, and I mean like 15, 20 years ago, you could do something really horrid. And then just go away and come back. Say you're sorry. I mean, remember that guy, a sportscaster, Jim O'Brien. He was on all the TV shows, and uh, he he had some kind of sex scandal. And he kept Marv Albert, right? He did that. Marv Albert was a lot worse. There was biting and stuff. I mean, yeah. I, who did who did he re, who did Jeffrey Tubin? I know I'm going to get complaints. You don't know what it's like to see a man's penis. <laughs> uh, didn't look like this though. This is a, this is a fake. See, you know, I, 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 it feels like with all the horrible things that you can do in this world, yeah. accidentally masturbating when you think nobody is watching. Yeah, it's not like what Louis C.K. did. It's not like what Halperin did. It's not. I mean, it's he made it. It was. If from what I read, it was an accident. But look, here, here's the thing. The reason why the New Yorker had to fire him, because the masturbation is not equal to the level of his work in the New Yorker. Now, if it was a high level of masturbation, may, like a superior form of masturbation, maybe they would have accepted and said, yes, yeah, he's a champion masturbator. You know, but, you know, it, it, the, the question was it called it called into question his credibility his work's credibility. He made a mistake. Well, nobody, he, no, he didn't wake up because I'm going to jerk but, off in front of all these. But if he made, if he was a good jerker offer, if he was better at it and like really like, oh, the best, they would have kept him. They say, well, he's a champion. What can I say? He just couldn't help himself there. All right. Tell me, <laughs> tell me about the PETA podcast, the more important hey, The PETA podcast. Well, you know, this coronavirus stuff. Yeah. You know, minx, we're, we're, the minks. Not minks, not, not no the mink, mink, the mink. Okay. This is a story that's been, it's been breaking slowly. It, it ha it's uh, the mink population in Utah, 8,000 mink dead. It's in, it's in Wisconsin and they're, they're getting coronavirus and they are, they're like coronavirus reservoirs. They are mutating the virus and they're passing it on to workers. It's exactly the same thing as what happened in the, you know, allegedly in the, in the live markets in China. And what are we doing about it here in the United States? Nothing. And so just as it's happening in Utah and in Wisconsin here, and these are big Merck, uh, fur farm, uh, you know, uh, the businesses, uh, this is like, uh, the, the biggest places in the United States and Denmark, Denmark had the problem. They had, they were going to kill the, the, the technical word is cull of yes. the main, but uh, then they decided, no, that would be cruel. And also not just cruel to the animals. It would be cruel to the industry. So they were thinking about industry first. So now PETA had a protest yesterday at the Danish consulate in London, and they're calling for an end to fur because the mink the mink are, are, they're like big super spreaders of, of the coronavirus. And we don't even know exactly uh, the kind of, uh, you know, how the mutation and, and how it's going to affect, you know, the vaccine. It could be like the flu, the flu vaccine. You know, you, you vaccine for yesterday's, uh, you vaccinate for yesterday's flu and a new, a new flu comes in, totally ineffective. 
So got to do something about the mink. And But the bottom line is got to do something about the animals. If we did something about the animals first, we wouldn't be in this situation. Yeah. Are there any laws that prevent the slaughter of mink for fashion? And is mink oh. still being worn? Well, uh, the virus, what they do is they call the mink and they could still sell the pelts. And they're, they're talking about ending the mink uh, industry by, by pelting every, all the minks now and going out with a bang. The virus needs a, a, uh, a live entity in which to live, right? So once you kill the mink, you have the pelts and the pelts are still usable. But, you know, there's no reason to go on if you know that the, the, the mink are susceptible to the coronavirus. I mean, what kind of bi- what kind of businessman would want to get into that business? Well, we'll kill the mink and sell the the, the fur, but you know now we got to grow, uh, you know, like raise more mink and raise more coronavirus. You know, uh, that's being in the coronavirus business is a bad bad business plan, and that's why it's just better to say Peter's Peter's view is get out of the end the fur business and the minks. How is the fur business in the United States? Do people it's, still? It's on the, well, look, you it's know, on the what? You, well, you know, my first wife loved mink, right? She loved she, mink. She, she did. I mean, I it just uh, beyond me. Anyway, I, that, that was an old fashioned thing about fur, right? Russian, Jewish, you know, it's part of the culture. It's cold weather. Uh, but, but people have become more woke and they've decided that, hey, uh, we can deal without fur. And in fact, uh, fur-free Fridays have been very effective, not just uh, in the United States, but worldwide. And the fashion folks have, uh, have taken to heart uh, the sentiments of the public and they've changed, um, changed, changed their attitudes toward, uh, toward, toward fur and fashion. So, yeah. Uh, I have the stats. I don't have them right here in front of me, but uh, the number of mink or the number of pelts taken has been uh, greatly reduced say, in the last five, 10 years. So if there was a complete total pelting of you know, this year's. Um, I industry, think we should pelt people who wear pelt. Yes. Well, you know, that's why for, you know, I don't, I, I guess, you know, Peter always had the, the, the fur free Fridays after Thanksgiving, right? The Friday after Thanksgiving. And now everyone's jumped up the consumer bandwagon. So now there's like, I think some Friday is some kind of special consumer day. I don't know, but, but yeah, the, we should pelt the pelters, pelt the pellet, pelt wearers. Okay. This is a very exciting time for me. And yeah. why David? Because I'm about to propose marriage. S- seriously? Yep. But you, you know, I've been, you know, I'm married already. Oh, that's very sweet of you. But oh, not, not, not to. Uh, yeah. But so no, I'm going to say Emil Guillermo, but I'm serious. Uh, You're going to propose marriage? I'm going to propose marriage in a second. This is. I, you want me to hang this in? This is, I, you know, if we were at a basketball game and I would have told the guy who runs the Jumbotron to put me on so I can ask. Uh, and I have the ring. But this is. This is the moment. Yeah, this is why I, yeah, 
So let me say goodbye to Emil. I'm going to mute you. Emil okay. Guillermo is the host of the PETA podcast, People for the Good Ethical Treatment of Animals. Read him over at ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Follow him on Twitter at Emil Amuk. Come back next week. You know, I've been blaming the scattershot nature of today's show on technical problems, but I'm going to be totally honest with you. It has nothing to do with the software. It's my heart, and I'm going to share this moment with my listeners. I'm going to propose marriage. So thank you, Emil. Azultov. Thank you. That would they, that's what they say, right? Yes. Joining us is the love of my life. She's a comedian. And uh, she's the author of a book called Yes, I Can Say That. Judy Gold. Hello, Judy. Hi, David. How are you? Well, so happy to see you. Will you marry me? Let me look at the background. No. Will you marry? Please marry me. I've been thinking about this. I'm not marrying you. You're annoying. I I want to. I I think you and I could be a power couple in... We'd probably have to move to Staten Island, but we could be a show business yeah, power, power couple in, in Staten Island. Will you marry me, Judy? No. Oh, okay. Wait a minute. Um, now we're, if you wear a dress, maybe. You can wear the dress. <laughs> you know the answer to that question. Judy Gold joins us. David, I really like the... So you moved the chair. Yeah. I feel like you did some redecorating. It looks like, you know, a therapist's office in 1989. <laughs> a little bit. Is that what you were going for? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's good. Good. With the f- what is that plant? I don't know. Is it fake? You talking about my hair transplants or the plant? No, the plant behind you, the tree, whatever it is. I have no idea if that's fake or okay, not. Okay, that's great. Does it look real? The uh, hair transplants? No, the plant. I don't know. It could, it could go either way. Your hair, forget it. <laughs> Horrible. Horrible. Uh, I'm being told I'm a rude dickhead by somebody because I'm trying to stay on schedule. There's a schedule that I printed out. but Right. So... I've got you and I got Craig Bierko and Alan Minsky. I love Craig Bierko. He's coming on, I hope. And then I'm going to have Jim Earl and Martha. I schedule. I scheduled the show last. I got to stick to the schedule person who's calling me well, a rude dickhead. You give, everyone, huh? you give everyone so much notice. Why don't you tell people how you ask me to be on the show? I have compromise on you and I send you some files and then I say, come on the show at 930. Can I fight this out with Jim Earl? Do you mind if I fight with Jim Earl for a second? No, not at all. How am I being a rude dickhead? You you see the schedule? I'm trying. You don't know what it's like to govern, Jim. You sit off on the sideline sniping. I have to make the trains run on time and compromise. It's easy to live on the lofty heights of of judgment, looking down on everybody. But I have. okay. there's Alan Minsky. We're running a little behind schedule, Alan. It's good to see you. Shocking. Yeah. 
Thank you for doing this. Henry, how many shots of that did you have? How's Henry? Henry, you want to say hi to David, your father? Let me say hello to my son. I told him you're the sperm donor, so he. <laughs> Is that Henry? I'm great. Hey, Henry. That's Henry. I, you know, I you have some of my. Uh, I when you were first born, I, I I gave you some of my hand-me-downs. I know, and your hairline. <laughs> All right, let me speak to your All mother. All right, then. I love you, Henry. How is he? He's annoying. He's moving out, though. Really Very exciting. Yeah, he's moving out. He got a studio apartment in Harlem. Great. And where, what are we looking mm-hmm. at here? Is this your apartment? Yes, this is my apartment in Manhattan. Yes. No, okay. Wait, so does it look filthy in the back? No, it looks very clean. I see the piano. Yeah, How did you I spend election night? Were you relieved? Were you scared? I, you know, I was very agitated election night. Um, your son is selling your book. Look at look what he's doing. Oh, I love Henry. I um here's the thing. I I was very depressed. You know, he was he was very good on on everybody poops. Or no, let's make a poop. He worked on let's make a poop. Did you yeah. know that? Yeah. What, Henry? Tell him he was very good on let's make a poop. He's a PA now at the Drew Barrymore show. Really? D- does he have yeah. let's make a poop on his resume? Yeah. Yes. Did he you does. did you put let's make a poop on your resume? Yeah, he puts everything on his resume, yeah. but yes. Yeah. <laughs> it, 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 it really helped me in the interview. Really? It did? Yeah, absolutely. Why? Because it was Lawrence O'Donnell, Anthony Scaramucci, and Pete Davidson. And I got to. And Robert like Smigel. Yeah, and Robert Smigel and Triumph. And I said I was, uh, yeah. And, and do you know why it was called Let's Make a Poop? Yeah, because the, tri- the Triumph, it, well, it was, uh, it was Pooperty. No, right, but the whole idea was people like you would have to put that on their resume. That you, really? the yeah, whole the whole joke was quotes, that kids start make a poop. The whole purpose of that project was so young kids starting out in show business on their resume would have to put "Let's make a poop" on my resume. On it says resume. "Let's make a poop" in quotes. Yes, that's the whole okay, purpose. Don't of that. listen to him; he's so full of shit. Okay, hey, so well, I was I initially I was very depressed. Uh, Are you drinking alcohol? Yeah, Henry, I have a bottle of what? McAllen 12, 12 years double cast. Yeah. It's my birthday Sunday. So he's like, oh, let's have some because I never opened it. Can you take like, me no, to the airport on Sunday, by the way? Yes. Um, you know what? I'm planning on having some relatives die that day. And I, I really want to thank you. <laughs> so, All right. So you were depressed um, on Tuesday. I I was really sad because I just that half but that that half of the people in this country or well it's not half the people in the country it's half the people who voted would vote for that lying orange classless narcissistic selfish dumb that's not nice to say about Joe Biden you know yeah, you do stand up. I hear that you're a stand up comic. Is that correct? You've traveled uh, around. Henry, this. you use my nail file for this. Get out of my room. Can you focus? Yeah, I just I can't. I got to. I need my apartment back. Um, yes, I can. 
Here's the deal. <laughs> Look at him. He's so great. I can't fuck. He's just, he's just great. He, I can't believe that. How could you vote? First of all, I hate him so much. Like, I, I need Mitch McConnell dead. I yeah, you can't talk dead. that way on my show. No, I said I need him. Yeah, to... We can't talk that way. Okay, sorry. Turtles I are an endangered species. I can get fined by the EPA. Did you? Oh, did, ask me what I was for um, Halloween. What were you for Halloween? Did you see my Instagram? So I, I had on a black shirt. I had um, purple tight, uh, purple leggings, not tights. And I had a, uh, I had a couple of band aids and a bandage, and I was Mitch McConnell's hands. Oh, oh, because of yeah. the, of the whatever he's got. Yeah, I was his hands. That's funny. Do you, I want to see that. Yeah. That sounds funny. Yeah, it's on my Instagram. You you do stand up. You know how stupid most people are. You've traveled how around this shithole of the country. This motherfucker. You've seen what America is like. Why should this surprise you? I'm drinking scotch. You're you're living in Manhattan, right? Well, I do live in Provincetown. Um, I have been living more. So in you're Provincetown, so you're out of touch now. Huh? You're what? I'm in Manhattan now. Yeah, yeah. So you live in Provincetown and Manhattan. You're a coastal elite. You're out of touch. I'm the, I'm the with, best production assistant. Do you know that? Did, did you? Can oh, you there's explain? My, there's my photo of me with as much. Can you explain fans. to your son that you are on the David Feldman yeah, get, show? Get the fuck out of here. And, and three people are watching this. Let's. I know there's three people watching. Yeah. You should, um, OK. Yeah. I, I really it's really disheartening that someone can lie and kill people and he's dangerous. He is fucking dangerous. And yet. And you know what really pisses me off? The Jews. You know, the fact that you're he is a race. He's a blatant racist and you're a fucking Jew and you're like, oh, I, I mean, I'm a fucking Jew, too, but. Oh, Israel is I don't live in Israel. I don't live in Israel. You know, oh, he moved the embassy. OK, let me tell you something. That embassy is empty. He didn't move the embassy. He did nothing. He's an asshole. OK, cheers. Well, Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner have pulled their three kids from a, a Jewish day school. No, they didn't. Yes, they've pulled their kids from the Milton Gottsman Jewish day school. They've been the kids have been going there since they moved to Washington. So that's a sign you, that they're coming you, back to New York, right? Oh, they really did. Yeah. When how do you have this information? What do you think? I we think people don't send me information now. So do you we, think they're going to come back here? I hope so. They're going to come back here. And, and then we have to go after Rabbi. So Lookstein. at least they at least they know that he is. Done. Right. But what about Rabbi Lookstein? Raising money. Huh? What about Rabbi Lookstein and that congregation? They're going to be welcomed back into Rabbi Lookstein's congregation. Although they did write, the the, the members of that congregation did write letters to Rabbi Lookstein. Here's the other thing. (laughs) Rabbi Shmuley Boteach. That is my new person to troll on Twitter. I cannot okay. take him. Michael Jackson's friend. Yeah. Was he a Trump supporter? Yes. But don't you think that this is a new stage 
in, in American assimilation. We were cursed with the stereotype that, oh, Jews are smart. Look, 20% of us are fucking morons. Isn't that great? Don't you feel like... Yeah, we're know, dumb. We're dumb. Well, 20%. Are idiots? Doesn't that, that we've just gotten rid of one stereotype? Well, you know, we ha- we used to be smart. And now twenty yeah, percent, we're not. Twenty percent of us are stupid. What would you do if you ran into Jared Kushner and Ivanka at a party in Provincetown, and they said to you, "You're so funny. We saw your HBO special. We love you, Judy Gold." What would you say to them? Go fuck yourself, you fucking asshole. Really? Because we want you to play our we want you to play our son's bar mitzvah and it pays 40 trillion dollars. Go fuck yourself. 40 trillion dollars to play their son. 40 trillion dollars. Yeah. Would you play their son's bar mitzvah for 40 trillion? No, no. I hate them. I have some dignity left. Cheers. I didn't think of you as a drinker. And, and for Henry, you to be shut up, you're drinking and fu- you're drinking in front of your son. Should okay, I call so child protective? Yes, I'm going to call 24. child protective they, they services. They moved their kids to another Jew school in Rockville, Maryland. OK. Mm-hmm. All right. So are you relieved? I, don't you find, you know, I do just to hear him speak. Who? It, Joseph Robinette. Robin, I know. Doesn't that sound like like a place that it sounds like something you buy for your wife for her bathroom? I know. I need a Robinette to be real clean. Honey, I got you a new Robinette. (laughs) Anyway, who um, who the guests use the the bathroom and they peed in my Robinette, don't they? They're heathens. Who? I told you to clean the Robinette. (laughs) So, uh. Here's the thing. It, it's the way he's. Look, he wasn't my first choice. Biden. He wasn't my choice. And yet. The, can I say the, something? Because you're drinking. Yeah. I don't want to get emotional here. You can talk about what it means to you in a second to see Kamala Harris. Because I, I think that means Kamala. Something. Whatever. Not Kamala. Whatever. Kamala. For I. Joe Biden, when he gets sworn in somewhere in America, there's going to be a five year old white boy with bad hair transplants and horribly capped teeth and liver spots on his crown. And he's going to say one day when I grow up, I, too, can be president of the United States. And I think that's an inspiration to all the five year old white boys with bad hair plugs. I think you will be the happiest looking at his hair. And knowing. Well, you know, I met him. We have a lot in common. I, I did meet him when I was working on real time. And it's like two Corvette owners, you know, Corvette mm-hmm. owners, when they see each other on the highway, they honk at one another. Guys with bad hair plugs are like Corvette owners. And we kind of walk. He actually did walk up to me. Right. There's like a thing with bad hair plugs. And we talked. Seriously. Right. All right, so how does it feel to see Kamala Harris? What, what's going on with your video? And why you're is having a stroke, Judy? That I have no you're dignity. Ha- you're having like, a stroke. What the fuck is that? You're having Lame. a stroke. It's fine. You're drunk and you're having a stroke. 
My, it says my internet connection is unstable. Meanwhile, I have a router right literally five seconds, you know, five seconds, five inches from my um, computer. Yeah, well, maybe if Henry got off the what, video Henry, games. Henry, what the hell's going on? Yeah, he's, he, your son is playing with the video games. See, that's why you're frozen. So your son ruined my show. There we go. Okay. This is the height of unprofessionalism. What, what is going on? Yeah, I was looking forward to this. I, I don't know what happened. I have, I literally have a new router. I don't well, know tell what your son to stop playing video games on the internet. Yeah, stop it. He's watching porn. Okay. All right. Do you, so go no, ahead. How I, did, I was very sad. You know, it's sad to me that people are, that people will support such a blatant race. I mean, he is a racist. There is no question about it. And the fact that you're okay having someone who is a racist represent us. Uh, and he's a laughing stock and he's dumb and he's not curious. And he's an idiot and he's just gross. Are you auditioning for the view? No, wait, I'll do I'll do my joy. I don't understand it. <laughs> I, I don't I, I you know what? I can't. I can't. I'm not gonna do it. I mean let me ask you a question. Ask Caroline Ray. I'm to Joy Beha. Do do uh, Caroline Ray. Okay. So, Caroline, you're Canadian. How does it feel to see Donald Trump going away? Hi, it's Caroline. (laughs) Yeah, I know it's Caroline. How does it feel to see? um, It's, you know, I'm Canadian. (laughs) It's Caroline. Hi, David, it's Caroline. I need you to come. Can you write something for me? Because, (laughs) hey, David. No, Ava. I don't mention Hi, it. Okay. it's Caroline. Hi. <laughs> okay. um, yeah, that, I'm right. not doing a good Caroline. How's tonight, the book going? How's the book tour going? Before? Someone told me to go back to Joy. <laughs> Why are you reading the yeah. chat room? Hold the book up. Oh, we'll sell the book. Up. It comes up. And then, you know, and I look, I'm a comic. You know that the entire audience can be laughing except for one miserable person. And I, you know, you focus on that one miserable person and that's. You know, that's it. That's all you see. So now, wait, Judy, can you give David your. See, let's say David, your personality. <laughs> I love your fans. I love these your aren't fans. my I mean, fans. Fan. These aren't I, I my fans. Fan. I love your fans. These people show up to undermine my show. I need Trump. I need him to be humiliated and to suffer. In public. Okay. That's what I need. Can I just say something since you're drinking yeah. and, and just cards on the table? Yeah. You're the reason Hillary lost. <laughs> Why? Just people, you know, the fly under states, you know, the fly under yeah. states. Yeah. They, they hear you talking and they go, I don't want some coastal elitist telling me how to live my life. You're the reason Hillary lost. I blame you. I'm, partly, I'm not an elitist. Yes, you are. You're surprised. Do you think I'm an elitist? 
I think you're I think you are. I think you live in Provincetown. I think you live on the Upper West Side. I think you have a very limited worldview uh-huh. or Welt and Shang. Uh, and I think you have contempt for the, the, the mouth breathing idiots who make this shithole country work. What the fuck with the fucking Internet? Yeah. See, I'm done with Spectrum. <laughs> hey, it's on 5G. See, you think everybody's so stupid, but you can't even work your Internet. You have contempt. I don't. First of all, my Internet is unstable, but not as unstable as you are. And here's the thing. I don't think everyone's stupid. I think that. um, I don't know. You you come on my show drunk. I just think that you you came on my show drunk. I'm so I'm not drunk. Yes, you are are. talking about. You're drunk. You've been drinking all day. Alan Minsky hates you. You've been drinking all day in front of your kids. That's true. I'm a day drunk. Don't you think you have a responsibility as an elitist to to not alienate? Yes. The fly under states. Don't you think you push? Don't you think your kind, your ilk is the reason the Democrats keep losing with your your food and, and your your knowledge and your your writing? You not only read books, but you and write what, them what about my food. Just you're, what, you, what about my food? What you're, is that you're, with my food? You're a visitor. When are you going to accept the fact that you're a visitor to this country? That this isn't your country. You know what? You're right, David. You're right. Alan why are you so surprised? You. That um, the, why are you so there. surprised? Why do you think? Why do you think people voted for Trump? In all seriousness, are you that naive? Why do you think people voted for Trump? Don't talk to me like that. I I think that first of all, I think that he. I can't say that. Is that what you're you know, saying? His whole thing. No, I feel like, you know, people did do want to, you know, destroy the status quo. But there's someone else that can do that. Not him. Who in the Democratic Party offered anything to these people who voted for Trump? Who? Who Who offers something? Are you going to cry on me? We got to start a new party. We need to start a new party. We have to start a new party, don't you think? I think we have to break the Democratic Party into tiny little pieces and make it a party that represents the mm-hmm. 99%. Right. Exactly. Right. And I don't think anybody other than Bernie and the squad, we have Alan Minsky coming up, and he's executive director of the Progressive Democrats. Of he America. hates you. Yeah. You know what? Yeah, the the party is bad. He doesn't hate me because he's an original thinker. Well, most original thinkers know that you're annoying and yeah. Do you think Um, Hollywood you're you're a Hollywood type and and that's I really am. I really am. Don't don't you think you and Rob Reiner and Martin are so similar and we have the same amount of money. Go ahead. And Cher and Martin Sheen. Don't you think they should be quiet when it comes to politics? No, I don't think people should be quiet. I think if you are passionate and you have 
uh, a following and there is something that you can not be silent about, I think you should. Yeah. You, you think that okay. pe- you think Elisa's that going to leave. I can't I can't have Elisa leave. Elisa. Listen, Elisa wants to leave and we were going to snuggle. Go ahead. We were going to snuggle and now you're just talking nonsense. No, I'm asking you because you have, you can speak to these. Hi, Elisa. Hi, David. It's good to see you. Good to see you too. I really do want to go to sleep. We can snuggle another time. No, we're not, not snuggling because David has to just talk. May I just say something? The rudest thing you two could do right now on my show is Are we kiss. lesbians no, who look like no, each no, no. other? If, yeah. I, I'm saying there is a... There is a the, we're the lesbians who started look look like each other. I, I'm going to tell you right now that, it, that if you two kiss right yeah. now on my show, I, yes. will, I will not tolerate it and I will be very upset if you two kiss. I just want you to know that. Okay, I just, I'm going to tell you one thing. <laughs> do not, that do not. Lisa, I'm just do, gonna don't, tell you Lisa, one thing. don't you dare do this. Don't okay. you? I won't. Don't, it's don't, don't it's no, ve- here's the thing. No, because he's going to get a, like, whatever he can get down there. <laughs> um, I don't think it works, but here's the thing. Um, Elisa and I both did our. Our DNA, you know, yeah. and uh, 23 and me, 23 and me. <laughs> and <laughs> I am 99.8% Ashkenazi Jew and Elisa's 99.9% Ashkenazi Jew. They took 1% off for rhinoplast. <laughs> matter because i'm still higher than you i'm more of- i know can you believe she's i'm a little neanderthal so 99 percent of you is jewish and the other percent was jewish <laughs> i love henry look at, that is just that is i love henry look at him there I mean, we, this is the does he have shoes on does he have and shoes on? Our kids are straight. straight Does he have straight, shoes straight. on? Are you wearing shoes? No. No, he, two different socks. I do that. Who, well, who cares if your socks match? David. I like them to match. You need all the help you can get. I do. I love Henry. Uh, Look at the yeah. size of his feet. Look at that. No, you're not leaving, Dar. No, you can't leave. David Feldman is not. Ruining my snuggle time. We have the weekend. No, I don't want the weekend. I want now. All right. Will you come back next week if I let you go? I do not do not snuggle on my show. This is a (laughs) this is a no snuggle zone. When's up? Wait, David. When's the last time you you um, snuggled with someone? Seriously. Does uh, do myself count? Yes, that's fine. Oh, my God. I love Saul Youssef. It would be funny if Judy carries that microphone around her everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, guys, I have to say something, though. Since the COVID and I haven't been able to go out and do sets, you can ask Elisa at like nine o'clock every night. I'm like, hey, guys, how's everyone? It's ridiculous. Okay. All right. I'm going to let you go. You need to snuggle with someone. Well, 
I can't. I, I can't. Oh, Dan, Henry wants a spot on your podcast. You want to work on my podcast, Henry? No, he wants oh, to be a guest. He wants to be a guest? Yeah. He wants to be a guest. All right. You can be a guest. Yeah. Next well, what week. What are you going to talk about? No, that's boring. It's a boring topic. David, you are never going to find love again. Um, Why? Don't you think don't you think I'm a catch? No. Really? Uh, I think you're a catch 22. Good night, folks. (laughs) (laughs) I think that. um, Yeah, I think you're. uh, Do you even date? At the uh, Hebrew home for the aged. They have bingo night, and I sometimes. That's great. That's great. But if you would marry me, that would solve my problem. Let me speak to Elise for a minute. I'm going to let you go. Elise. Elisa. Elisa. What's wrong? Don't you you think I should be married to Judy Gold? Don't you think Judy and I could be a power couple in Staten Island, like a showbiz power couple? Absolutely. Yeah, on the ferry. That's what we would be. <laughs> Don't you think? Going back and forth, just fighting on the ferry. You get off. I said, get off. I do for, uh, we have to wrap it up. Do for, okay. Alan Minsky is standing by. I want you to tell, and Elisa probably never heard this story. So I used to open for Judy in Las Vegas. And one of the things I noticed, Alan, is nobody's smiling in Las Vegas. They, they're just losing all their money. They're just, it's, it's a place for degenerates. It, it, it's, you know, Eli Wiesel, when they asked him, how could you believe in God? It's not Eli, it's Ellie Wiesel. It's not Eli. It's not like Eli Lilly. It's Ellie Wiesel. He, he starred in, uh, okay. Ellie Wiesel was asked. How he was you, in Schindler's List. Go ahead. Ellie Wiesel. Yeah. That's your thing about the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, Ellie. It's a different Ellie. Ellie so, Kempner. Okay, go ahead. Ellie, Ellie Wazell was asked, how can you still believe in God having survived the concentration camps? And he said, God wasn't there. And the same applies to Las Vegas. There is no God in Las Vegas, but there are husbands and wives and families. And I was opening for Judy, and this is what we did. Not Every at Harris. We, pl- we were playing Harris. We did two shows a night. Right. At Harris. But we didn't do this at Harris because we didn't want to get fired. But we would go to other casinos and I would walk ahead of Judy and she'd be my wife because we look like we could be married. And in front of everybody, she would scream at me. On the street. In the casino, you did this. Yes. He would stand there like this. <laughs> How dare you? You lost everything, you son of a bitch! I have nothing! And we would do this every fucking night. And people would gather around, like, staring. What the hell is wrong? Did you fucking do? Oh, sorry. Would, it was so much we fun. We would do it every. There was it was our entertainment for like, hours. Just, we'd go from casino to casino. She would berate how, me. How much? How much? <laughs> I have to fly in. You're. I. I don't. I. I don't. I can't afford a new blouse. And you're busy oh with God. the prostitutes. It was we? It was great. 
That Let's do it. Let's go to Vegas and do that. And nobody would say, and they, you couldn't call security on us because even though it was fake, no, it was true. No, we would true. stand out on the side, like, you, you know, we would be right there. <laughs> we wouldn't be on the property of the. We, no, we did it know. at the Mirage, inside the Mirage. Yeah. All right. I love you. I love Henry. I love, I love Lisa. you. Shabbat shalom. Happy no, I'm uh, Jewish. Do you have a bur- Are you going to wish me a happy birthday? No. <laughs> Okay, go fuck yourself. And um, great talking to you. I guess Craig Bierko couldn't make it. I was hoping Craig. So wait, so you text everyone and half the people don't show up. Is that correct? (laughs) No, certain people are difficult. Okay, I'm keeping people waiting. Judy Gold, the name of the book is you have to put on to fill in. Good night. Okay, Judy Gold's book is you can't say that. And, no, it's yes, I can say that. It's not you can say that. It's yes, I can say that. When they come for the comedians, you're all in trouble. This is why you have no friends. This is why. <laughs> Yell at Henry as we sign off. Yell, tell him to get his feet off the couch. No. Okay. Bye. So long. Bye, Bye Lisa. <laughs> Bye, Henry. Sorry to keep you waiting. It's been. Oh, uh, no, no. I, I cede my time to YouTube. That was great. Joining us in Los Angeles is the executive director of Progressive Democrats of America, Alan Minsky. When's the last time we talked? We talked since. Uh, oh, we uh, talked last week at this time, yeah. just about exactly 168 hours ago. Yeah. This is a question that I've been asking everybody. Normally, I don't ask it. How are you feeling? Well, you know, obviously, uh, coming off of that segment, uh, this is going to be a pretty uh, flat segment. That's all right. But it's going to be a. Uh, you know, because I'm actually, you know, there are times I can come on your show and I can have some levity and wit. But my reality right now is one of trying to assess, you know, it's like the field has shifted. The ground has shifted underneath me for exactly what I do and what we focus on. What, what, do, you mean? To what do you mean? Well, obviously, in the, in the build up to the election the last 10 days, I remember I was on some other show doing an interview and I said, you know, we're like suspended in time. We don't know. What the future is, the future is going to be set. Uh, and obviously, we're an organization, PDA, and, and I'm a political actor that's very focused on trying to um, see uh, a set of public policies become, you know, passed either through legislative legislation or somehow be enacted in society uh, to, you know, improve, uh, you know, the, the, the way the game, the way the field and the laws are set so that we can have a more equitable society. And uh, we did hope, really, that the Democrats would win the Senate, win the House. And in doing so, you know, the, the way that we were going to proceed at that point was pretty clear. Maybe we just had assumed that that would be the outcome for so long a time. That uh, And I was somebody who thought Trump would win in 2016. I thought he would not do as well as he did this last, uh, last week. And so um, not winning the Senate having Biden come in, possibly having McConnell be able to block anything that would be positive and progressive. Therefore, right now, you know, reading the tea leaves about the cabinet appointments, that's very important because the executive branch, if we don't win the Senate, um, you know, we, I just got off a call right before this uh, national PDA call, organizing call on Georgia with our, you know, Georgia state coordinator on, uh, great progressive champions from Georgia joining the call big turnout. Everybody wants to focus and try to win that. I do think it's possible. 
Um, you know, the, one of the reasons, I don't know, David, if, if you've uh, thought about this or it's been spoken about on the call, but one of the reasons Georgia is one of the few states with these runoffs is that, of course, is a legacy of the Confederate, pro-Confederate, pro-Jim Crow political establishments down there, states like Louisiana that has it as well, because the establishment could, could depend on winning, uh, you know, a, a runoffs when there'd be a lower turnout other than the general elections. And now this time, because so explain the, that to me. In Georgia, you need to get more than fifty percent of the vote in order to be elected. Otherwise, it goes into a runoff. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, we have, we have the Libertarian Party to thank for that, and quite a bit actually, if you want to look at it that way. But yeah. And what happened? Uh, Ossoff lost you know, to Purdue. Right. How will right, he do Purdue. in the? How will he do in the runoff? Well, I mean, there are reasons to believe that in in uh, in contrast to the way these traditionally go down in Dixie, these runoff elections, that um, uh, sorry, my golden retriever is making a lot of noise off in the corner um, that, um, you know, because Biden won, because uh, the big dog for the Republicans is probably going to be uh, having a mental breakdown and golfing. He's not going to show up the campaign as a loser. Right. Um, or quite likely that he won't, that there's a real chance here that there's momentum. The wind is in the sails of the Democrats right now in Georgia. What about Warnock? Warnock, of course, is a, is a preacher at the Ebenezer Baptist Church. And he and, beat Loeffler, uh, correct? Yeah, per- that's because there, that's because there were two high pro. There was a guy named Collins who was who was challenging Loeffler, ran a high profile challenge. When you add up the Republicans versus just the Democrats with all the third party and extra independents and so on taken out of the mix. I think the Republicans did get more votes in that race too, but they didn't add up to 50% there either. So obviously look, Biden won the state. He's had like 14,000 votes right now. This is, this is state of course, famously in 2018, Stacey Abrams barely lost. Um, you know, Ossoff doesn't Cause it was stolen it. from her by Kemp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The secretary of state was the guy running for the Republicans and there was a lot of gaming going on and all that. And of course, you know, just Herculean efforts on the Republicans part to, you know, knock off, um, Democratic voters, obviously, particularly African-American voters down in Georgia, is is the way it, it, it's just been functioning down there and, and all the corruption. And Ossoff, he doesn't share my politics, but he's a young guy. He's a dynamic guy. Uh, as neoliberal candidates go, he's actually one of the more impressive that they've thrown up there this year in any, any high-profile race. I mean, most of these, by the way, you know, we talk about progressive Democrats, moderate, whatever, corporate or neoliberal Democrats. One of the things about them right now is just how flat most of these people are. I mean, they just really are establishing status. But Ossoff ran a great campaign in the debate against Purdue. Purdue didn't show up for the last debate because Ossoff called him a crook because Purdue was trading stock, inside information on the coronavirus. Loeffler. Right. Yep. But but also, again, to make the point that I was just making clearly, you know, the guy has a little spark to him, which is not common with these hacks. (laughs) Um, He leaned a little bit more progressive than he did in his congressional run in 2018. And then Warnock is spectacular to order. I mean, absolutely. You know, you know, world world class, a triple plus order, uh, more progressive than Nassau. And um, yeah. but yeah, you know, and he's also, you know, so he's not going to, he's not really seeking out the swing vote. He's going to drive on GOTV. Now, voter registration, you can now register till December 7th in Georgia. It's not just that people have been speaking about the people whose birthday turn. No, it's broader than that. General registration is now open till December 7th. 
So we're going to be we're partnering with uh, voter registration efforts. So let me ask you about a couple of things. There's some weird sound in the background. Oh, that's me. Sorry. Go ahead. It'll go away in about five minutes. I'm getting a new computer. Okay. These are the two stories we're being told. We're being told that this was the most honest election in American history, that there was we always knew voter fraud was a lie. Voter suppression is true. In fact, Kemp, the only reason Kemp won, as you pointed out, in Georgia is because he scrubbed enough African-American votes so Stacey Abrams uh, would lose. But we're being told that this is the most honest election in American history. Is that true? Well, I think if that's true, uh, and look, you know, I, I, I can't, uh, I certainly can't uh, testify on behalf of an election that had 150 million votes in it. Now, purely honest it was, but it makes a little sense that it could be, and here's why. Look, until this 2016 election and all the overblown accusations around Russian interference and the role it played um, or didn't play or did play in Trump defeating Clinton, the Democratic Party nationally really didn't put muscle into all of the democracy. Okay, but hang on for one second. Hang on for one second. Paper ballots. Because mm-hmm. everybody had to use mail-in ballots. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, easier to trace, yes. It's harder to fix. So the gift of COVID is it forced us to have a preponderance of paper ballots. Yeah, but one of the two major parties pushed for serious attention. Serious attention was placed upon how American elections operate and are run, in large part because of the Democratic Party's responsiveness to the idea that Putin or Russia interfered, and this was a stolen election in 2016. But is it just so we understand? Before that, the Democratic Party, even after Florida 2000, a whole bunch of stolen elections, they didn't say diddly squat. And in fact, they were really complicit. Okay, but is the gift of COVID, is the gift of COVID that we are now going back to paper ballots because everybody is going to choose COVID or not to mail in their ballots? Is that the gift of COVID that we're we are going to have a pro forma paper ballot? Well, you know, look, uh, PDA got involved in organizing a national election protection effort with some of the leading election protection people from the previous two decades, including you know, Greg Palace, Brad Friedman, people with national profiles and such. And they all could not believe the level of attention that their work was getting, how much consciousness there was around this. Oh, yeah, I, I would think right now following this and following the 2016 election and the response to it, we're probably going to see more election protection measures than we've had across the country. And that does mean ultimately paper ballots. Paper you ballots. Know, right. yeah. And there's no yeah. going back. It, we're, it's mail-in ballots. This is the wave of the future, right? Hey, you know, David, in the UK, you know how they count the votes? You ever see what they do? They set up these big tables inside large public spaces. People sit down and they count pieces of paper. And they do it in the, overnight, in one night, and they have the result. It, you know, depending on the size of the constituency, it can happen pretty quickly. Let me ask you about the Republican Party. We're mm-hmm. seeing in the Republican Party the attorney general of Arizona, a Republican, saying mm-hmm. there are bad actors. There's no way Trump can win this thing. Uh, I saw I, I would play it if my technology was working. But the, the Republican attorney general said about the results in Arizona that it's a pretty bad 
conspiracy to steal an election when Republicans are winning in Arizona down ballot, but not on the top. You know, uh, so that, that, you know, I'm hearing a reason coming from a Republican attorney general in Arizona. The, the state uh, secretary of state in Georgia, who has Kemp's old job, right. mm-hmm. he's a Republican like Kemp right. was. Right. He stood up to the powers that be and said this, these results are on the up and up. We're seeing Republicans in Philadelphia. The Senate majority leader is a Republican. He's saying we're not we're not going to challenge. We're not going to try to create faithless electors. So the Republicans have stepped up here, but that's only because Trump is such a reprehensible player. I don't know. You know, you know, one of the problems we have right now in this country, David, and I think this is obviously the, the deepest issue within American politics is the divide. Are 70 million Trump voters really inaccessible to the Democratic Party? This goes to what you and Judy in a much more elevated conversation than this one. Much more uh, elevated. We're talking, yeah. <laughs> yes, we're, we're talking about, you know, why did people vote for Donald Trump? And, you know, what is the how, how dishonest is it? How corrupt is it? It was pretty damn corrupt. So I wouldn't really give have any faith in the Republican Party going forward and not pursuing what were, you know, very serious, uh, you know, consistent efforts to suppress the vote in states. They understood the margins they had to achieve the whole Chris Kobach, you know, purging of votes and stuff like that. I assume that's just going to be an effort that they'll continue, Um, you know, even with even with. And also, by the way, Joe Biden winning and Donald Trump losing. Uh, you know, this strategy was the Stephen Miller, Donald Trump strategy was to, you know, toss out a bunch of people in the country who were people of color to try to maintain a white majority. Right. And, uh, you know, now with that not being something that will be happening in the next four years, um, it's the we, we return back to, you know, the emerging Democratic majority theory, which is which is, you know, I, I do think it's accurate. I think the country, um, while it's difficult in terms of the states and the electoral college in terms of the general population, the communities that have been voting um, highly for the democratic party are growing in population relative to the total population. So going forward, it looks difficult for, you know, a white, um, a party that's organized around the maintenance of white privilege can, can really be competitive nationally the further you look out to the future. Um, so, you know, minority that, rule isn't unusual around the world, is it? No, that's true, too. Yes. Why is I, that? I mean, you've had that in a number of states. Where you've had uh, uh, parties where, you know, yeah, look what happened in Canada. Canada had that severely for quite a while before Trudeau. You had what? Just our neighbor to the north had successive conservative governments getting 38% of the vote. That happened over and over again in those elections. And, and we also Canada, see it in the Quebecois, all way to the left of the conservatives. And and it seems to be the standard in third world nations that the the minority, the ethnic minority or the religious minority will often end up being in charge. As opposed to the the majority, they they well, that's what that's what we we know. I mean, the country still the United States of America is still a majority white country, um, but it's, uh, you know, the percentage of the population is white Americans is declining. Is it because is minority rule because when it's an ethnic minority or a racial minority, 
they have skin in the game to the Republican. No, I'm, not, I'm not sure what countries you're thinking of. I mean, I, I've noticed it somewhere, but I can't. None are coming to mind right now. Well, Syria. The Alawites. The Alawites. Oh, yeah, but that's, that's not a democratic uh, state. But it's still minority rule. Do you oh, think? Okay, that- you know what? It, Saddam Hussein was an example of that, too. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Versus yet. Again, it wasn't a democratic country, so. But the the minority is so terrified that they stick together. And it's what we see in the Republican Party. As long as the Republicans are filled with frightened white people who identify as frightened white people, they're going to do by any means necessary. They're going to keep their power. Um. That seems to be a big part of what's informing their politics currently. Um, but, you know, there's other there's other dimensions to it, too, and what the Repub- Republican Party represents, why it's popular, where it is, and the Democrats are rejecting. I, you know, if further conversation with Judy, and it's unfair to Judy because she's not here right now, I, I, um, I wince at when I hear people act with the you know, incredulity that anyone can support the Republican Party because I think they're not looking at the Democratic Party. And also, you know, it's, you know, people, if, if they, you know, want to be sympathetic to our fellow humans or they think they're good people and they care for other humans, you have to have a, a sense of, you know, trying to understand where people are coming from when you're talking about tens of millions of people. Um, and I think one of the things you can look at with the collapse of labor unions in the United States of America and, you know, look at a state like West Virginia and, um, um in the evangelical church, right? So, you know, the primary institutions in the state of a state like West Virginia that were supporting the um, working class people there um, basically just evaporates. The society goes into decline. What social institutions are there around that offer themselves up, uh, you know, to care for the people who are there? And we may, you know, again, uh, I'm sure everyone in the chat room will go crazy here, but, you know, they are there. And and liberal and progressive institutions just abandon fucking ship in these places. Okay. And, um, and there, there's the evangelical church, right. And, uh, you know, it provides a sense of community provides a sense of, uh, you know, something that's parallel to, you know, politics in terms of ethical and moral cohesive vision and stuff and, um, and welcoming and all that stuff. So, you know, people hate these things. And when you hate on them and you speak that way about them, as is often said, look, in, in the national media, David, correct me if I'm wrong, who, who are the two groups in my lifetime who have been allowed to be the butt of jokes and almost nobody takes issue with it? Germans and white working class people in America. I mean, they're the butt of jokes. How the fuck do you think that makes them feel about people on the coast, the very people that you were talking about with Judy, right? right. The people who write the jokes for the late night talk shows, right? People who you know. Right. I've asked I've asked people on this show. Right. We have a problem with white men and this problem. What are we going to do about them? And your kind, my kind, go F them. Nobody has an answer. Nobody cares. They're told to understand uh, the plight of others, but they're not allowed to have an identity. They're not allowed to be an aggrieved party. Otherwise, they're considered racist. I, I, think that's, I think that's a different conversation. I mean, the Jordan Peterson defense of white men and all that stuff. I, I'm not going to defend white people, but I'm saying the Democratic Party is not going to win until they address 
all aggrieved parties, and, and Bernie did. Bernie said, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. But you have a lot of pissed off white people in this country who, mm-hmm. who nobody feels sorry for. And you just said they're the butt of the joke. So well, they certainly are the butt of the joke. And I think it's uh, um, it, that doesn't help anything politically. I mean, they're, they're the butt of the joke uh, just almost constantly. And um, because and, it's supposedly and, you're punching up that the idea is you're punching. But up. They sure as fuck don't feel up. Right. I mean, you know, there is an undercurrent, of course, of holding on to uh, white privilege. And there was, um, you know, for I mean, you look at you look at the people who came across from Europe who weren't the original Anglo-Saxon conquerors or settlers, however you want to look at them, um, you know, in American history. Uh, but white people now understood to be white now. Maybe they thought themselves as, of course, being the the um, object of, of of bigotry and prejudice against them from Anglo-Saxons when they arrived. But they were promised landsteads. If they won, they did their seven years of indentured servitude. They got land out in Ohio. Well, that was not available, of course, to black people or the indigenous people. So white privilege really worked for those people who got the landsteads out in Ohio and so on and so forth. So. You know, white privilege, there's no doubt that that is something that is also being defended, and that's reprehensible. Nonetheless, you're talking about pretty much from when when you're into central Pennsylvania all the way till you almost get to the coast, with the exception of little elite niches in Colorado and stuff like that, and Chicago and other places where the economy is booming, some metropolitan areas, you have a society that's in decline. And and it's also the, the punching bag for all the jokes. So I don't know how much that's punching up. No, but, but again, it's, it's is, considered it's, OK. It's, having worked as a comedy writer. Right. You are considered punching up if you're portraying white people, especially white men, as stupid. And it I don't want to get sound like I'm an aggrieved. I'm Jewish, but uh, white men. uh I don't want to defend the plight of white men. Uh, They're not getting shot by cops. Here's my question to you about the Electoral College. Why is it so hard for the Democrats to win the Electoral College? Why can't they dirty their fingers and understand what people in Iowa what people in West Virginia, what people in Missouri, what people in Indiana and Ohio are going through. What is so hard to understand for the Harvard technocrats who control the Democratic Party? They're so smart. Why can't they figure out how to appeal to the Rust Belt? Because they don't care. They don't care about the Rust Belt. No, I don't give a damn about it. It's not. It should have, Pennsylvania should not be that difficult to win. I mean, Joe Biden was born in Scranton. What's he winning Pennsylvania by? 50,000, 100,000? Probably still going to rest under 100 when the votes are all. Middle class Joe from favorite son. And he and he can't win big in his own state of Pennsylvania. What does that tell you about the Democrats? So why? How it is that the Democratic Party became so skewed? You know who got it right and he walked it back is Obama in 2008 when he said about Pennsylvania, they're abandoned by their party. They're abandoned by the manufacturing base. So they turn to their guns, their religion and 
drugs or whatever. Uh, and he had to walk that back and apologize for saying something that's absolutely true. You're, you're muted. Uh, Bernie Sanders, I think, made great inroads, especially in 2016, into uh, you know drafting a politics which was appealing to the white working class across the middle of the country. And you saw in a variety of states, I mean, West Virginia, what was the final Sanders-Clinton vote there? It was like 80 to 20. Bernie. Bernie won all the states like Montana, South Dakota, North Dakota, Nebraska. Some of these which had open registration too, by the way. So you had Republicans going over. You, you would hear throughout the whole 16 cycle that uh, if it was Bernie or Trump, people didn't know we were voting for Trump, who would they vote for, Bernie or Trump? Of course, they never got to the point where they were able to attack Bernie as a national candidate, you know, as, as the nominee of the Democratic Party. But we don't know how much that would have held up. But the politics clearly resonated. I think they were a politics of economic compassion uh, for all working people. And when you had communities where the working class was struggling, Bernie's appeal to them was direct and absolutely hit home. Now, those are the politics of PDA. OK, that's what we support. And we have supporters all across the country in those areas. Um, you know, one of our national staff members is from rural Illinois, south of Champaign-Urbana. Um, actually, in all honesty, she will tell you that a lot of the people who live around her right now, at least temporarily, are unreachable. But, of course, she does believe that Bernie's politics will and could very much win the day in all the communities that surround her where she is. Right. I mean, yeah. but the Democratic Party doesn't give anything to those people. As in, I mean... Sorry, Bernie's in the Democratic Party effectively now. The non-progressive wing of the Democratic Party hasn't given a damn for that. Okay. Let me ask you one final question, and then we'll go to Professor Marianne if she wants to. Uh, I notice she's here. We were assured by your people, the, the, the Democrats in, con in control, that if Trump steals election, we're going to take to the streets that we're going to take to the streets. Oh, I, that's almost a subject I don't want to talk about. I don't know if you heard about this, but there was a really, maybe I'll speak a little bit ill of some of my occasional partners. But, you know, we, we, are, we partner with all the, the prominent, like, left and left in the Demo left side of the Democratic Party and even to the left of the Democratic Party organizations. So we regularly partner with DSA, you know, Our Revolution, Center for Popular Democracy, People's Action, Sunrise, Justice Democrats. That's, that's the family for PDA, Okay. Roots Action, et cetera. And then to the right of us, there, there's Move On, Indivisible, uh, for some of the labor unions, and they formed a coalition called Protect the Results. They sold it to everybody in the whole friggin' country that they were going to be on the street guaranteed on the night of November 4th. Uh-uh. They didn't. I think they were in league with they were in touch enough with the Biden-Harris people, the Democratic establishment. They thought that, that would look bad. They were worried about conflagrations. So the very thing that they said they were going to do, they didn't do. And, and then a lot of the activists who did go on the streets that protect the result formations basically tried to shame them and shut them down. You know, I don't know. It's so well, let me ask my question. Yeah. So this Saturday is the Million MAGA March. Yeah. We're, we're going to see the Proud Boys. The D.C. police and the National Park Service, they've issued permits for the demonstrations and we're going to see Stop the Steal. And there are about 50 different permits that have been issued. We are going to see that big protest that our side 
was threatening. They're all going to converge on Washington, D.C. How big is this protest going to be? And if it's really big, will it have any impact? I don't think it will be, so I don't think it will. If it is, I don't think it will either. I think right. what you were pointing to earlier, look, I think, I think, look, I could be wrong. And again, getting into the heads of, of Republican operatives and Republicans who try to manipulate things in the effective way that they do. And some of their machinery is just incredibly efficient. Um, you know, I can't speak to that. Um, but right now, what you were saying earlier, I think there's some indulgence going on of Donald Trump. By the way, the, the Pompeo quote that everybody jumped on, you know, it's going to be a smooth transition to uh, a Donald Trump's second term. If you roll the tape after he said that, have you seen the clip of it extended, David? No. He's clearly making a joke when he says that. And then Pompeo himself, I'm serious, everybody can just trash me here. Look at the tape, you'll see I'm right. He clearly signals that he is open to, um, you know, the, what's it called? The uh, transition in assisting the Biden administration in the transition. Well, administration. Well, but, the see it, David. It's it's what Pompeo does, and the media gets up in all this hysteria. I think there's a lot of indulgence going on by a lot of Republicans. I don't think they really have that much. They care for Donald Trump. They'd be happy to see the, the backside of him, you know. And it doesn't mean that they're not still a proto-fascist political formation. I think they are to some extent, or at least a wing of the party and the base of the party is very much that way. But the career Republicans, I think they'll. Uh, they're not going to throw our, you know, money saturated form of democracy under the bus right now for the sake of supporting this you know, psychotic narcissist. Well, the State so Department wasn't sending congratulatory calls to Biden. Traditionally, the State Department. Yeah, because they'll get fired the next day, like Esper was, you know. I mean, I could be wrong. And if I am, you know, I'm a dumbass fool. But I don't I see Joe Biden is going to be inaugurated on January 20th. Now, it's quite possible Trump will have to be in a straitjacket by then, which will, you know, provide a nice amount of uh, material for y'all comics. Yeah. He showed up uh, uh, on November 11th for Veterans Day to lay a wreath for the unknown loser, I believe, is what he called him. (laughs) But uh, he's going to be quiet is he depressed? What do you think? Is he sad? Is he planning something? What is he? You ever, do you ever see that book, Nobody Hates Trump More Than Trump Hates Trump, or whatever it was called? I don't believe that. No. But you think he hates himself? I, it's a fun book. Okay. That's all I can say. Yeah. Great. Anyway. Alan Minsky, thank you for waiting. I apologize. We've been off schedule oh, today. Always great fun to talk with you, David. Alan Minsky is the executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America. And Marianne, you have a question, Professor Mithers. Yes, I have a question for Alan before you leave. Sure. Um, so there's been, you know, arguments I've been uh, been involved with, arguments, discussions on, on the Twitters. And, um, you know, last month when I first heard that Bernie Sanders was uh, being considered for Labor Secretary, that story was floating on, I said, no way. I mean, he's going to be uh, the... He's going to be the the chair of the Senate Banking Committee. That will be real power. However, um, it seems that he he's likely not going to be in the majority. 
And I don't know what he's been able to do. I mean, he did make that deal with the Mike Lee, but got vetoed, you know, legislation that got vetoed by Donald Trump. But sure. maybe, you know, you have to ask, we'll have to ask ourselves, what can he do in the minority for the next two, four, or however many years? I think that maybe as labor secretary, you know, given when things like Ubers had prevailed in California with that ballot initiative and uh, the guy that was instrumental in getting that pushed was Kamala Harris's brother-in-law. I think it's Tony West and it's one of her closest advisors. So maybe Bernie thinks, he, he might think that being labor secretary, he could have some muscle to do things if he has an agreement with Biden that uh, Biden lets him do what Bernie does. But I'd like to know what you think about that. Yeah, I would uh, support Bernie being labor secretary if they don't have the majority, if they don't win the two seats in Georgia. If they do win the two seats in Georgia, I, of course, would rather have Bernie stay in the Senate. Um, and I think it's tricky right now because I heard the day he was pushing for it some more. And we don't know the results. Well, you're the executive um, producer of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. And this week, Ralph said with certainty that Bernie's going to be the labor secretary. No, no, I, I saw him still like Andy Levin. By the way, they have to be careful about how many, how many uh, Democrats they um, they move over from the House because it's like a three to it's right now it's a three, but I think it'll be a four seat majority, which is by the way brilliant in terms of politics in the House. That means the squad, not even the expanded new squad, has veto over legislation going forward if it's straight Democrat. And I think Pelosi will respond to that by. By having oh, so you're saying? Oh, wait a second. So you're saying that the squad gains more power because of the seats lost? Oh, I didn't think about that. Yeah, of course. That's great. But also, um, wow. Be careful about like my congressman Jimmy Gomez is being spoken about as being U.S. trade representative, but they can't go below the number of seats that the Republicans have. So there's only so many people that can move over the cabinet positions from the House. What about Um, Bernie as head of the EPA? Um, that's not it. The only thing Bernie's in dialogue about is for labor. And um, look, labor unions in America can use a lot of help. And Bernie is a real good faith actor for labor unions. So if it is, if they don't get it and they somehow know they're not going to get it, but how do you know? And I think moving any senator into the cabinet right now um, complicates the Democratic momentum to win in Georgia. And yes, we should really try to win in Georgia because it's winnable. It's a, it's a lift, a big lift. But it's winnable. And to not have Mitch McConnell blocking everything and setting the, the, the judiciary, the court, the appointments like that is really, really, really important for the society. Well, so, who can the Democrats can send out their big guns to Georgia. They can send out. Can. And, and Warnock, by the way, if Warnock can win, I think he will uh, make quite an impression. Too. OK. Yeah. Anyway, thank you. This is this is uh, thank you, Alan Minsky, executive director of the Progressive Democrats of America. Professor Marianne Cummings, I know you don't. Well, again, I want to ask Alan. uh, Sure. How many things? How many seats do you think? What do you think the final tally in the House will be? I think right now it's going to be 221. There's one there's one seat in Iowa where the Democrat is behind by 40 votes. I don't think any of the New York races will flip from the way it's set right now. Um, it could be 222 if Christy Smith overtakes Garcia right near me up in Antelope Valley in California. So it's going to be 222 or 221. 
Now, that does mean that Republicans are down at what? 218. So 221 means they're down at 214. So you could put about five members of the House. So it's not that close. Well, okay, but I'm, but I'm saying that even without uh, losing any more to uh, appointments, um, the squad, which is now six, right. and if you count Presley occasionally, maybe seven, and maybe there'd be a couple, a couple like Rokana and, and Jai yeah. Paul might be more emboldened. Teresa Leger-Fernandez, check her out. She may okay. really just be voting straight with the squad. She's real good. Where, what state was she in? Selected from Santa Fe area, New okay. Mexico. Because I like because then the squad will have accomplished whatever I, what I've argued with my Green Party friends for since graduate school is that instead of just all the eggs in the presidential basket every four years, have a twenty-year plan to get five to ten Congress people, then you vote as a block, and right, then you have it. real power. And right. they just never could organize like that. But, well, you know. Yeah. You know, we're, we're getting there and we're very close to it. And it is, it is really only about eight that are that hard, hardcore and willing to be combative to leadership. What Pelosi was frightening is Pelosi will try to work with McCarthy, the minority leader, to get around it. Well, then they've got to, then there's, there's has to be no more of this mama bear nonsense, you know, try to make nice, you know, from the squad. At that point, I mean, yeah. they've got they've got to use their leverage. And I love Rashida Tlaib, what she did. And she she won the state for Biden. Michigan. Oh, yeah. Michigan. Yeah, big ter- big because she Michigan. turned out. And, you yeah. know, the, the, the state for for Democrats was just a disaster. I mean, the, the Senate turned from blue to red. I mean, and it's like they the Republicans gained seats in both House and Senate. As a matter of fact, Howie Klein has a very grim article up about that. You know, how many state legislatures were lost to Republicans. And it was kind of what I feared when the top of the Democratic ticket, when they try to get uh, uh, Republican voters out and they try to run as Republicans and appeal that way instead of a populist. They, yeah, Joe Biden may squeak by and he's the winner, but they do it at the expense of everybody else down ballot. Yeah, no, it's a very uninspirational message. There was barely a message at all other than being against Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, Biden and Harris won by how much people can't stand Trump. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Very good. Thank Alan, you, thank you, thank Alan. You. Thanks. Professor Marianne Cummings is the... Yeah commissioner, one of the commissioners, park commissioner in Aurora, Illinois, I was putting up something from the American prospect because there are things that Mitch McConnell uh, can't block when it comes to climate change. I mean, it will be in the courts. The, the, uh, The American prospect, I'm looking for it now, listed about 10 things that uh, Biden can do on day one to protect and reverse, uh, protect the environment and reverse the damage that Trump has done. Let me post this. There it is. This is from the American Prospect. Uh, Require limits on methane pollution for oil and gas operations. We we now know, right, that methane is more toxic than carbon dioxide. And well, it's something like, you know, I can't remember the number, like 50 to 70 times much more effective greenhouse gas per volume. 
Right. And we just are, and we just learned that right in the past couple of years. No, no, no. That's been known for a, for a long time. What we've and what? Well, I guess it was uh, Josh Fox and his uh, original um, documentary Gasland. Uh, we've just learned how badly these pipelines, these gas pipeline pipelines leak. Yes, if you were burning up all the methane, and you know they would that that would be one thing, but they're not. And in fact. The way they put these pipelines in, the imperfect installation of the pipelines is their business model because they go back when when leaks get really bad and they charge more contracts to go and repair them. It's 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 uh, bad incentives, bad outcomes all around. Right, right. And there was there were some tapes revealed where oil executives who have been self-monitoring under the Trump administration, their methane leaks. <laughs> they even the oil executives have privately admitted that we have to do something about the yeah. methane. Holy crap. Yeah. <laughs> Federal government procurement system will be used to purchase clean energy and zero emissions vehicles. That's something that Biden can do on day one. Yeah. That's an executive order. You know, he we did, did it at the park district in the Fox Valley Park District. <laughs> I'm sorry, your your park district is doing that. Yeah, we're we've switched over to uh, electric vehicles. And 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 the car industry wants to transition yeah. to zero emissions. They fought Trump when he tried to raise lower the fuel standards. Yeah. Uh, no, because they know that they can't. You know, it's like. They know that they need the restrictions in place for them to thrive. It's mm-hmm. just like, you know, most of the insurance companies, most of the restrictions on insurance companies are actually lobbied for by the insurance companies because they know when they go each, at each other in a pure capitalistic system, they'll all, you know, tear each other apart. Yeah. So I will, I'll go through this with you, if you don't mind, yeah. because you are sure. in, really informed. Now, Jim Earl went to bed. And I know you didn't vote for Biden. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I did. I don't like Biden. But I do remember that Obama's stimulus plan was uh, monitored by Joe Biden. It was his job as vice president to look for shovel ready projects. Remember that term? We're yeah. looking for shovel ready projects so we can go full Keynesian on the economy. When they look back at and I'm surprised Biden wasn't really able to run on this, except for Solyndra. And I'm not even sure that was so corrupt. Uh, no, it wasn't. You know, the problem with the Obama administration's approach. But he did do a good job monitoring the the, the spending, Biden. He did a good job. There was yeah. very little graft. Right? I, not, that, not that I know of. It went... Um, there was like about a third went to tax cuts. A lot went to um, wind. And I mean, look, I bought my I bought my dishwasher. It was such a deal at the Spears right. because it was a low, you know, it was a highly efficient. Any highly efficient refrigerator, uh, dishwasher, any appliance like that. Um, I was able to put in windows in my attic through the Costco, you know, any any insulation. Unfortunately, it was just a small amount of time. And uh, but they it was very successful. A lot of people at the time were thinking that this should be at least three or four times 
the, the size and not a tax cut, but um, the point of sale tax rebates went directly to people like me. Right. Buying appliances. So he can implement the Clean Air Act and reduce greenhouse gas emissions. There's a lot you could do. New fuel economy standards. That. Um, yeah. The only thing is, I, I don't know how much of the stimulus for, was was actually approved for by Congress at the time or, some, or which was just executive order. Right. I think what David Day yeah. and over the American Prospect, I, I would assume this is from the American Prospect, and I, but uh, I think it is. Yeah. I think the executive, this is reversing executive yeah. orders or a lot of this would be. Uh, doubling down on liquid fuels. This is what I wanted to ask you about. It says doubling down on liquid fuels like advanced biofuels and make agriculture a key part of the solution to the climate crisis. Well, let's break this down for a second. Biofuels. Is there any legitimacy? I always thought that ethanol was just... It's not. uh, I mean, it depends on what it is. Now, like, it's... Ethanol is not very efficient as opposed to, like, sugar like sugar king in brazil and and that that that's a better that's a more efficient in terms of energy you put in versus energy you take out um brazil's cars are running on sugar uh i don't know how much of their cars are running on sugar i do know that they put a lot of money into biofuels but it was uh cane based amazing and I, I just don't, you know, I'd have to look that up and see, you know, how and that was like, you know, 10 years ago or so. Right. And so agriculture, agriculture 10 years out of date, changing not necessarily our diet, but the way we raise cattle. Oh, absolutely. And what kind local of food, uh, local produce. Look, and, you know, we could we could use. Um, we we could employ a whole array of good agricultural practices where we could cut down severely, we could seriously cut down on the needed pesticides and herbicides. As somebody remarked when uh, this Monsanto engineered uh, cotton you know, started, you know, they, they, they discovered evolution. <laughs> they discovered that, you know, the, the worms that would get to the cotton plant, you know, just they evolved a, a, a resistance to the product in their bioengineered cotton. And somebody said, hey, just rotate the goddamn crops. Two years, worms die out. I mean, you know, something people figured out. Hundreds, thousands of years ago. Hundreds of years ago. Yeah. So reduce emissions yeah. and cut consumer costs through new standards for appliances and building efficiency. Yes, you can do that. Even the, the asphalt that you lay mm-hmm. require federal permit decisions to consider effects of greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. Ensure every federal infrastructure investment reduces climate pollution. Well, there's your Green New Deal. I mean, you, you combine you know, infrastructure you just, with a Green New Deal. Yeah, if you just said an infrastructure project. You know, we just infrastructure, we got to get put 20 million people back to work. This, you know, this is ridiculous. And you just, you know, just upgrade people's houses. We've got a we've got a local politician running for mayor on just that policy here in Aurora. So. 
require public companies to disclose climate risks and greenhouse gas emissions in their operations and supply chains. Protect. Yes, uh, yeah, you could, that, that's all, as I said, that's already done. We, I mean, this it wouldn't be new ground. It, it, we do it for, uh, actually, we have forced the park district, the uh, new, uh, my, me and my uh, fellow Bernie Bro have forced the park district to look at all, not only they're the supplies that we get for all our parks, but the uh, contractors that we employ to do playgrounds and uh, building upgrades and so on. So protect biodiversity, slow extinction rates and conserve 30% of America's lands and waters by 2030. And finally, unless you want to comment on that. No, that's, uh, that's pretty much, by the way, one good thing happened. There's a program called called OSLAD open spaces, land and, and, uh, and development, but it's really just a, uh, it's a program for, for local park districts or municipalities to reclaim land and have them open green spaces. And I don't know if Trump was drunk or, but they got him to sign this year to make that program permanent. So, you know, local, local municipalities, can can avail themselves of those grants. And finally, permanently protect the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Right. Establish oh, yeah. I'm sorry? And the lands around the wildlife refuge also. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, Obama let them, you know, offered to open them up twice. I, I don't know what he was thinking. He was so desperate, I guess, to get an historic deal with Mitch McConnell. Establish yeah. national parks and monuments. Ban okay, new. you're reading below that. I can't see that. Oh, uh, ban new oil and gas permits on public lands and waters. Modify royalties to account for climate costs and creating programs to enhance reforestation and develop mm-hmm. renewable energy on federal lands and waters to double offshore wind by 2030. This is, you know, the Green New Deal. Uh, I mean, that's one thing. Yes, yes, he could do all of that. I mean, I mean that's, that would be fairly easy to do. He would have to just ignore what his donors want. But, you know, right. Um, yeah, that would now that is just pressure from the left. That's pressure from the squad. That's, you know, I think that regardless of what Mitch McConnell does, you you can declare national emergencies. I mean, we allow the presidents to just go off and wage war without congressional approval. The wall is being funded because of National Emergency Act. That's where he's getting the money from. And and the thing is, is that it's just a matter of leadership. Yeah. On another on another issue for covid, you know, one of like what what makes me kind of happy is, is that Michael Ulsterholm is one of the people that have been appointed to the new covid uh, to, to the new COVID advisory panel. Mm-hmm. And he has come right out the door swinging, said, look, you're going to have disaster, but you can avoid it if you just shut down for six weeks, 
give people money to stay at home, give businesses money. And he's even said blatantly, you've got the money. Right. If you declare COVID a national emergency and it's a national security issue, you just tell the you just tell the Treasury as president to start cutting the checks. I mean, I'm sure there's about 12 different different amendments in the Patriot Act that allow you to do that. You just put a couple of lawyers on it over a weekend. I mean, as I understand it, you could kill the virus. I'm just reiterating what you said. You order a national lockdown and everybody gets 600, whatever they were getting. Uh, you pay, I, I heard $500 to $600 a day. You incentivize everybody to stay home. Mm-hmm. And like a vaccine, the eff- efficacy of that, people will obviously not every people will take the money and violate the agreement. But the vaccine isn't guaranteed to work on everybody. That no, will, and you don't have to get it down to zero transmission. Right, right, right. You could just shut the country down for six weeks and the virus dies. Yes. And you can stay home and collect money and watch your stupid shows on Netflix. Oh, yeah. And then make it a national, you know, just commandeer Netflix for those and make that free for everybody. Right. Provisioning the army against the COVID virus. Right. Yeah. But, uh, but, you know, all of these are doable. You just have to, it's just political will. Right. But that would mean the money would go to the people who need it. Yeah. You know, they it would, you would have, you would be the donors that would be objecting to this. Right. But, you know, I think that. Uh, it would have to go through the banks so that they could collect fees dispersing the money to the, to our bosses who would then disperse the money. And no, I got well. I, uh, I mean, that's how, I got that's how it has to work. Check. It was just a direct deposit to my bank account. So you know, it's doable. Yeah. It's, it's it's all doable, and it's just political will, and that's it. Yeah. And you let Mitch McConnell, and then after people have been getting money and they can stay home, and the coronavirus rates start going down, which they will do, the instant people aren't you know, milling about and collecting and going to school, uh, you know, let Mitch McConnell get up on the floor of the Senate late night C-SPAN and just rail against, you know, everybody being taken care of. Like, let him do it. He will. He will. Sure. All right. So what? Hey, tomorrow is office hours or tonight is office hours, Friday the 13th. It's Ooh. Friday the 13th. I don't know what's scarier, that it's Friday the 13th or it's already Friday the 13th. It seems like I blink and all of a sudden it's office hours again. If you would like to... Because it went on until about 12 hours ago, didn't it? <laughs> it did. It, it's just, I just leave, I upgraded my Zoom account. So these office hours just go. We keep <laughs> passing on hosts to... Uh, to everybody. Anyway, thank you, Professor Marianne Cummings. Mm-hmm. Always a pleasure. And I look forward to helping you get reelected in Aurora as park commissioner. I want to thank all our guests. I, I would assume Dan is gone. Dan, are you here? 
Okay, I'm going to thank everybody. Dan, if you're here, make your presence known. Please, I assumed you're exhausted and you... My presence is known. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I figured you were gone. What a day. We got through this, my friend. Yep. It was not technical e- difficulties. Not easy. And sometimes you're forced to just plow through it. God, that's frustrating when, when you can't get the sound to work and just... It's a learning curve. You're, you're trying to do a lot. Mm. Yeah. Hey, should we do yeah. community uh, community billboard or are we? Sure. People aren't going so, to what? What is the email address so people can help you? It out? It is Dent Dent Feldman at Gmail dot com. Do you want something to go up on the community billboard and I will read it live on the show? And if you want to attack somebody, didn't we invite like Tom from Portland to say things bad, bad things about Andy Brown and stuff? Wasn't that the idea? We we, in the past, we have had an anonymous entry to say that uh, Andy Brown was a D bag. Right. What happened to the whole idea? All the joy. I, I mean, I love hearing about Tom Weber and what. Martha Previtt is doing, but the real joy I was supposed to get from Community Billboard was taking the street fight to the show to to see people attacking one another, using Community Billboard to attack each other. Maybe your fans don't have enough rage. Well, if you read the chat room, they do. (laughs) They did a good job. The chat room did a great job distracting guests today. They were fantastic. There were a lot of guests. I'm talking to my guests and nobody's home. They're busy. I get I think Ben Burgess was wasn't home. He was in the chat room. I was talking to him. Judy Gold was in the chat room. There were a couple of other guests who got distracted. So you know what? You won. Chat room. That's what we should do now. We should keep score. David against the chat room. Let, let, let me go through. Why don't we thank? Well, first of all, go through the do community billboard, and then I'll score the chat room versus the guests. Go ahead. Fair enough. Okay. Uh, at the top, we have Tom Weber, as always. Even though he and his wife are on break in November, mm-hmm. uh, Tom's artwork is being displayed and sold at TomWeberArt.com, and that Weber has two B's, so it's T O M W E B B. E-R-A-R-T dot com. Marianne Cummings. I haven't brought her up on Community Billboard in the past, but I want to make sure to vocally get it out there on the podcast. Her Twitter is at Razor Girl. Oh, send that to me. Please send that to me. I will. But it spells a little weird. It's at R-A-Z-O-R-G-R-R-L. Okay. And uh, she's always putting up some, some cool info. We have the Reverend Barry Lynn. I haven't brought her up on his Twitter in the past. Barry W. But I want to make sure to vote his website as Barry W. has a book coming out soon called You Don't Know Me. Mm -hmm. Professor Ben Burgess. He's approaching uh, episode 14, I believe, for his podcast, which is new in the last few months, called Give Them an Argument. Right. His YouTube account is youtube.com forward slash Ben Burgess GTAA and his Patreon is patreon.com forward slash Ben Burgess B-U-R-G-I-S 
Fantastic. And uh, if yeah. okay, okay. Well. Let's let's thank everybody. Uh, let's thank Alan Minsky, Executive Director of Progressive Democrats of America. I think the chat. I won. I beat the chat room there. I don't think they were able to get him off the game. So that's one. Can you keep score? You keep sure. Score. Okay, so that's one for me. Craig Bierko didn't show up. I'll give that to the chat room. Wait a minute. Are you the judge? Just maybe yeah, I know who was. Okay. Judy Fair Gold. Enough. Her book is Yes, I Can Say That. The chat room won. You, d- you distracted her. Emil Guillermo. It's a draw. He was reading the chat room. Uh, Bert Ross. It's a it's a push. Henry Huckamacki, Grace Jackson and Arthur Fournier. I won. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn. I won. Dr. Philip Hershenfeld and his son, Ethan. I won. Dr. Jennifer Vertolin. I won. Professor Ben Burgess, the chat room won. Bruce Fine. Constitutional scholar, former deputy attorney general in the Reagan White House, was on the phone. He had no access to the chat room. So that's a push. Dave Cyrus was distracted by the chat room. The chat room won that round. What's the score? David five, chat room three. I won. I beat the chat room. You are the victor. I won. I beat you by two guests, chat room. All right. Thank you, everybody. Friday nights at 9 p.m. is office hours. Please come. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com and hit the attend a live taping, and I'll send you an invite, and you're in. And what time did office hours go to on Saturday? Uh, I think you shut it down at 2 or 3 in the afternoon Saturday. <laughs> so how many? I can't do the math. It started at 9 p.m., and I was, was staining my deck when you shut it down. <laughs> right. And a couple of people were staining their pants. In the, in we, we thought we might get to 24 hours, but you had things to do on that account. I, yeah. Well, we don't have any pay-per-view events this Saturday, do we? That is the truth. That is the truth. And there was something I wanted to ask you. I don't remember. I'm probably going to ask people on Zoom to uh, help me out to uh, show up for a test drive of this new software. I thought I could pull it off today and I failed. I'm so frustrated. It's so frustrating. If I could get this thing to work, it would be amazing. Follow me on Twitter. I should plug me. Follow me on Twitter and friend me on Facebook and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Also, we have a YouTube channel, so please uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel. The more subscribers we get, the more stuff we could do with uh, our YouTube audience. And uh, I think that covers everything, right? I got through it. You got to keep pushing ahead. No matter what the frustration is, keep pushing ahead. Lie on the prize. Go to YouTube and like it. We're at 99. 99 what? 
99 likes on YouTube. We need 100. Oh, the show has 99 likes. Yeah. Oh, you can, yeah, you can watch it. YouTube is interesting. It's easier for it to go viral, I understand, on YouTube. So that's what I understand. Uh, okay. Is that it? Yes, it is. Thank you, everybody. I'm going to say goodbye to our podcast listeners and the people on YouTube. And then we will continue the conversation in the Zoom room. Stay strong and protect the week. Thank you. I'll see everybody at office hours tonight or when we record again on Monday. Thank you, everybody. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. It's on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say, and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say, and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say, and he's coming your way. Late breaking news Joe Biden has officially won the state of Arizona, holding a narrow lead there after over a week of counting. The state of Arizona has not voted for a Democrat since 1996. That was for Bill Clinton. So technically, <laughs> they didn't go Democrat. And uh, no, congratulations, Joe Biden. He won Arizona. It's official. At least that's what the New York Times is reporting. Little hard to uh, little hard to stage a coup when you flip Arizona. All right. That's it. Thank you, everybody. I'm going to say goodbye to YouTube and everybody on my podcast. Thank you, everybody.